Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. What Tell Us is being broadcast live and recorded live on October 12, 2020. 10.03 p.m. is the time right now. Uh, this is the first night in a while I haven't been able to find Trader Ruski. Now, some of this is my fault because I didn't uh, mess—I didn't message him today until uh, about an hour before the show, and uh, he didn't know we were on tonight unless he's been following the Twitter of Poker Fraud Alert, where I did put that the show was tonight, but I don't know if he is watching that closely. So uh, he didn't seem surprised that there was no show on Friday or on Saturday. Remember, last week we had the show on Saturday, but. I can't reach him tonight, so I've texted him. If he is awake, he can come on, and if he's not, then he can catch it in the archives. I'm sure he'll be back next week otherwise. This is not the usual night, so I don't blame him for not expecting the show. It's very possible he just went to sleep and didn't even think the Poker Fraud Alert Radio would be on, because it's been a while since we were on on a Monday night. So here's the story with the schedule. We're going to inch our way back to Friday night, where I prefer the show to be. We got thrown off. I went and visited my parents this weekend, so I was unable to do the show this weekend at all. We did it last week on Saturday. So here we are on Monday. Next week, we're going to do it on Sunday. So that is Sunday, October 18th. And then I'm hoping that the next one will be on uh, Saturday, October 24th. And then we'll be back on uh, October 30th on Friday. That's my hope. But stay tuned. Check the Poker Fraud Alert Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert, for our exact schedule. I'm hoping to get us back regularly on Friday. I just don't want to jump back to Friday because I want to have enough time between episodes to where I have enough to talk about, you know, because I wouldn't want to have to do a two- or three-hour show. That's way too short for you guys. I need enough material to rant about for six to eight hours, as I do every week here. So... If you want to play the free roll, we have $51 this week. It started at 10.05, so you have plenty of time to get in. You have until 10.30 p.m. Pacific time to get in. It just started. You can get in late for 25 minutes after that, till 10.30, and you get a full stack. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. The prize pool is distributed as follows, 26, 15, and 10. 26, 15, and 10. The money came from four sources this week. Shiz Money gave $8. Dive Bar Dave gave $10. I confiscated uh, $18 from a guy called Slick, who never claimed it from 2019. And Vet Guy gave $15. Sorry, Vet Guy 94. Not just Vet Guy, but Vet Guy 94 gave $15. So thank you to all of you. It adds up to $51. 26 for first, 15 for second. 10 for third is the way that all breaks down. I can pay you. By Zelle, by Cash App, by Bank Transfer, by Bitcoin, and some other methods you may be able to think of to send money online, but not PayPal. Not PayPal. I got banned from PayPal, and I still have not resolved that. I'm still working on that, so no PayPal at the moment. And I'm serious. I'm not just saying that and then secretly paying people by PayPal. No, I actually have no PayPal account that is active at the moment, which is sad, but that's the way it is as we stand today. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. If you want to call the Mount Charleston line, which is an alternate number into the show, that is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. 
and it forwards to me wherever I go. If you'd like to text the show, you can do it at the main phone number only, 775-372-8355. Don't text the Mount Charleston line. 775-372-8355, the main number. You can text me before, after, or during the show. I will probably respond to you. And if you text during the show, there's a decent chance I will read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning not to do so. We've already gotten some texts, in fact. We have uh, a text from 773. Need to get that agenda up a day or two before, like you used to. That is before the show. You're killing the anticipation of the live show. Plus, begging for free roll dollars is hard last minute. <laughs> That's true. I, I actually was begging for free roll dollars. I wouldn't say begging. I was asking if people had money to donate to the free roll because we didn't have any this week except for like eight bucks from Shiz Money. And everybody came through. So thank you. We got up to 51. But he, he has some good points. I, I won't argue any of that stuff. Okay. From the 907, uh, wonder if you have a view on the Perkins Blazarian beef with Jean-Robert Balland. Answer, yes, I do. And we're going to have a topic about that tonight. Uh, from the uh, 707, oh, no. The call to listen line is skipping both phone numbers, okay. I, I promise no buffering. I never promise no skipping, but I, I'll have to look into that. I'm not sure why that's happening. That is not good if they're skipping on the uh, the call to listen line. But uh, that's a good segue, though. I'll tell you about the call to listen line. The call to listen line is a phone number you can call to listen to the show. You can call and listen to the call to listen line, and it does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require the Internet or a computer. No, 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 no. It doesn't even take up any data if you do have a data plan. All it requires is any phone that was ever made that can dial. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. The alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. You just call up and listen. Never buffers, never freezes. I can't say never skips. It, it might skip. It might skip. Usually not, though. You can chat in the chat room. We are going to be replacing the chat software at the end of the year. At the moment, we are stuck with this software. You need a flash-enabled device. You need a poker fraud alert form account to get in. And you probably need to follow the instructions on the thread near the top of the Flying Stupidity Forum about how to get into the chat room, or you might get one of a variety of errors. It may say invalid account. It may just uh, show you nothing. If any of that happens, then follow the instructions in that thread on the Flying Stupidity Forum, which I pinned near the top of that forum to get into the chat room, and you'll be able to get in. Even I have to follow those instructions, or I can't get in to my own chat room. There's not a lot of people in there during the live show because of the difficulty of getting in the chat room. It is malfunctioning badly, and I'm going to be turning it off completely at the end of the year and replacing it. I just can't yet because the software I'm going to replace it with is currently in development. That's the only reason I haven't done it. It's not because I'm lazy. I actually tried, but... Uh, it's something I need to wait for. And if in between, if that software is not done in time, I just have to have, I may have to have no live chat room for a little bit. But hopefully we will. I like the chat room. Here's the agenda, and we will get going. I'm going to have attorney Eric Benzamokin on here to briefly discuss the status of the Mike Possel lawsuit against me. I talked about that last week. And every so often we're going to give an update. Tonight, is one of those nights. Now, we may not do this every week. There's a good chance that several weeks will pass where we say nothing. 
There's only so much we can say, but there is some we will say tonight, and I'm going to have Eric give that update. I'm going to call him after we're done with the agenda, before he goes to sleep, and you will hear where it stands at the moment. Raymond Davis, big news about him. We've been following his case the whole way where he was uh, accused of sexual assault on uh, two different uh, minors, and he's been in jail for about a year and a half. A lot of big news on that case. I'm going to give it to you. A lot of Raymond Davis news this week, more than we've had since this started. Very, very big development with that case, which I will let you know when we get to our top story. The Midway Poker Tour ends in disaster. The players were surprised by a payment in silver or gold instead of cash. I'm not even kidding. They did not know this. They did not know they were signing up to be paid in gold or silver coins, but that's how they got paid. And they got shorted in value by about 30%. And the one who called it out is a longtime Poker Fraud Alert forum member, so I will tell you all about that. I will read the post from the longtime Poker Fraud Alert member who called out this story, which has become a pretty big story in poker. Doug Polk and Daniel Negranu are in a heated Twitter battle. I know you're saying, okay, what else is new? They're always in a heated Twitter battle. But this is about the upcoming Heads Up match scheduled for November 1st. And you might be surprised about some of the details in this particular Twitter argument. There are some unusual Things going on with that that don't usually happen in a Doug Polk versus Daniel Negreanu battle. Speaking of battles, Dan Bilzerian and Jean-Robert Balland are in a feud right now, and uh, Bill Perkins is involved, too. He's on uh, Bilzerian's side. It's over a high-stakes private game. I'll tell you what each side has to say. It's pretty uh, interesting story that's going on between all of them. Get a little glimpse into the high-stakes private game situation that goes on in poker. I'm not talking about the private games in Aria either. I'm talking about like actual private games. where So they're invited to a a private uh, residence. Five states have initiatives on the November ballot involving gambling. I'll tell you which states they are and what those initiatives are. Austrian poker pro Mario Zwanzleitner was found dead with his girlfriend also found dead in a suspected murder-suicide. Tragic story. I will tell you about that, and I'll tell you a bit about Mario's history, which, let me say, wasn't all that pristine. Perlot Friedman's ex-wife probably isn't all that pristine. She is now appearing on OnlyFans. I don't know what you can see, but uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of OnlyFans. If not, I'll briefly explain it during that segment. But she now has an OnlyFans page. I'll tell you how to find it. And if you wish to pay $15, you can see her private content. And this is not an endorsement or an advertisement. Just information, because we've been following the Perlod Friedman and his uh, wife, I don't even know if she's an ex-wife. It's probably more of a, an estranged wife, a separated uh, wife. They're probably still legally married. Five Dimes has made a large financial settlement with the United States for running an illegal gambling operation. I'll tell you how large and where they're going from here. If you want to walk into the Cosmopolitan, you're going to have to go through a metal detector. And they are doing this in an attempt to fight the the crime issue that's taking place on the Vegas Strip, a very bad crime issue that really isn't getting 
that much publicity outside of Vegas. I got a complaint that I have not covered enough of the coronavirus lately that I've uh, really cut that down, and I have, but uh, in response to that complaint, I will cover two coronavirus topics this week, one of them having to do with Trump, the continuation of that story. Thunder Valley Casino in the Sacramento area is said to be handing out one-year bans for people who aren't wearing masks. So I'll explain what's going on with that, and I'll also tell you about another accusation about uh, how they are banning people at Thunder Valley that has nothing to do with masks or COVID. So that is our agenda for the evening. I may not have a co-host. Nobody has agreed to co-host. No one has said they're going to co-host. Nobody has responded to me when I've asked them to co-host. I'm really just alone tonight, and I'm just going to have to deal with it. I'm just going to have to go forward all by my lonesome. Someone just texted ask Veronica if she'd like to co-host once in a while. I guess I could. I don't know if she'd have an interest in that, but maybe she would. Talking about Veronica Brill, my uh, co-defendant in this Postle case. Well, I, I guess we can get going with our first topic. So as you guys know, I am being sued by Mike Postle, as are several other defendants. I announced that last week. I also announced that my attorney in this matter, is Eric Benzamokin. Now, you guys know that usually I'm very open and forthright about everything, even matters involving me. But in this case, since it involves an active court case, I can only comment on specific things at the moment. But I did say last week that as the case goes on, that we will give you various updates, and I will say what I can say. So we are going to do that this week, except I thought, you know what? Who better than to give this update then Eric Benzamok and my attorney. So what we're going to do here is we're going to call up Eric right now before he goes to sleep, and we're going to get the word from him on where this is. And then I, I don't have to worry about him being mad at me for saying something I shouldn't, because it'll be him saying it. So we're going to give him a call here. Hello? Eric Benzamok, and welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Thank you. Mr. Wattellis, how are you? I am doing okay, and uh, this is the first time you're appearing on the show, actually, as my attorney. <laughs> That's right, yes. You're official client of the Bensamicon firm. I am. I, I, say, I say Bensamokin, but you say you're saying Bensamicon. Which way should I say it? <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually Bensamicon, but I just never, you know, never wanted to interrupt. That you never wanted to correct well, all this time. You could have corrected me all this time. I didn't. I had no idea I've been saying your name wrong for two years. I mean, my name gets said wrong all the time. People say Whittles or Whitless. I mean, I get lots of mispronunciations of my name too. So, okay, as I've mentioned to the audience here last weekend, uh, just before calling you, I have been named in a lawsuit. The plaintiff being Mike Possel. I am one of several defendants, and I can only say uh, very little about this uh, as it's ongoing. But uh, I figured I'd have you on here since, uh, you know, I've obviously been discussing this with you at length, and uh, we are ready to say a little bit more. So w would you like to make the statement for me? Uh, yeah, thank you. I'd be happy to. I, I think it's important to make the following statement. We believe this lawsuit is utterly and completely without merit. This is a clear attempt to chill your First Amendment rights along with all the other defendants in their coverage and reporting of this possible scandal that's been going on for the last year. This will be defended vigorously and aggressively. There will be no settlement whatsoever. We're prepared to defend this all the way through, 
and we expect to make quick work of this. Thank you, Eric. And that's, uh, that is exactly how I feel. And I thank you for stating that very eloquently. Yeah, this is obviously something I wasn't looking forward to happening, and I, I was not happy to see was happening, but it is something that I am going to deal with and that Eric is going to be assisting me in dealing with. And that is the way this is going to be approached from now going forward. And uh, more will be released from us as time passes. Is there anything else that uh, the public should know now, or uh, is that it? Well, pardon me if this sounds corny, and for those out there that are fans of Game of Thrones, you'll understand, but as far as Mike Postle and his legal team is concerned, winter is coming. (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, well, well, thank you, Eric. And I don't think it's going to go the way they're hoping. No, I don't believe it will either, And, and there will be more to discuss and report as time goes on. At this early stage, I I typically think it's a mistake to discuss too much in detail, any kind of pending litigation. So our papers are going to do our talking for us, and I I have nothing but confidence as far as the outcome is going to be. Thank you. And I have nothing but confidence in Attorney Eric Benzamokin. That is why he's representing me here. He's being handled, and that's all I can say for right now. Thank you, Eric, for coming on. Is, Is there anything else you'd like to comment I think that there's a lot more to this story, and I think that's going to come out as this case progresses a little bit. Uh, I, I am suspect of the law firm that allegedly is hired by Postle, Um and I think that, that more information about that's going to come out. Um, but for now, uh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to we're going to do our thing. We're going to march straight forward. Again, you know, I, I just have no doubt whatsoever that we're just going to dispose of this quickly. Yes. Well, thank you very much, and uh, that's all we can say for right now. There will be updates as we see fit, and eventually you guys will learn everything, but uh, it'll be a slow process because the legal system is slow, and it's extra slow during times of COVID. That is all. We will move on to other things. And as I mentioned, by the way, I had people ask me again over the past week, now that this has happened, uh, is this going to change the way you handle other matters? Is this going to change the way you cover other topics? And as I said... No, it's not going to change anything the way I handle this show or this site or the way I cover other topics. I feel that I've been doing the right thing for eight and a half years here, and I'm going to continue to do the right thing on this site for the poker community. Thank you, Eric, for giving us a little bit of your time here for uh, this statement, and we will have you back on in the future. I look forward to it. All right. Good night, Eric. All right. Take care. I just realized that I said Ben Zamokin after he corrected me. <laughs> uh, just just when he hung up, I realized that. I should have said, wait, 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 I'm sorry, it's Ben Zamokin. Okay, sorry, Eric. I'm going to really try, even though your ad that I play most every show still says Ben Zamokin. I may have to go back and edit that or maybe even make a new ad. I don't know. I feel so stupid all this time. Two years I've been calling him Ben Zamokin. It's, it's kind of still been some in my head. It's tough. Anyway, that's our statement for now. And let's move on to Ray Davis. Ray Davis has had a major development in his criminal case. He has been in jail since April of 2019. And it's a very interesting story in several ways. First of all, just because he's someone in poker who a lot of people know. He's been around in poker for a long time. He was a pretty well-liked figure, though sometimes involved in controversy uh, even prior to this. He had a very successful group called Real Grinders on Facebook 
Real Grinders, to be honest, I kind of laughed at it when it first started. It, it was it started off as something else than what it became. It was supposed to be a website that you would visit and it would have uh, uh, models on there and they'd be talking about sports and they'd be talking – like they'd have various pros giving tips, but it never caught on. It, like It was something that sounded good to them. It sounded kind of cool to them. It was like a membership thing where you had to pay a monthly membership. People weren't interested in that. It didn't do very well. What did do well was the Facebook group. Uh, and I think the Facebook group has kind of started to support the main project, which really went nowhere. But the Facebook group itself really did go somewhere, and it has a lot of members, or at least had a lot of members. At its peak, it had, I don't know, like 20,000 members. It was very active. There was so much content on there, you really couldn't read it all unless you spent a very long time doing so. It was a fun group. There was a lot of uh, interesting stuff to read on there. There was a mixture, mostly of recreational players, but uh, there were some pro players who participated there as well, including me. And Raymond Davis actually had a good personality for the group. He was the leader of the group. He drove a lot of the content there. He had uh, a good personality to lead such a thing, and it did very well. And uh, Raymond made some money. I don't know how much money he made from it, but uh, he started some little side projects that uh, spawned off of Real Grinders that made him extra money. He's just like he represented some uh, small poker site called Fox Poker, one of those little uh, private poker sites, uh, things like that, where he would drive traffic over to sites like Fox, and there was some uh, sports betting operation that he was involved with. I, I, I didn't pay that much attention to all of it, but I know he made some decent money from it. And I know a lot of people enjoyed the group, and I enjoyed the group. So everything was going well for him there, at least as far as Real Grinders was going. They even started a lounge in Vegas that uh, you could visit during uh, the World Series or even during the year. They actually had a physical lounge. Uh, It wasn't at the Rio. It was off property. It was uh, right there in Vegas, but it wasn't too far from the Rio. And they, they had some parties there, and uh, he was selling Real Grinders gear, which sold... uh, I don't know if it sold really well, but I know that uh, it made some okay sales. So everything was going pretty well as far as Real Grinders. Real Grinders was doing better than they could have anticipated, even if it wasn't in the way they envisioned. Real Grinders also had some moderators who helped run the group. And uh, often these moderators would be the ones making the decisions on kind of the day-to-day operations of who would stay, what threads would get deleted, what threads would get locked, uh, who would be banned, stuff like that. Uh, Raymond didn't do that much of that. He was kind of more of the, the personality and the face of the whole thing. Uh, one of the most prominent moderators there is, or shall I say was, a woman named Terry King. Terry King, who I, I guess I could have on this show sometimes. I've always been on good terms with her. She is an old school poker figure. She was one of the regular female poker pros back in the 70s. And she never won anything really big. Uh, she did make a final table at the World Series of Poker in the 70s. She was the live-in girlfriend of Chip Reese for a while. And uh, she was pretty young when all this was going on. You know, this is in the 70s. She's obviously an older woman now, but not as old as you'd expect for someone playing poker in the 70s. And uh, she left poker for a while. I'm not sure why. I guess we could have her on here and ask her about her life story. But she returned to Las Vegas a few years ago from Oklahoma and uh, got back involved in the poker community. 
and uh, she got to know Ray Davis, and they became friends. And she was the kind of like the head moderator on Real Grinders, and she did a good job for the most part. And she was part of the reason it succeeded as well. She uh, became a good enough friend to Ray Davis to where she was very, very supportive of him during the ordeal that uh, he was going through starting a year and a half ago. And we'll get to that whole thing that plays into it all. But uh, she was the one running Real Grinders in Ray Davis's absence. Why was he absent? Well, you probably know by now, so I'm not going to tell the whole story again. But in April of 2019, Raymond Davis was arrested and was charged with uh, three crimes, sexual assault against child under 14, sexual assault against child under 14 again, and sexual assault against child under 16. So obviously pretty severe charges, obviously very serious charges when it involves any kind of uh, sexual relations with a minor, especially a minor under 14. It's one thing if the minor is uh, 17, which wouldn't happen in Nevada, by the way, because in Nevada, the age of consent is 16. But uh, there's some states like California where it's 18. So when you hear someone is accused of uh, any kind of sex crime with a minor who's like 17, then you have to consider how old was the person accused. If they were much older than the teenager, then it's still pretty bad. But where it's much, much worse is when the minor is under 14, for obvious reasons. It's, it's not all made the same here. Once, if they're under 14, it's a pretty big deal, and it's a really big deal if uh, you're way, way, way past your teenage years, like Raymond Davis was, like most people listening to this show are. So obviously people were watching this uh, situation with curiosity and were wondering, is Ray really guilty? And if he is, then obviously it's pretty bad. Like there, There's really no excuse you can give as a 50-year-old man of why you were messing around with anyone under 18, even if it's legal. I mean, even in Vegas, where it's, in Nevada, where it's legal for to be with uh, teenagers who are 16 or 17, uh, if you're 50 years old, you shouldn't be doing that. That's just the bottom line. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not like you're, you're 19 or 20 and messing around with a 16 or 17-year-old. Uh, when, when you're 50, you're so far past them, it's... Uh, it really is predatory if you're doing that. So that uh, was the accusation against him. And if it were to be true, then obviously this would make people judge him pretty harshly and deservedly so. But was it true? We were reserving judgment on this until the trial played itself out. And what I did in the meantime, in the past year and a half, is I have been following the case by... Uh, looking at the court websites, and I've even been able to find some video of the case at some point, which they took in the courtroom, stuff like that. And I've been reporting just basically on the facts. I wasn't speculating. I wasn't saying Ray's guilty. I wasn't saying Ray's not guilty. Uh, the only opinion I was giving was on some of the court procedure, but I was never giving an opinion either way on his guilt. I decided I would let that play out in court, but I was following the whole thing and reporting on the whole thing very, very closely. And nobody else was. When I say nobody else was, I really mean nobody else was. I don't mean no individual wasn't doing this, but you will not find anywhere on the web that covered the Ray Davis situation from start to what is now finish, like Poker Fraud Alert did. We were the only place you'd find this information. In fact, some weird new accounts registered that were like anti-Ray Davis that were occasionally posting about this that I suspect were like relatives of the, uh, the uh, of the ones who were said to be the victims and uh, 
I have a feeling they found it because we were one of the we were really the only site that was actively covering this from beginning to end. And the reason I did this was because it's interesting news. It's something I feel the community deserved to know about, no matter which way it played out. If it turned out that Raymond was uh, accused of something he didn't do, then it was important to cover it the whole way and have that be the ending, if that's the way it turned out to be. And if he really did it, then it was important for people to know. And it was just uh, something that was newsworthy and interesting, especially because uh, a number of us know him, including me. So it has come to an end. Before I get to that, I want to remind everybody of a few things. First of all, he's been in jail, not prison, but jail, consistently since he was arrested in uh, in April 2019. There was a screw-up on the part of Las Vegas Metro PD, where they should have arrested him a long time before, and they only ended up arresting him in April 2019 because of a traffic stop. They had a warrant out for his arrest for a long time, and because of a stupid a bit of confusion where they thought he was out of state just because he had a California license that he never converted over to a Nevada license. They never bothered to look for him right there in Las Vegas, which is crazy because a simple Google search would have shown that he has that real grinders lounge right there in Las Vegas, that he lives in Las Vegas, that he's very public about the fact that he's in Las Vegas. This is not someone who's been hiding. This is someone who's been very accessible, very easy to find. So uh, nonetheless, Las Vegas PD screwed it up and they gave the task to find and arrest Raymond to uh, a division within the police department that specializes in finding and arresting out-of-state uh, people who committed crimes in Vegas and then left the state. And that department didn't do very well because, again, a simple Google search would have found that he was still in the state and never left the state except for on occasion to go play at Commerce or whatever. So that was a big blunder by that department as well. So it took a long time to get him arrested, and that delayed the whole thing. The alleged behavior by Raymond Davis took place in 2014, and they started an investigation in late 2015. Uh, I learned only recently that these uh, allegations started because one of the girls who was accusing him got in trouble for unrelated things. She was She was basically a juvenile delinquent. And uh, she committed some crime that uh, she admitted her involvement in. I don't know which crime it was, but uh, she committed some crime at the time. And uh, they put her to they put her with some kind of uh, woman who helps counsel youths who are on a bad path and to try to get them uh, get their life back together and get them on the right path. And in the discussion with this woman, this girl said that uh, she had had a sexual relationship with Raymond, and then that uh, led to this investigation starting. But that was in late 2015. It was not until three and a half years later when Raymond was stopped uh, in a traffic stop that they arrested him. And had that traffic not, not occurred, and had he not had any contact with police, uh, he still might not be arrested. I'm not kidding. Like It really is not that unlikely that had that traffic stop not occurred, that this all would not have happened yet. It would eventually happen the first time he had contact with police in Nevada. But uh, there was a warrant for his arrest that uh, he was unaware of, but that sat there for like like two and a half years before they actually arrested him. A really big screw-up on the part of, the part of, uh, of Las Vegas police. Now, he tried 
to get the case thrown out based upon that, saying it violated his right to a speedy trial and mentioned a similar case that had occurred recently called the Inzunza case in, uh, in Nevada where uh, a case was dismissed, also against somebody who was accused of having sex with a minor, also where they didn't arrest them uh, at, at, for a long period of time. But there were some differences in it, so uh, that one ended up not applying to Raymond's case, and, and uh, that was denied. So pretty much everything Raymond was trying was getting denied, including representing himself. He, so he did represent himself for a while. It was a disaster, and uh, there were various outbursts in court, and the judge got to hate him. And uh, to be honest, uh, I, I did feel that regardless of guilt or innocence, that uh, there were some unfair things that happened in the uh, entire court case. For example, the judge clearly got to really hate him, and uh, the, he tried to get the judge switched. He really should have had the judge switched because the, the judge was clearly biased against him. And and second, uh, related to this, he had a $500,000 bail. His bail was up from 25000 to 500000 really just as punishment from the judge who didn't like him. And I could not find any other justification for that to up the bail from 25000 to 500000 A justification was given, but it was very flimsy. It was clear. It was, it was something that was punitive, and I was very skeptical of that. Uh, you, you have to give a bail amount that's appropriate for uh, the crime that's accused and that matches other defendants that are accused of, uh, of something similar. And they, they gave him that bail, and then they upped it by a factor of, uh, of 20 they up to 20 times higher because the judge took a dislike to him and because he had outbursts in court. Like if they wanted to charge him with contempt for outbursts in court, that's fine. That's the way the legal system works. If you don't behave in court and you get charged with contempt, then you deserve it. But you you shouldn't get your bail artificially raised because the judge doesn't like you. That's uh, an abuse of the judicial system by the judge, in my opinion. So anyway, that doesn't change his guilt or innocence. If he's guilty, he's guilty. And if he's innocent, he's innocent. I'm just stating on the side that the court uh, did a crappy job and the police did a crappy job <laughs> with not arresting him for two and a half years thinking he was in California when every person who knew of Ray Davis knew where he was and a Google search would tell you where Ray Davis was. You could find out where Ray Davis was by entering his name into Google and taking 10 seconds. That's all it would have taken. And they took two and a half years. Horrible incompetence by uh, Las Vegas police. Anyway, you guys know a lot of this. I've discussed this on the show over time. I just thought it was good to give a background before we get to the recent news. So the recent news is that uh, with the trial scheduled for October 5th, remember Raymond Davis was given a plea bargain chance uh, last year, and he turned it down. He said, no, I'm going to fight this. So he turned down the plea bargain. He could have walked out of jail. He would have had to accept a felony. He would have had to register as a sex offender, but uh, he would have walked out of jail with no further prison time. It would have been on probation. He turned that down, I think, back in December, and his trial was scheduled for October 5th after a lot of different motions to dismiss and a lot of other nonsense where he's trying to get rid of his original attorney. Anyway, the trial was finally scheduled for October 5th, which was a week ago, but the trial did not uh, occur like uh, we expected it would. And we actually now have a result of what happened with Raymond Davis. So Raymond Davis is now a mostly free man because he is no longer in jail and he has accepted a plea bargain and he is now on probation and is convicted now of a felony and a misdemeanor involving the whole matter. 
Specifically, he pled guilty to a Class D felony, coercion, but uh, specifically not sexual coercion, just coercion. And misdemeanor contributing to the delinquency of a minor. They gave him time served. Remember, he was in jail for a year and a half, which was going to count toward whatever prison sentence he got. So, for example, if he got uh, a 20-month prison sentence, he would only be serving two months because he already spent uh, 18 months in prison or in jail. So here he gets probation and time served where the second he walks out of court, they kick him loose uh, from – well, well, he goes – they technically bring him back to the jail and then process his release is what happens. But there was no more time he had to serve. He was told that he will get one to six years in state prison and up to a $5,000 fine if he violates probation, which is a pretty low fine. I mean, I would think it would be higher for violating probation for something like this, but that's only five, up to $5,000. It may not even be $5,000, but he would get uh, one to six years in state prison if he were to violate his probation. But other than that, uh, he has been released uh, without many restrictions. I don't know if he can leave the state of Nevada. He may not be able to. I'm not sure about that, but uh, he is free other than being on probation. Now, despite that, there was a case that was laid out prior to his acceptance of the uh, of the Class D felony coercion and the misdemeanor of contributing to a delinquency of the minor. And uh, Someone found and sent to me a video of the courtroom, and this was a legal video of the courtroom. This wasn't some guy sneaking in there with a with a phone and, and secretly uh, recording the whole thing. I wouldn't uh, play something like that on this show. This is something that uh, was recorded by the court system and uh, put on YouTube. Uh, I don't think it's listed. I don't think you can search for it, but it was put up there uh, by the court system itself. And uh, the video is almost nine hours long. And, I mean, the show's almost nine hours long sometimes, but so I can't criticize that. But uh, most of it is kind of boring, and most of it isn't really worth watching. The good stuff starts at the 7 hour and 26 minute mark, and I'm going to jump to that here, and I'm going to play it and comment on it. And uh, the 8 hour, 27 minute, 30 second mark is where they give the sentence after the plea bargain. But uh, at the 7 hour 26 minute mark is around where they started the discussion of what Raymond Davis did. And uh, most of the voices – what the voice you're going to hear is the uh, district attorney who's prosecuting this. And you'll get to hear some of the allegations against him, some of which I hadn't known the details of. But he gives more detail than I knew before. And uh, after this whole thing – they uh, they did the, the plea deal. So it's interesting that this was laid out first because the plea deal was already pre-discussed. I guess this might be a procedural thing. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. But nevertheless, here is the audio of it, which uh, fortunately for you, the radio listener, there's not that much to see here. Yes, there's video, but it's not that interesting. It doesn't really add much to this whole thing. So honestly, you can just listen without really feel like you're missing much. However, if you really want to see it, if you go to the Poker Fraud Alert thread about Raymond Davis in the Flying Stupidity Forum, you can find this, and it is on page 10. If you scroll down some, you'll find this video, and you can play it for yourself. Though if you're doing it on a phone, it may take a while to load. When I tried to play it on my phone, like it sat and sat and sat and finally loaded because it's like nine hours. So here we go. This is the uh, I'm going to start at the 7-hour, 25-minute uh, 
40-second mark of the video. Ladies and gentlemen, there's two TVs in the room. That's the judge. When you find to be more comfortable, the same thing will display, be displayed on both TVs. Sorry, Mr. Rose. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Sometimes things are straightforward. That's a DA. In July of 2014, the defendant, Raymond Davis, met a 13-year-old child on Facebook. He met a girl that was vulnerable, a girl that came from nothing, a girl that didn't have anything. He met a girl that was easily swayed by being called beautiful, easily swayed by being told he would buy her gifts, take her shopping, take her to the mall. And ultimately, Raymond Davis sexually assaulted that child. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, over the course of the next several days, we will hear testimony from several different witnesses. We will hear from Vanessa Robinson, that child that Mr. Davis met. She will tell us that she was 13 years old when that man reached out to her. She will tell us that she was attending middle school at that time. That she had a poor relationship with her mother. That she didn't really have much. She didn't really have money. I don't even think she had a phone in July of 2014. She would tell us that she wasn't hanging around with the best crowd during that time period either. But she will tell us that in July of 2014, she met the defendant. That he messaged her on Facebook. All right, let's stop this for a second here. So he's talking about this uh, Vanessa Robinson, who is the one of the defendants or one of the plaintiffs, one of the one of the victims here. And uh, this was from mid 2014. And the voice you're hearing is of the district attorney. I apologize for it being a bit soft. That's just the way the video is. I've turned it up as loud as I can. But uh, he's going over what happened between Raymond Davis and uh, Vanessa Robinson. And now, of course, it being over six years later. Vanessa Robinson is older, and I guess her life is in a better place. So the Vanessa Robinson they're describing from back then is different than the one today. She's a good deal older. She's gotten her life uh, in a better spot. But uh, I guess Vanessa admits that she was having a lot of trouble in those days. And we will have an opportunity to see the Facebook messages, see the communication between the defendant and Vanessa. She will tell us that he was a complete stranger to her. A man she had never met before, a man she did not know. She will tell us that, and the messages will reveal that the first message she has to her is, You are so beautiful. That he asked her to take her shopping. Asked her to take a friend shopping. And you will see this with your own eyes. The messages. He told us, tells her that he's going to give her $200. Now, this is a 13 year old child that we have to show that didn't have anything. She didn't have any loose change in her pocket. And this man is offering her to buy her things. You tell her that I'll give you money to buy a phone. Just hang out with me. Just let's meet. Let's talk. Let's hang out. She will tell us that they eventually do meet up in person after a few days of talking, after a few days going back and forth, after a few days of that man trying to manipulate her and tell her, I got money. I'll take care She will tell us when they first meet in person that he's a nice guy. That they meet at a restaurant, it's fat burger. It is nice that they begin to talk, but ultimately that, that conversation that they're having turns to them going back to his apartment. She will tell us that 
inside his apartment. This man, for the child, starts to show her around, show her things, talk to her. But then, all of a sudden, the conversation turned. But it, it, it went from a body things, just to hang out, to, if you take care of me, I'll take care of you. Child. She was told that when he first says, if you take care of me, I'll take care of you, she didn't really know what she meant. But she didn't really know what he meant. But she began to realize what was happening when he grabs her hand and he places it on her private part. He tells her, I'll give you money. And Vanessa will tell us. She was 13 years old at the time. She needed money. That she did perform oral sex on him the first time that they met in person. She would tell us that he told her not to tell anyone that this is between me and you. That this little, I'll take care of you if you take care of me relationship with a third year old is between us. Okay, let's stop here. So, I had not known this detail before as far as the allegations. The allegations that I was aware of was that uh, Raymond had this Vanessa girl and some other girl over at his place and that uh, for some reason they took a shower there and that he sat in a chair in the room and masturbated while they were in the shower. That 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 was what I had heard. Those were the allegations before. I had never heard prior to uh, this hearing that uh, Raymond had received oral sex from a 13-year-old, which to me is a much bigger deal than uh, jerking off to teenagers showering, which isn't good either, but uh, the oral sex from a 13-year-old is a much bigger deal. So I I don't know why this took this long to get out. Maybe they were not going after him for this for whatever reason. The statute of limitations, I don't believe, would have expired. So I'm not sure why they didn't go after the most serious thing. Now, of course, this is what this uh, Vanessa Robinson says happened. I'm sure that uh, Raymond Davis's lawyers could have challenged her, especially because uh, she could be deemed unreliable. That often is a problem when someone makes an allegation and then they have uh, a shady history of their own. And by Vanessa Robinson's own admission and by her known criminal record at the time, uh, she was into some bad things herself. I'm not sure what, but uh, I know that she was arrested for something, nothing having to do with Ray, that eventually brought this all out. So I'm, uh, I have a feeling that uh, maybe that's why they're not just taking her at her word, but that's that's a pretty serious allegation there from this Vanessa Robinson, and uh, this DA is mentioning that in court. And he's claiming that this occurred on the first time they met, that they had talked to him on Facebook, and that he convinced her to meet him, and then first day they met after meeting at Fatburger, then uh, eventually he brought her over to his apartment, and then... Uh, uh, convinced her that if she does that, he'll give her money. And then she did. That's that's the claims by the district attorney here in court. And this was on October 6th in the afternoon. In fact, there's even a date on the video. It says uh, the portion I'm playing right now is at 2.53 p.m. Pacific time on October 6th, 2020. Obviously a very recent thing. Now, Vanessa will tell us that she continued to go over there. That she needed the money. That she was desperate. She was us, and the Facebook messages will show that he began to start asking about friends. Told her that he would pay for both of them to do stuff for her. Mr. Gould, I'm sorry, would you stay closer to the microphone? We're having yes. a hard time picking you up. Thank you. 
Yes, Mr. Rolls, can you please stand close to the microphone? This radio show is having a harder time picking you up. Thank you, Judge. Thank you. I uh, appreciate you attempting to help out this show because this volume is just brutal. She would tell us that the conversation, she continued to go over that. That's better. She continued to start talking about maybe asking for some friends to come over, that you would pay for both of them. And we'll have an opportunity to review these messages between them, the messages between July and September throughout the year 2014. Now, Vanessa will tell us that she eventually brings her friend China over. In fact, we will have the opportunity to see that China is one of the first friends that she mentions to Ray, that on the first day that they communicate with the defendant, that he's asking it about a friend. And he actually picked a different friend. He suggests to Vanessa a friend named Jocelyn, who he's already messaged on Facebook. But Vanessa says China, that's my best friend to hang out every day, and this is prior to her knowing anything that's going on with the defendant, what his true intentions are. But she will tell us about a time when she brings China over. She'll tell us that he had them take a shower together, and that the defendant prepared himself. That while they're in the shower naked, he sort of gets ready, but he brings a, cha- a chair into that restroom, that bathroom. He sits down in that chair with his Vaseline, and she will tell us that while they're showering, he masturbates. And China was 13 years old at the time as well. Two children. Okay, so then the video goes to blue screen for a while. Uh, said, I think, Your Honor, can we break or something? Something like that was said by maybe Raymond's attorney. I'm not sure. Uh, this is Raymond's uh, newer attorney. He had one before that he was clashing with a lot and he didn't feel was going, doing a good job for him. He kept trying to dismiss. And then I think this newer attorney was court appointed. So... Then they took a break for reasons I don't, I'm not sure, and then it goes black or it goes blue. It looks like the Windows blue screen of death, actually, when you take a look at the screen and, and nothing happens. So I'm going to fast forward through that. Uh, they talked about the shower where it's alleged that uh, Raymond asked Vanessa, hey, do you have a friend you can bring over? And uh, she said, yeah, I can bring over my friend China. And Raymond said, no, what about this uh, this friend Jocelyn? I like her better. And she says, no, 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 I, I'm closer to China. I'd prefer to bring her over. And Raymond's like, okay, fine. That's what that's what the uh, DA here, Mr. Rolls, is claiming happened. And then that uh, Raymond prepared himself with Vaseline and sat down in a chair in the bathroom as they were showering and jerked off. That was Those were the allegations related to that shower. And that was what I thought all this was about. I had no idea it had anything to do with oral sex prior to that. But anyway, there's that blue screen for a while. Then the blue screen comes off, and we'll start from there. Stated when I was reading you the instructions, the opening statements are just that. They are statements, not evidence. So, by the way, the judge's voice really surprises me. It's like it's a really like small voice. It's, it's so weird. It's hard to picture her as a judge. I can't see her. I can only hear the voice. Mr. Gill will also have an opportunity to make that. Mr. Rolls, I apologize. Go ahead. Vanessa will tell us that there's a time when her and China and her friend are inside his apartment, inside that shower, and he's masturbating. Now, Vanessa will tell us that this continues throughout 2014. But at some point in 2015, she sent to the juvenile detention center here in town. And she will tell us that she was a troubled kid, that she had issues with the law enforcement, that ultimately her issues with law required her to serve some time in a juvenile detention facility. She will tell us that at this time, in 2015, when she's inside serving time, that she meets the lady by the name of Esther Brown. And we will have an opportunity to hear from Esther as well. Esther is sort of the manager or founder or owner, operator 
Okay, so let, let me stop us here. Uh, the what he's talking about here is what I said before that Vanessa met this woman who works with troubled teens, and that's where she told her about what happened with Raymond, as you'll hear him describing. If you're anticipating hearing from Vanessa and this Esther and maybe this China, don't because it never got that far. The plea bargain was accepted before any of these witnesses appeared. That one of her requirements was to go to, um, I believe it's referred to as Caliente, the Juvenile Detention Center, and sort of just talk with the girls. Sort of conduct weekly counseling with the group. Go over issues, just talk about things, try to solve whatever is going on that has put these young children in that position. Now, Vanessa will tell us that she was fortunate enough to be one of the members of that counseling service. And after meeting with Esther Brown... Vanessa will tell us that she, in confidence, not knowing that it would lead to anything, tells Esther about her relationship, about her abuse suffered at the hands of the defendant. Now, the evidence will show that when Vanessa comes forward to Esther, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, the state of Nevada, are not seeking information. Raymond Davis is not on their radar. Vanessa Robinson thought this was being done in confidence, that this was a friend she could talk to. But ultimately, Esther reports this to the police, and the police do get involved. And we will hear from Detective Arturo Martinez of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And he will talk to us a little bit about his investigation in this matter. He will tell us that he meets with Vanessa, interviews Vanessa, and Vanessa discloses the sexual abuse in the hands of the defendant. Now, Mr. Martinez will tell us, as well as Tyler Peterson, the superintendent of Caliente, that Vanessa doesn't gain any benefit from this. She's not released from custody. She doesn't get any sort of negotiation. Her charges don't get dropped or reduced. She doesn't just get, oh, poor you, you're a victim, you're out of jail now. She stays in jail, even after meeting with the police. There's no benefit from Vanessa going through this process. No sort of, if you help me, I'll help you, like the defendant. Now, Detective Martinez will also have the opportunity to explain to us a little bit about acute and non-acute examinations. Yeah, it doesn't really matter, that part. So anyway, uh, what he said before mattered, though, that he's claiming that any attempt to say that Vanessa just made this up about Raymond because this would get her a deal, would, that they could prove that isn't true because, number one, she got no deal. Number two, it wasn't that type of conversation. It was just a, a talk she was having with this uh, counselor there. This wasn't something where she was talking to police saying, hey, I'll tell you about a crime against me. If you let me off for this, then I'll help you get someone bigger. I'll help you get a, a, a dude who's having sex with minors. Uh, he's insisting it wasn't like that, that she told a counselor this in confidence who then reported to the police and Vanessa had no idea that this counselor would report it to police. And therefore this is not a situation where she would have lied or made this up for any kind of gain. And that in fact, after revealing this, they sent her right back to juvenile hall. Uh, now this Arturo Martinez is one of the people at Las Vegas Metro PD who screwed this up. Uh, he contacted Raymond Davis in late 2015 after doing an investigation on this whole thing. Raymond Davis basically denied knowing this girl, Vanessa, and then said, I'm not going to talk to you anymore, which he wasn't required to. 
And then Mr. Martinez said, okay, well, we're going to keep investigating you. And Raymond said, okay, we'll go ahead and do that. Goodbye. And that was that. And then it just sat and sat and sat and Raymond heard nothing. So uh, Raymond didn't understand like why this went quiet. I guess he assumed that they investigated and found nothing and moved on. And then in April 2019, he got the bad news during a traffic stop that there was a warrant for his arrest over this matter. So uh, Detective Martinez was one of the people who screwed up regarding Raymond's location. Even though she, he knew where he was, um, somehow between when he uh, said that uh, – when, when he – put out for the warrant of his arrest i forgot what happened but it went through a process where then it went to a team that was supposed to apprehend raymond davis and raymond davis and then that team screwed up and saw the out-of-state license assumed he was out of state gave it to that team that looks at out-of-state people who then didn't really do anything didn't even google him and they pretty much did nothing to look for him so that's why it sat for so long uh where martinez screwed up in my opinion was that he should have followed this up. He should have said, okay, well, where is the thing with Raymond Davis? Not just kind of hand it off. Okay, we're uh, we're f- going to be filing charges here, and we're, we're going to put out a warrant for his arrest, and then just uh, wash his hands of it until he hears Raymond's been arrested. He should have followed this up, and he would have seen right away that they were looking in the wrong place because Detective Martinez talked to Raymond Davis while he was in Las Vegas and, in fact, had left a card for Raymond to call him, which Raymond did, at his apartment. So that right there shows that Arturo knew exactly where he was. So that there's no excuse for that whole thing to have occurred that way. Again, that's a side matter from whether Raymond is guilty or innocent. That's just showing incompetence on the police's part. But just wanted to mention that because that name came up. So uh, I'm, I'm going to move a little forward in this here. All right, we're back on the record in State of Nevada versus Raymond Tyrone Davis, C three four two nine four six one. Mr. Davis is present in custody, present with his attorney Adam Gill and Ms. Petkovich. Uh, Ms. Collins and Ms. Rolls, on behalf of the state, it looks like this matter is negotiated. The defendant is going to plead guilty to count one, coercion, a category B felony, and count two, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, a misdemeanor. Both parties stipulate to the defendant receiving probation at the rendition of sentence, with the only condition being that he served 380 days in the Clark County Detention Center, with 380 days credit for time served. Further, the state will not oppose uh, Mr. Davis being released today after his entry of plea, and he is not to have contact by any means and or manner whatsoever with the victims in the instant with the victims in the instant case. Was that a correct statement of the negotiations, Mr. Gill? Yes, sir. So, Mr. Gill is his current attorney, and uh, the recess they took was about I don't know forty minutes, and I have to imagine it was probably something like, and this is just me guessing, but it was probably something like that. They were going to go forth with the trial here and had previously discussed the plea deal, which for whatever re- reason Raymond didn't want. And then as Raymond heard them laying all this out, he kind of like, oh, crap, I think I'm going to lose here. And he's like, hey, um, you know, I think I do want to take the plea bargain. So that's probably why they recessed to then say, you know what, we're going to take the offered plea bargain before this gets going. And they, the state said yes. So that's where this is after coming back from the recess. So Mr. Gill is going to speak, and you're going to hear from Raymond Davis, you're going to hear from the judge, and uh, you'll get a good idea of what happened to him here. All right, Mr. Davis, let's go over some questions. Sir, may I have your full name for the record? Uh, Raymond Tyrone Davis. And how old are you? Uh, 53. How far did you go in school? Uh, I got some uh, military uh, training. Okay. Do you read, write, and understand the English language? Yes, Your Honor. Are you under the influence of any drugs, alcohol, beverage, or medication today? No, Your Honor. And do you understand the proceedings that are happening here today? 
Yes, Your Honor. Have you received a copy of the guilty plea agreement and an amended indictment charging you with count one, coercion, a category B felony, and count two, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, a misdemeanor? Yes, Your Honor. Do you understand those charges? Yes, Your Honor. And have you had the opportunity to discuss this case with your attorney, Mr. Gilt? Yes, Your Honor. All right. As to the charge set forth in the amended indictment and guilty plea agreement, how do you plead to count one, coercion, a category B felony? Uh, guilty. Excuse me? Guilty. Okay. Thank you. And as to count two, contributing to the delinquency of a, a minor, a misdemeanor? Uh, guilty, Your Honor. All right. Um, are you making these pleas freely and voluntarily? Yes, Your Honor. Has anyone forced or threatened you or forced or threatened anyone close to you to get you to enter into these pleas? No, Your Honor. Has anyone made you any promises other than what's contained in these documents to get you to enter into this plea? No, Your Honor. All right. A guilty plea agreement has been handed over to me and on page... Six of that guilty plea agreement dated October 6th of 2020 is a signature in blue ink. Is that your signature, Mr. Davis? Uh, yes, Your Honor. And before you signed this document, did you have ample time to review it and discuss it with your attorney, Mr. Gill? Yes, Your Honor. Any of the questions that you had, were those answered fully and completely by Mr. Gill? Yes, Your Honor. Do you understand everything contained within this document? Yes, Your Honor. Do you understand the constitutional and appellate rights that you are giving up by entering into these negotiations? Yes, Your Honor. Do you have any questions at all that you need to either go over with me or go over with your attorney at this point in time? No, Your Honor. Okay, let me stop this for right now. So he, she's basically asking him a bunch of questions that really shut down any kind of uh, backing out of this. Uh, were you coerced in any way? Were you promised anything that isn't officially in the agreement? Uh, was your attorney's representation fine? Did you get all the questions you had for him answered? Uh, pretty much, is that signature really yours? Do you understand everything? Are you on drugs or alcohol at the moment? So they want to cover every single base, and they did ask him right before I stopped it, do you understand that you're giving up your right to appeal and uh, some other constitutional rights? You're giving these up by this plea deal. So he can't make this plea deal and say, you know what? I appeal. I appeal my sentence. Once you've agreed to this, that's it. You can't uh, appeal it anymore. So they're asking if he understands that. Are you a United States citizen, um, Mr. Davis? Yes, Your Honor. All right. So let's just go over. I know that this is a deal for probation with credit for time served, but I still need to make sure that you do understand um, that if for some reason you were to violate the terms of the guilty plea agreement, under the state of uh, under the laws of the state of Nevada, coercion, which is a Category B felony, is uh, you could serve a minimum of one year, a maximum of six years, and is there is a fine of up to five thousand dollars. Yes, Your Honor. And up for a misdemeanor, it's up to six months, or not more than six months, in the Clark County Detention Center, and up to a thousand dollar fine. Yes, Your Honor. All right. Okay, and so um, I intend to go along with these negotiations, Mr. Davis. Uh, the only thing that would change something is if you were to get out of custody and, and pick up a case other than like a minor traffic violation. But let's say, and I know this isn't going to happen, but let's say you went out and you committed a burglary or a robbery or something. Then the state retains the right to argue. Do you understand that? Yes, Your Honor. Otherwise, I, I am telling you, I will follow these negotiations that the parties came to the agreement on and that you came to the agreement on with them, okay? Thank you, Your Honor. All right, so let's turn to the language in the information if you want to follow with me in the amended indictment. As to count one, are you pleading it guilty in truth and in fact to coercion, a Category B felony? Uh, you did then and there willfully 
In truth and fact, you did then and there willfully, unlawfully, and feloniously use physical force or the immediate threat of such force against CR, with the intent to compel CR to do or abstain from doing an act which CR had a right to do or abstain from doing by preventing CR from leaving your presence. Yes, Your Honor. And count two, you did willfully and unlawfully encourage and contribute to the delinquency of VR, a minor under the age of 18 years of age, by harboring VR, a runaway juvenile, and encouraging VR to lead an idle and dissolute life. Yes, Your Honor. Because those are the two things he's admitting to. CR is that uh, girl, China, and the VR is that girl, Vanessa. That's the two girls he's admitting to have uh, done something to. So with, involving China, he's admitting to this uh, felony coercion, which is a Class B felony, not uh, D. I said D earlier. It was actually B. Whatever. I, I don't even know the difference. And then with this uh, Vanessa that he contributed to her delinquency. And that doesn't really mean very much compared to what he actually did or even was accused of doing. Uh, that's just the plea bargain they came to where they're, he's getting convicted for something related to this. And this is what they came to. And, and there's a lot of negotiations back and forth. Uh, you'll hear something interesting coming up about uh, what was important to him in this. All right. Go over with you right now. No, Your Honor. Are, are there any questions that you would like to give uh, me to ask me at this point in time? That's fine, Your Honor. Um, everything we'll do it at sentencing. Okay, so those are issues that need to be brought up at sentencing. No, it's not issues, Your Honor. It's just something I want to contribute. Oh, okay. All right. And um, are there? Uh, are you satisfied with your legal representation in this case up to this point by Mr. Gill? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. All right. The court finds that the defendant's plea of guilty is freely and voluntarily made and that he understands the nature of the offense and the consequences of his plea and therefore accepts his uh, plea of guilty by stipulation to the parties. Mr. Davis is released on his own recognizance release today. We'll give him an out-of-custody date uh, for preparation of a PSI uh, in, you know, whatever date is applicable for that. Okay, that's it. Your Honor, can I, can I get immediate release so I don't have to... I have ordered your immediate release, but the jail has to do their processing. So, but yes, as, soon as, as far as I'm concerned, you're released. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank Appreciate you. It. Okay, it goes silent. Actually, I, I thought he was going to say something about the language in the plea. I guess uh, that must have been a different point I didn't play. But I'll tell you what he said. He was very concerned that uh, it had nothing to do with sexual coercion, with what he was admitting to. That he was just admitting to coercion. And uh, I don't know if he has to register as a sex offender. I know some of you are wondering that. I'm wondering that too. I'm not sure about that. It, nothing was said about that either way. It wasn't said that he doesn't have to. It wasn't said that he does have to. He is not admitting to any sexual crime. He's The coercion he is agreeing to is that uh, basically he was preventing this girl, China, from leaving. That she wanted to leave and that uh, either through physical force or threat of physical force that uh, he was forcing her to stay or to do something she didn't want to do. But not sexual necessarily, just uh, some kind of coercion he was agreeing to, but not sexual coercion. And then he also was agreeing that uh, he contributed to the delinquency of uh, of this Vanessa who uh, then later got in trouble for other things and that she, he, he was letting her stay with him when she was uh, 13 years old. Uh, so, so he was admitting to all these things, but not to anything sexual. The stuff about the showering, he didn't admit to that. The stuff about the oral sex, he did not admit to that. As far as uh, what he admitted to 
it was nothing sexual, though let's be honest here. Uh, it's very unlikely that he would have taken this plea if he was not worried about being convicted for the sexual allegations. But it is important to know that what was uh, agreed to in the plea bargain had nothing sexual in the language. And at some point on this stream from court, I saw that he was discussing that it was very important that uh, sexual coercion was not in there and that anything sexual was left out of uh, the official record of this as far as what he pleaded to. And they agreed. They said, yes, we agreed to that. That was part of uh, the discussion. So I'm not sure where that was. It was somewhere in that hour or so between uh, 7 hour 26 and, and beyond. But it must have been not what we played here. But that was interesting. Presumably, he wanted that so if there was any question later on, by anyone who looks into his background that he can point to this and say, I didn't admit I did anything sexual. I admitted to the very minimum so I could get out of this because I was very worried I was going to be wrongfully convicted. And and that's basically what he's been sticking to. So, okay, he's been released. And he was released that same day. He was worried that maybe some time would pass while they're processing him out, that he'll be stuck in a, in jail another night. But they did release him on October 6th. So what did he go do? On October 6th, 2020, which is now uh, six days ago. Well, he went right home and he got on his computer and he posted on Real Grinders. Now, he had already agreed to the plea bargain and he did not have to stay silent. He could say whatever he wanted. He just couldn't get in trouble again. But he could say whatever he wanted about the case. He could deny being guilty, blah, 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 blah. He, he could make any kind of statement he wanted, and that would be fine. So there's nothing that was endangering him legally. But I would think after you have entered a plea bargain in a matter like this, and after there's that information in that court video of these allegations against you about uh, – telling a 13-year-old that she's beautiful and and meeting up with her and buying her things and having her come over and she claims that she had oral sex with you in exchange for money and and all these other things that are alleged here. You would think that uh, if you make a plea bargain to get out, it's not like he beat all the charges and it looked like he was innocent. I mean, here, honestly, he pled guilty and it looks like he is pretty guilty here. I mean, uh, that that's what it looks like. He definitely pled guilty in the eyes of the law. It, it's now in the public record that Raymond Davis pled guilty. But uh, yes, he did not plead, plead guilty to everything he was accused of, and he didn't plead guilty to the most serious charges, but he did still plead guilty. And I have a feeling that he did so because had they brought this uh, out in court uh, with, with all the witnesses and all the uh, – victims who claim that he did these things to them, that uh, it would have looked very bad and he could have gotten a long prison sentence, and I think he knew it. So if I were in his spot, what I would do upon getting out is I would leave town, I would try to start new, I might even consider changing my name, and I would leave whatever community I was associated with forever. So I would leave the poker community, I would leave Las Vegas, I would cease being a professional poker player, I would just try to start completely fresh and hope nobody ever unearths this. That's that's what I would do. That's what anybody sensible would do here. Or at the very least, keep your mouth shut. At the very least, just go home and don't say anything and hope people forget. Or at least most people forget. But that's not what he did. He went on to Real Grinders and he posted the following. Same day he got released. He ran home to post at Real Grinders right when he was out of jail. 
You know when uh, they ask someone after something happened, what are you going to do next? Like uh, Oral Hershiser after he won the World Series in uh, 1988. Oral Hershiser, you just won the World Series. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disneyland. Well, Ray Davis, you just uh, got out of jail after being there a year and a half after being accused of molesting kids. What are you going to do next, Ray? I'm going to Real Grinders. And that's what he did. He went to Real Grinders, and this is what he posted. You all are entitled to your own opinion. I have no problem with that. Here's my point. I was facing over 100 years in prison a year ago and instead chose to go to jail and fight instead of taking a deal to go home. Now, that part's true that uh, in December he did have a deal to just go home right there and he chose to keep uh, fighting, which I thought was a mistake. And he ended up ultimately taking a deal anyway. I went to trial with no lawyer facing a jury that was stacked against me, willing to give up my freedom for what I believe in. As you all know, I do not see color. I love all races equally. And all races have shown me so much love. I fought as much as I could. A Nevada Supreme Court just uh, fought for my rights. I don't know what he means by that. He did try to take something to the Supreme Court to get this dismissed, but it didn't work. I do not want to go into detail of the case due to having a $4 million, a $5 million, and a $390,000 lawsuit pending in U.S. District Court. (laughs) I don't know who he's suing here. I... Can't imagine any of these are going to be successful. He's got a, a $4 million, $5 million, and $390,000 lawsuit in U.S. District Court. I don't know if it's against the Nevada court system. Never going to work. These things always fail. And and this is coming from me who believes that he actually was mistreated by the court system. It's still never going to work, especially given what he was accused of here, especially given that he ultimately pled guilty. Uh, you, you really only have a shot of these at really, really egregious cases and where you were innocent. I mean, he, he just... I don't even know what he's claiming in these lawsuits, but I can tell you that even as a non-lawyer, I believe they all have no shot. I only wish you all could have seen the jury pool and form an opinion. I would have pled to anything. I was simply drawing dead. Court records are open for the public for anyone to view. I would 100% uh, present, look at the records before I judge anyone. As far as the group goes, I never had any attempt at coming back and taking over. I was never in charge of real grinders which is strange. He was in charge of it. He wasn't running day-to-day operations, but it, it was his. I always said it was a family and everyone had a part. I still feel that way. I could have given up the case a year ago, yet I fought like many of you would. You guys really want to know who was lying and who was telling the truth. Read all the transcripts and judge for yourself. I still love each and every one of the members of this family, referring to the Real Grinders family. I got so much love and support from this group. It made me proud even as I sat in jail. Members visited me, sent cards and letters. It brought a tear to my eye. I love Terry, referring to Terry King, for the help and support she gave me. She has no idea why I had to stay on, on the. I had to stay off the phone with her, and Dan Heimiller knew right away. Eric Shrimp knew also. You can't ever show your hand, especially when jail calls are being recorded. As always, you are welcome to your opinion. I'm not sure what he's talking about there. I cannot change that. Not nor will I try. I lost everything I had fighting for what I believe in, but I still have the love of many members of the Real Granders family. After litigation is over, I'll be writing a tell-all book. As always, I would like to thank all that have supported me during this uh, difficult period in my life. I love you all. Okay. How do you think people responded to this statement? Do you think that everyone just trashed him and said, get out, pedo, we don't like you, F you, you're scum? That's kind of what I expected. That's not what he got. He got a little of that, but mostly 
he got positive responses to this. Most of the people in Real Grinders who hadn't left yet, remember it, he's been in jail for a year and a half, and it, they tried to kind of censor it of what was going on there. They were really trying to hold back discussion of this in Real Grinders. But uh, yeah, eventually the word got out, and it was discussed elsewhere, including on Poker Fraud Alert. Uh, you'd think that he would really get raked over the coals here, but he did not for the most part. Most people were pretty supportive which was surprising. But something changed. What do you think changed? Remember, he already pled guilty. And they had some people trying to say, hey, look, Ray was guilty here. Hey, look at what they're alleging. Hey, look at what the DA said. And they've linked to the video. Still didn't really change that many minds until someone came out and spoke out against Ray that nobody was expecting to do. And that was Terry King. Yes, his very good friend, Terry King, spoke out against him. Now, why would she have done that? Was Terry King just a snake in the grass? Was she uh, disloyal? Was she not what she always appeared to be? No. I actually knew everything that Terry King came out with in her post. Terry King actually had not been talking to Raymond since April. They had a big falling out back in April, six months ago. And I knew the whole story. But Terry asked me not to reveal it publicly, so I did not. But I knew it. And I knew she was unhappy with him. And she had some pretty serious allegations of her own of how Ray had treated her. Nothing related to what he was accused of doing with these girls, but just how he treated her. And she was very unhappy with him. After Ray got out, the same day he got out, including, you know, not only did he go to Real Grinders to post, but he also tried to contact Terry despite the fact that they had that falling out. He kept trying to talk to her, and she was not responding. And she was telling me this as it was happening. She was messaging me saying, hey, Ray's trying to message me. Ray's trying to call me. I'm ignoring him. I don't want to talk to him. I want nothing to do with him. So I guess this got him pissed off that she was ignoring him. After that, he supposedly talked trash about her to people that she knew. She finally had enough. She had not intended to come out publicly with this story. She was going to let Ray return, and if people accepted him, then great she was not going to interfere but after she heard that she was being talked about behind her back she decided to come out and spill the entire beans this is what terry had to say i tried to take the high road raymond is not going to let me as he continues to spread lies about me privately thanks to everyone for your support admins and members have been awesome this is referring to real grinders i never intended or wanted to run a facebook group i share my old school stories about poker and i'm happy people enjoy them I was in Oklahoma for eight years caring for my mom. I met Raymond Davis on Facebook from Todd Brunson's Facebook page. I had just gotten rid of my flip phone. Raymond added me to his new group, Real Grinders, and shortly after that made me an admin. I met him for a few hours in Vegas in June 2018 when I came out as a nominee of the Women's Hall of Fame in poker. I moved here the following year. Raymond appeared to be in good standing with a lot of old-school gamblers I knew. When he was arrested in April 2019, he called me to pick up his car and move it to his apartment. He swore he was innocent. He said he vaguely remembered an extortion plot years ago. I went to court with another member. I posted his $7,500 attorney's fees with a promise that he would pay me back immediately. So Terry immediately put up $7,500, she claims, for Raymond's attorneys. I paid the $3,800 bond, and he had an ankle monitor. He got locked up shortly thereafter... He now had a husky puppy at home, a tortoise, and three turtles. The tortoise is a giant tortoise he called Harry. 
And those live really long. Those are probably, that Harry's probably going to outlive all of us. I had to beg the manager to let me feed them. A maintenance guy would stand there. So when he got out a few days later, I made him give me a key just in case. So what was happening before she was begging them to let him, let her into his apartment and feed the animals. And they finally said, okay, fine. If a maintenance guy watches you, you don't steal anything. We'll let you in to feed the animals and leave. So then uh, she got ready to give her a key. So she doesn't have to go through that anymore. He got mad at his attorney, fired him and represented himself. Big mistake, which is true. That is basically what happened. Jury trial started in September 2019. One day he told the judge he was feeling weird and thinking of doing weird things, said he needed a psych evaluation. He went in for the evaluation in September, this 2019, and did not get out until this week. His friend Tina took Bruce his dog. I drove 40 miles round trip every few days to feed Harry the tortoise and the three little turtles. There were fingerprints on his car window one day, and we decided it would be safer at my house. That's his car. He asked me to wa- wash it once a week. Seriously? So this is already when she's starting to get pissed with him that she's doing all these favors for him. And he's saying, hey, not only can you keep your car over here and feed my pets, but uh, I don't like my car getting dirty. Could you wash it once a week, too? And she got pissed, but she – I don't know if she said yes or no, but right then she was already starting to get annoyed with him. He had a bright red Camaro with RG Poker, referring to Real Grinders Poker, uh, license plates – and was on the news for being arrested on sex assault against minor charges. No, I did not drive his car anywhere. I have my own car. So she, what she's trying to say there is that uh, given what was said about what he had done, the last thing she wanted to do is drive his uh, easily identifiable car with real grinder's plates and have people think that she's associated with him and uh, have something bad happen to her. I got a cover for his car and, and started once a week. I don't know what that means. He had me go pick up 15k from his friend. He had me pay 3500 to an attorney who was friends with a guy in the group. The attorney failed to show up, and I went to court and testified that I had paid him. Raymond had me retire his original attorney or rehire his original attorney for $7,500 on October 24, 2019. Raymond wanted to talk to him. He refused to go visit Raymond. I would drive downtown every few days to go get the attorney to go see him. It took about 45 days to see Raymond the first and only time. So they're very unhappy with this attorney. While representing himself, he angered the judge and the DA, and the bail was increased from 25k to 500k based on a random search of birthdays close to his. The DA attached their crimes to Raymond's. I found this at the courthouse while doing research. I even went to the FBI for help, and they could not pay it a PI, private investigator, who found none of these names coming back to Raymond. I saw that list of names. I think I may have even posted it in a poker fraud alert. I will tell you, a lot of them have a lot of similarity to Raymond Davis. Like there would be something morphed. That was identical to his, but like it would be the the same month and day of birth, but the year is changed by uh, one year, or the social is changed uh, slightly. Like a lot of things that had, you know, it could have been identity theft. It didn't. Ha- it, this wasn't necessarily him. It could have been him, and I'm not sure what the point was of all these different aliases. But uh, there was a. The, she did get this printout, and she showed me, and it had a lot of. Uh, morphed versions of Raymond Davis identity-wise, which, again, it could have been him. It could have been somebody else. He wasn't accused of this. I won't speculate on that, but I'm just telling you what I observed by looking at that list. His attorney would not compel them to show proof. I probably went to see his attorney 50 times. I called the attorney a liar as he always promised to go see Raymond and never would. Quote, I always intended to go, but something more important came up. Isn't that what every client wants to hear? (laughs) So, so far, she's not, other than the car wash thing, She's showing how dedicated she was, but she's not really criticizing Raymond yet. But we're going to get there. Don't worry. 
Meanwhile, I kept feeding his pets at Walmart one night, getting kale for Harry. Remember, that's the tortoise. Raymond said, Harry likes Albertson's kale. You're out of your mind. I, I kept begging Tina to bring Bruce, the dog, to the vet for past due shots. She stood AJ and I up three times. I would send her money for food and money for caring for him. Raymond had me drive her to get her a new phone, which he paid for. She begged me one day to PayPal her money for Bruce. No money on PayPal. She begged me to meet me as he was starving, so I met with her with a bag of food that I broke open so she could not return it. So apparently the, the this Tina, whoever this is, that was taking care of this dog, Bruce, uh, Terry didn't trust her at all and felt that uh, she was begging for money to take care of the dog that she was just spending on herself. So she, Terry brought her a bag of food and ripped it open so she couldn't bring it back to the store and get money that way. She turned Bruce over to me the next day at the vet. He was malnourished, lost muscle mass in his hind end, his teeth were going bad, and he was covered in urine stains. That's pretty sad. I took him for shots, then to my kennel. They groomed him first. I tipped I tipped them to play with him because he was not fixed. Uh, I told Raymond I would help pay for this. We tried several people to get to take them. They couldn't. His sister offered to come out. He said no. That's a weird statement. To, I, I tipped them to play with him because he was not fixed. What? What kind of playing with him did she want them to do if he wasn't fixed? That's, that's a little bit strange, but I won't even touch that one. Eric Shimp. Eric Shimp, Raymond's business partner, said the lounge lease was up in February 2020. They demanded a two-year lease. He said, no, this is for the Real Grinders Lounge. I met movers, and they had everything taken to storage. That's the end of the Real Grinders Lounge, by the way, in case you're wondering. Eric paid the movers, and the first month storage rent that I paid the 170 fee, Eric, another friend, and I kept Raymond's bills paid after his money ran out. Sadly, I lost the key to the lounge in the apartment shortly thereafter. I begged Raymond to give me his key and property, that is the property that they're holding for him in jail, no limited power attorney, no. He refused to give his sister or his attorney limited power of attorney. I convinced the apartment manager to let me in. I smuggled the three little turtles out in Tupperware and brought, bought them new tanks. I would go throw corn up to Harry on the balcony every few days. One day, a member messaged me that Raymond was active on Facebook. I took his phone to Cricket, where a girl had attached her phone to his account. We blocked her and changed the password. So th- this is one of sus- various suspicious things that uh, Terry was alleging, that uh, Raymond couldn't be on Facebook, but that his account was suddenly on there. And they're like, what the hell? And it turned out that some girl had attached her phone to his account and was able to get on his Facebook. While feeding Harry one day, I looked up the stairs in April. I looked up the stairs and saw a package from Amazon to Raymond Davis. I then noticed the security door had been crowbarred. I st- stupidly, I ran right in looking for Harry. He was gone, as was all the furniture. It was a huge mess, and she included a picture. I called the apartment manager and the police. As I waited in my car, I saw two girls about 17 years old go pick up the package. That's the Amazon package. I confronted them. They said, he's my uncle. I said, no, he's not. They took off running. I chased them screaming for help. I left my car running. So I took some pictures from behind and returned my car. She did post some blurry pictures of her chasing some girls. I called the police to report this. I showed the picture of the manager of the police. They could not take a report as I was not the victim. They gave me an event number so Raymond could file this from jail. He refused. His neighbor confronted a tall, tattooed Puerto Rican man leaving his apartment later that day. I drove back and called the police again. Again, Raymond refused to file a police report, but he told the manager to give Terry a key so she could clean the apartment up. When I checked his phone, other phones had been ordered and attached to his account. I was able to delete one of them. A friend was able to do a video chat with PayPal and Amazon and freeze his accounts. I offered a $1,000 reward for Harry and put up posters around his complex to no avail. So this is really strange that 
people were stealing things from both in his apartment and outside his apartment. The two girls stole that Amazon package. The uh, tall Puerto Rican man was uh, leaving his apartment, and everything was stolen, including giant tortoise Harry, which was the only animal left there. She put up a reward, no one responded, and Raymond would not file a police report for either of them. That, that's the most bizarre thing in this whole story that Terry's posting, by the way. And I even asked Raymond this when he got out on his Real Grinders post, and he did not respond to me. But why would he not want to call police about uh, these events? He called one day, quote, can you put your car in my garage? No, she said. Can you tow it to a friend's house? AAA refused to tow or jump it with expired plates. He said I was lying. The next day, he had people call, and he was demanding to know where his car was. What? He said, I gave your address to people, and they drove by, and it's not there. I already sent a timestamp video to your sister and your friend, and who the hell are you giving my address to, she said. Uh, Tina, he said. Raymond said that the deputy said, I should have arrested her for stealing the car. He owes our friend money on the car, or I would have just parked it in the street or at a casino. The next day, he called me and said, he thinks I robbed his apartment and sold everything. You have got to be kidding me, I said. Several assured him that I did not. A few days later, he called, wanting some numbers off his phone. Well, I guess you've come to your senses, I said. He said, no, I think you robbed me. Then he yelled at me, you have cost me my home, my money, and my pets. I fought tooth and nail to keep Bruce safe, she said. Uh, don't ever mention him again. Uh, don't ever mention his name again. I don't want him. Give him away. Now, now I'm on the hook for three to four K at the kennel. I started crying for Bruce, poor puppy, because uh, she's saying that Raven said that he doesn't want uh, Bruce get rid of him. I reminded Raymond of the lounge furniture and storage. He would only need a bed when he got out. He said, fuck that. I don't give a shit about that. I told him to go F himself and never to call me again. I found a great loving home for Bruce and they took the little turtles too. So good. Good ending for the Bruce and the Turtles. They are in a good home, Terry says. Harry the Tortoise, we still don't know where he is. I started getting messages from unknown numbers. He's telling everyone you robbed him and did horrible things. He had a guy named James call one day for a phone number. I have no interest in helping someone that's accusing me, she said. Uh, I would not answer Raymond's calls. I told his friend that I have to move because I don't feel safe in my own home anymore. I need to move the car. He said a friend would come from California to sell the car, but there's no title to transfer. We knew the trial was on October 5th, 2020. A private investigator called me on Raymond's behalf. When I returned his call, he said Raymond took a plea deal and he could be out already. I did not want to see him or be around him. I called Ella, who said I could have the car towed there. I had to bribe the AAA tow guy to get him to tow it. That is because they usually won't tow cars with expired plates. The battery wouldn't hold the charge. I knew no one could drive it. Raymond texted me and called me. I would not return his call. I am at risk, referring to of COVID. I do not want to be exposed to anything. I put his phone, chargers, and car papers in the glove box. When his phone got hacked, we took him out of the admin to be, admin of the real grinders, he means, to be safe. Plus had, uh, plus he had threatened to have the group shut down. I did all this not knowing if he was guilty or innocent, but I feel everyone should have their day in court. Well, you had yours, buddy. I told Raymond numerous times on a recorded line, if you did it, you should pay, and I don't want them leaving you any loopholes to get out. Now he's on Facebook page telling terrible lies about me, so I feel I should tell my side of the story. Below are some pictures. Join a Facebook group. They will be, it'll be fun, they said. <laughs> Thank you all. Well, people did not like this. 
they did not like this on behalf of Terry, that is. They felt very bad for her. They felt that Raymond had betrayed the person who had been most loyal to him through this entire year and a half ordeal. They felt that he screwed her over. They felt that he had falsely accused her. They felt that he had mistreated her. They felt that he'd used her. So this really changed everything. He was able to return to real grinders without a lot of judgment, despite what he was accused of. But once Terry came out, who was very well respected there and was seen as just like a nice older woman and posted this whole story, that really changed a lot of minds. And a lot of people who had been kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt, they changed their minds very quickly, thinking if he's going to screw over Terry King, then he's probably guilty of everything, the way a lot of people thought. So a lot of people went off on him. I mean, he was getting killed in the responses. Almost everyone took Terry's side. There were hundreds of responses there very quickly. Almost every one of them was pro-Terry and anti-Raymond. And then people started bashing him about the charges against him, calling him a pedophile, telling him he's scum, telling him he's trash. I mean, just all the stuff you thought might have come when he first returned to Grail Grinders that didn't really happen was happening now. So this, this really, uh, this, this really killed it. This was really the end for Raymond Davis on Real Grinders. In fact, I knew that would be the end of Real Grinders because, uh, number one, Terry King was not going to be involved anymore. Then Terry King was also coming out and saying, I tried to help him and he screwed me over and he accused me of things I didn't do. Now, this is Terry's story. You may say, well, maybe Terry's not telling the truth. And I will say, yes, maybe she wasn't. What do I personally believe? I believe all or most of her story is true. I don't know her super well, but I've dealt with her for a few years uh, on and off. And she's always come off as honest to me. She did seem very loyal to Raymond. I could not see her doing this. She doesn't have any kind of history, either now or back in the 70s or 80s, of being a shady person. Uh, It seems like everybody likes her. I've never heard one bad story about her. The only criticism she ever got was for associating with Raymond Davis, both before and after his arrest. Before he was arrested, there were a number of people who were thrown out of real grinders, who were bitter about it, who posted nasty things about her. And uh, it was all because of her association with Raymond. It was never about anything she did that had nothing to do with Raymond. And and I, I don't believe any of the stuff that was posted anyway. So, like, there was never any kind of credible or semi-credible allegation against Terry King ever that I've seen. And when I say credible or semi-credible, I mean, like, anything I read that I would think even, like, oh, you know, maybe this happened. Like, I didn't even get that. Like, anything that was ever said about her, it was clearly not true. And, and because she was associated with Raymond, they were attacking her. But I never saw anything that was even, like, slightly credible. So she had a good reputation. People like her. She's, like, just like a, like a nice older woman who was who had a lot of cool pictures and stories from her days in poker in the 70s and 80s. And I, I've really enjoyed a lot of her pictures and stories. Now, of course, that has nothing to do with any of this, but uh, she's that that's the way she's seen. It's like this old-school poker figure who has a lot of stories to, sh- to tell and a lot of pictures to show. And she was with poker legend Chip Reese for uh, several years as his girlfriend as well. Once Terry did this, that was it. They just ripped him apart. Now, Raymond made some weird statements after that. He was claiming that 
he he's going to after nine days. I don't know why nine days, but that uh, nine days after being released, which uh, I guess is coming up very soon, he's released on the sixth. That he's going to turn himself back in, and I said, "Wait a minute! What do you mean turn yourself back in? You, this is done. There's nothing to turn yourself back in for. You've you've accepted a plea bargain. It's it's on the record. You've been convicted of a felony, a misdemeanor here, and uh, you've served your time, and that's it." And he said, "No, I'm I'm trying to turn myself back into jail." And I'm going to reverse the plea bargain, which I don't believe you can do. I don't believe you can change your mind. He seems to think you can. I've never heard of that before. But he, I don't even know if I believe he's doing that. What, what would the incentive be to do this? He's not in jail anymore. And he's not facing the prospect of any more jail or prison time, provided he doesn't do anything else. So it's over. They've, they've accepted that. He's uh, the the time he's served in jail is all the time he's going to serve for all of this, so that's done. And he can't go back in time and get the time that he already served. But going forward, he's not going to serve any time. So what is he going to accomplish by returning to, to clear his name to get this cleared off? I mean, to, honestly, what what was being accused there? I think he's probably going to get convicted if he were to go through with that trial on the on the fifth of October. The 6th of October, whenever – they said the 5th, but it looked like the 6th is when it took place. But had they actually gone through with it, I think he would have been convicted. So I I don't believe he's even going to get this rescinded. In fact, this could be something where he knows it can't be rescinded. And by going back and trying to get it rescinded, this makes him look more like he's innocent, like he's regretting that he copped to something he didn't do to get out of jail. And now it's trying to take it back, and they won't let him, knowing they won't let him. That, that's what I think uh, is going on there. Now, I know Matt the Rat has been following this. I've seen some of his comments on Real Grinders. So he's calling right now. Matt the Rat, uh, what, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, um, I was following the thread, and I watched the video. I kind of skimmed through parts of that video off and on. And, you know, I, I'm seriously thinking that he's got a bit of some kind of mental stuff going on. Uh, and, and I don't say that jokingly. He, um, several times he was arguing with his lawyer and the lawyer was adamant, like to the judge, I want to make it perfectly clear. I told him this, this, and this. And then he's arguing saying, you never told me this. And it was just, it was really unbelievable. I I don't know if you saw that in the, in the early part of the video. No, I didn't. And I will tell you from just my observation of this entire case from start to finish that he's acted erratically throughout the entire thing and, and done some things which were going to hurt him. In fact, his outbursts in court is what led for the court led to the court overreacting and giving him that $500,000 bail and the judge hating him. Kind of what I saw there was Ray behaving poorly and then in turn the court was behaving poorly. So it it was and and he the just the way he like I said I didn't watch the whole video but the just the way he was talking it just seemed a bit odd and a bit off. Um and then in the, you know, in some of the comments of the, the thread there in the Facebook group, um, like I, I had made some, I can't remember, one of the comments was somewhat negative and he replied to me and said, oh, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. And then later on, he had made some post about like, I'm going to go back in or something. And so I was the first one to question. I said, what do you mean you're going back? And then he replied, I don't like the deal I got. And I replied back and I said, well, you know, from my point of view is like, like, I didn't say whether he's guilty or not. I mean, I think he's guilty, but 
it was um I said, you know, like you got a good deal. And yeah. besides the fact, I don't even think you can reverse it. Yeah, you can't as far as I know. I don't believe – I think the only way you could is if uh, one of those things that he said in court that you know, that pretty much covers them to where they can't uh, reverse it. Like if he were to prove that he was uh, coerced in some way or they made some kind of off-the-record promise to him of what's going to happen that they didn't keep. But they covered all those bases by asking him all those questions and he said yes, 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 no, 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 whatever was the proper thing to say that this was all on the level. And you know, I believe it was. I don't think there was anything uh, secret or sneaky going on by by the court or by the DA here to make this this deal. I think that uh that that he said I'll plead to something and they negotiated back and forth and this is what they came up with. Well, and in the, in the beginning of the video I can't remember what mark it was, but the judge basically said, like, oh, you were offered this deal and then this deal. And then that's when he was kind of arguing some of those facts. Oh, I don't remember this. And the lawyer was like adamant, like, no, no, we went over this. So anyway, but the the judge said, OK, if you were unsure of that deal, like we're offering you this right now, like this was kind of before the whole court thing started. And and he said, no, I. I don't want to take that. I want to proceed. And she goes, okay, if we proceed, you understand there is no more deal making. Now, I don't know why they reneged on that because obviously a deal was made, but they made it clear. If you go forward, there's going to be no deal. And and I think that stuff, like why would the um, the DA say we have evidence of these girls and these text messages? And it's like they're not going to say that unless they have that. Right. Not only are they not going to say it, but uh, they were prepared to do it at this trial. I don't know if on that day, but they were they were starting the trial there, and very soon they were going to present the girl. They were going to present the, the woman that the girl talked to, who was trying to counsel her at the beginning, and they're, they're going to present they're going to present that China girl, I assume. So they were going to present all these people. It really is hard to believe they're all lying. And, and here is a weird explanation that Raymond was giving to people on Facebook, and that is that there was no 13-year-old girl, that this Vanessa was actually born in 1999, and when these alleged things occurred, that she was older than 13. Now, first of all, even if she was born in 1999, that would mean in 2014 that she was either 14 or 15, which still would have been illegal, though admittedly it would have been uh, less serious than someone who was under 13. But it's not like she was born in in 1997, which would have made her over 16 no matter what, and then uh, there's no way that could be uh, any kind of crime. So I still don't understand that, but he's claiming that this Vanessa simply was not born when they're saying she was born, which to me is is bizarre. Like that's a weird thing to claim. It, you think he could easily is, prove that? It it is bizarre. And like I said, going back to like I think there's something off about him. When I made that comment, is like, hey, from my point of view, it's kind of like I would just take the deal and move on and be done with it. And then and then this was an odd comment he made. He goes. He goes, maybe you're right, Matt. I've always valued your opinion. <laughs> and I'm like, I have had no interaction with him ever. I think maybe like two or three year ago, years ago in the Facebook grind, Real Grinders, I maybe I replied to something he wrote. Or, but I've never spoken with him, never been friends. And he goes, oh, I, you know, I really value your opinion. Oh, I always have. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, very weird. Well, so anyway, I just kind of wanted to input that because – I, the video is too long to watch the whole thing, but I did kind of skim through, and you, there is some interesting other stuff in there. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, anyone can find it there in the thread on page 10, and you guys can skim through it too and see what you can find there. And I, I didn't have the patience to watch the whole thing either. I was skimming through it and then found that, that the 7.26, 7 yeah. hour 26 mark is where they're starting to 
make the accusations against him and saying what they're going to do with the trial. So I go, okay, this is interesting. And then I watch that. Then a the blue screens for a while. Then it goes to the sentence and the plea bargain, and that's that. So that, that's what I, I watched. I think I think around maybe the one hour, one hour twenty mark. I said it's funny. He's arguing with his lawyer and about what he was told, and the lawyer's just like. Judge, I want to make it clear. Like, like he's just totally does not like doesn't even want to talk to him. Yeah, you know, if I had to guess about this whole thing, I would say like everyone looks bad except for Terry King. Like, I feel bad for Terry King because it really looks oh, like yeah. she tried to help. But aside from Terry King, who, who uh, the only thing she was guilty of was uh, probably being too loyal. Uh, the the she she was a very good friend here, but I think the police screwed up. In fact, I know the police screwed up. I think the uh, the court. Acted too emotionally. It's, it's one thing for the defendant to act emotionally and act inappropriately, but the court has to adhere to certain uh, rules and standards, and I, I feel that they acted emotionally, and that was bad. I also feel that at least the first attorney he had, not the one we heard from in that video who seemed okay, but that, that other attorney they had, uh, from what was being described, it sounded like he didn't do that good of a job. So I, I think, uh, and, but I also think Raymond was probably a pain in the ass with that attorney, and, he, and Raymond was acting crazy through the whole thing. So I think a lot of different parties were uh, either incompetent or were acting strangely or acting in an unethical fashion. And a lot of this came together. And some of this, I think, was happening kind of in response to Raymond acting erratically, that a lot of these other parties didn't handle it well. It was a, a, The whole thing was weird. And uh, uh, But when it's, it's all said and done here, he pled guilty to a felony misdemeanor. And from seeing what was presented in court, uh, I think it's pretty unlikely that this is all a giant misunderstanding and he did nothing i would be shocked if that were to be true to to me it's just even if it's circumstantial evidence it just i don't know it just it points to like he did something really pervy and uh i mean i i don't know if he made her give her oral immoral sex but i mean he was definitely doing something or it was headed that way well yeah and and i like i have a feeling that uh you know, this girl was someone who uh, was a juvenile delinquent and was into a lot of bad things. So I, I don't think that Raymond like corrupted her like you would a typical thirteen-year-old. But the bottom line is, she was still thirteen years old, and it doesn't matter what is going on with her, or what she's already done, or what uh, or or how uh, street smart she already is because of uh, being involved in, in various criminal things. If she's thirteen years old and you're in your late forties. Uh, there's, there's no reason to be contacting them except you're a perv. That's right, it. right. Or, or and especially not doing anything with them, not meeting with them, not doing anything with them. Like, they, no matter what the situation with that girl, it's it's very reprehensible to to have anything to do with with a girl of that age, when especially in your late forties. Yeah. Hey, be, before I go here, and I don't know if you're allowed to discuss or not. Just quickly, a side thing about the case: um, Are any of the like um, defendants kind of gathering together to use the same attorney to kind of streamline and get all the facts in one kind of one area or one place? Um, I know some things. I can't say it. Uh, I can say that uh, as we stand right now, the only one with uh, Eric Benzamokin as their attorney is me of the defendants. And that's as far as what the rest of them are doing. Uh, that's going to be up to them. I've I've heard some things, but I can't discuss it, and uh, that's really all I can say here. Yeah, I mean, especially him naming ESPN. I mean, they got endless money. They could just like, I mean, it's just crazy. I don't know what this guy is trying to get out of it. Yeah, well, it will be interesting to see what uh, ESPN does. I will say ESPN has not contacted me 
in any way. I'll, I'll tell you guys that. They, they might. They, they, might. they, might. No, they, they really might, or they might contact Eric. Uh, I'm not saying they won't, but I'm just saying so far they have not. But uh, yeah. that's, that's uh, all I can say right now. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Okay, thank you, Matt. Okay, so that's some interesting uh, additional information from Matt. And we will move on. I guess uh, sometimes no good deed goes unpunished. It really does suck, and I'm just speaking in general right now, not necessarily about uh, Terry and Ray, but it really does suck when you are very loyal to a friend and you do favors for them, and then it backfires, and they betray you or they claim you harmed them in some way when you've done nothing but attempt to help them and attempt to stand up for them and attempt to act in their best interests. And this has happened to me before. This has happened to me before, where I have been loyal to friends and uh, I've become very sorry that I was. And I always make sure that I am not that guy who screws over friends, that I'm not that guy who betrays friends or uh, or makes people sorry that they were ever loyal to me. If someone treats me well, if someone is a good friend to me, I will be a good friend to them. And that's always been very important to me to behave that way. Because I think when someone sticks their neck out for you and someone shows they care about you, that you should care about them and you should treat them extra well in that case. And it is incredibly frustrating when you're on the uh, bad end of that. And I have felt it and uh, I can understand how Terry is feeling right now. I am still in real grinders, in case you're wondering. Uh, Raymond has talked about how he's trying to sell it. I, I can't imagine it has any value. It's, it's ruined going forward. The, the name is ruined. The brand is ruined. Uh, no one's going to want it. No one's going to want to continue with it. Terry has started her own group called Action Sports Poker, which is kind of the replacement for real grinders. I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll do as well as real grinders did at its peak. Part of the reason is that Raymond Davis, he was, despite everything else about him, he was good at running the Real Grinders Facebook group. He did a good job. He had a good personality for it. He uh, kept it moving. That's part of the reason the group got as big as it did. But I, I hope the, the new group does well, and I hope Terry gets something out of it, because she deserves it, it looks like. I met her in person. Uh, I got to know her over time, so... Uh, I went to meet her one time at the, at the South Point, and uh, we had lunch over there. It was nice meeting her. We even took a picture together. That was the only time I've met her in person. Yeah, I hope she lands on her feet from this whole thing. That's too bad. Okay, so uh, moving on here, get to the next uh, interesting subject that's going on here in poker, which uh, there's a few interesting stories this week. That was one of them. The next one is the Midway Poker Tour story, which actually would have been the top story had it not been for the Raymond Davis story, which, at least to us, is a pretty big story over here at Poker Fraud Alert. The Midway Poker Tour story is much better covered than the Raymond Davis matter. That one is being covered everywhere in poker, and the entire story was brought out on the internet by PLOL, a Poker Fraud Alert member. So... 
it would have probably come out by somebody else, but uh, PLOL did a very good write-up of the whole thing, which I'm going to read out here. He was unavailable to come on the show tonight, otherwise I would have had him on here to say it in his own words, but he's already said it in his own words on the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum. He made a simultaneous post on 2 Plus 2 and on Poker Fraud Alert about the whole matter. He's got some weird screen name on 2 Plus 2, like a bunch of letters, like, like he just banged on the keyboard. But uh, that's him. He's the one who made the post there, and he posted it on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum as PLOL. He has been on Poker Fraud Alert since the beginning in March of 2012. He was part of the uh, Donk Down community before that. I have met him in person, and uh, yeah, I've had a lot of interaction with him over the years. He is actually cheaper than I am, would you believe? He's, he's better at finding deals on things than I am which is, is hard to find. You're, you're not going to get that many people who get very, better value as a consumer than I do, but he does. He's really good at it, and he's not even Jewish. <laughs> I'm Jewish, but he's not. He's like an honorary Jew. He is 30 years old. He's well-respected in the uh, Poker Fraud Alert uh, community. He is also a poker player. He lives in the Chicago area. And uh, this is the post he made, and I'll tell you before I read everything that is uh, that he wrote here, I believe all of it. And I believed all of it before the follow-up from everybody else, which confirmed everything he was saying. I, the second I finished reading that post, I knew it was all true, because it's not like him to make up details or exaggerate. Like, he's he's usually pretty straightforward and honest about things. So he is not the type who's going to come out with a histrionic story that isn't true, or has exaggerations, or lies, or be framing people or uh, be playing victim when he's not. That's just not him. So I, I knew when I read this, this is exactly as it occurred, even though I wasn't there to see it myself. So this is what he wrote. Poker News and Bravo were advertising the Midway Poker Tour, which is supposed to be the inaugural event for what will be an ongoing series. It was advertised as an $1,100 tournament with a $100,000 guarantee. That is for the entire prize pool, not for first. They said $100 is being taken out for rake and 20 goes to the dealers with 980 going to the prize pool. The event is being held at the Sheridan Hotel in Elk Grove, Illinois, which is in the Chicago area. Even though it's listed as a quote charity event, I feel that's uh, I felt that's a pretty re- reasonable rake, so I decided to play it. So, quickly to review, $1,100 buy-in with $120 taken out, 20 for the dealers and 100 for rake. So, yeah, it's a charity event, but he's like, okay, that rake is fine. The reason he wrote that is because charity rake is often terrible. Like when you play for charity, sometimes the charity takes half the pool. He decided to show up because to him it was like a regular rake tournament. He doesn't care if it's charity or not. It was good value, and he decided to play it. I showed up on Saturday to register, and they tell me I need to enter my Poker Bros player ID. And if I don't have Poker Bros, I'll need to download the app and create an account, and they'll also send me some free money to load on my account. Uh, okay, already shading this with them, giving me their sales pitch for Poker Bros. I signed up for Poker Bros, then entered the tournament with $1,100 cash. So right there, that's a big red flag. Poker Bros is one of those apps you can download where you're playing uh, – it's real money poker. It's supposedly a, quote, free money app, but what you're really doing is loading the – free money chips through an agent and you're really playing for real money and the agent buys you in and cashes you out. This thing is full of scams. I would advise to stay away from poker pros. Some people like to push it and say it's great and the players there are terrible and it's a big money making opportunity. 
there's all kinds of things that happen. Even when people don't mean to scam on Poker Bros, they end up being scams. There's like it's just something you should stay away from. So he had not been playing on Poker Bros. He didn't have an account there. Like I don't, I don't have a Poker Bros account either. I have no interest in getting a Poker Bros account. So he didn't. He shows up there like, yeah, you got to get a Poker Bros account and you got to do it through us and give us your ID <laughs> if you want to play this thing. And he's like, what the hell? I've never heard of that before in my life. And this was not on the flyers for the event or anything. But he's like, okay, whatever. It doesn't cost me anything. So sure, I'll sign up, whatever. I'll go through the motions, but I'm already a little suspicious. Okay, going on. So he makes day two. So I make day two of the tournament and come back Sunday morning for day two. They had some fail with not having enough chips and delayed the start time for about 30 minutes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh too hard. This happens in the World Series of Poker sometimes where they screw up day two and there's chips issues or seats issues or you show up and your table just isn't there. So maybe I shouldn't laugh too hard. I start hearing people in the hallway talk about how they're going to pay people out in gold. I think it's obviously ridiculous that this wasn't mentioned anywhere, either when signing up or in the advertisements or on Poker News, which was reporting on the event. Poker News listed all the prizes as U.S. dollars. Before the tournament starts, the tournament director starts talking and says, apparently some people are just finding this out, but at, per Illinois charity gaming regulations, we can only pay out $1,600 in cash. Anything above that, we will have to give out in precious metals. Apparently they bought a bunch of precious metals for some guy and were planning on having him on site immediately to convert the precious metals to cash. But then the attorney general found out about this, that is the uh, Illinois attorney general, and said they absolutely cannot convert the precious metals on site as they would be illegal. I got the impression that the Attorney General was not happy with the event overall. They also informed us that they would give us the contact info for the precious metals guy, and we could contact him to sell the metals. But of course, I have to assume he's taking some some sort of commission, so now we're paying additional rake that wasn't advertised. I got some info from the staff working the event, and they informed me that the tournament director they hired for the event opted not to come back for day two because of this situation. And the owner and founder of the tour has not been on site for 24 hours. He's essentially disappeared. Uh-oh. So the tournament director, who seemed like a good guy, was like, you know what? I didn't expect any of this. This is all new to me, too. Screw it. You guys are shady. I'm out of here. And he quit. And the owner of the tour, the Midway Poker Tour, disappeared for the last 24 hours. That is not a good sign. He goes on to write, so I ended up busting pretty early and got what they call a $2,600 cash. They paid me out in $1,600 cash, which, of course, remember, he bought in for $1,100. So he basically made a $500 cash profit. They still owe him 1000 He said, they paid me in 20s for some reason and give me 28 one-ounce silver coins. <laughs> <laughs> which they tell me is worth $1,000. Can you imagine? You're getting paid in silver coins. They're like, okay, $2,600 cash, you get $1,600 cash, and, uh, oh, $1,000 worth of silver coins. Here you go. Here's your 28 coins. Enjoy. And you have no idea you're playing for silver coins. He comes home. They're like, hey, uh, so how do you do in the tournament? He's like, oh, uh, I 28 coined it. <laughs> Outrageous. Okay. He goes on to write, as I'm leaving the hotel, the guy who was in the cash outline in front of me is telling me how the coins are only worth 700. So we're now we're being shorted 30%. I looked up the price of the silver and it's $24 an ounce. I assume I can sell these coins for around $25 an ounce, which would be 
$700. Well, that's not good. So the guy in line was right. He writes, so they're stealing $300 from me, which isn't the biggest deal, but that means everybody is taking a big cut. First place is listed as 55 k of which over 53 k is going to be paid out in gold. If they undercut the price of that by 30%, they're ripping off the winner of the event by over 15 k which is true. If they chop off 30% of the prize pool, they're taking out an additional 65 k on top of what rake they took. They gave out the contact info for the precious metals dealer that they obtained the coins from. I reached out to him and he hasn't contacted me back, but it's only been a few hours. I can't imagine he'd pay 45% over the spot price. I also Googled his contact info. He's nowhere to be found on the internet, even though they supposedly bought 210000 worth of precious metals for this guy. That's already a problem that the precious metals guy also is not reachable and you can't even find his name by Googling him. The whole tournament is filled with shadiness and I would not recommend people play this event in the future. Had I known we were going to be paid out in silver and gold, I would not have entered the tournament to begin with. I imagine almost nobody would have. Yes, I still made money, and I only got shorted a few hundred, but that's not the issue here. They should have been upfront about how they're doing cash-outs. But if they did that, a lot of people would have not bothered to play. If the winner of the tournament gets shorted a five-figure amount, it may be wise for him to explore a class-action suit. I want to emphasize that I spoke with Chad Holloway, as of Poker News, and he relayed to me that Poker News was simply hired to report on the event and was not privy to the cash-out situation. I believe they were also blindsided by this and did not purposely deceive anybody. Well, I want to say that, too. First of all, Chad Holloway has been around for many years in poker. He's a good guy. He is trustworthy. He has a very good reputation. I like Chad very much. And I would also be shocked if he knew this or tried to deceive anyone. That's just not him, okay? And and by the way, guess who did the most reporting about this after it occurred and while it was occurring? Chad Holloway. So, like, Poker News didn't try to hide from this. Poker News embraced the controversy, even though they were unfortunately part of it by promoting this event, not realizing they were promoting uh, an event with a lot of uh, shady elements to it and, and where people got shorted. But they they didn't hide from it. They reported more on it than anybody, and Chad was the one doing it. So props to Chad for this. He handled it very well. This was not his fault whatsoever. And, in fact, he went above and beyond what you would have expected of him. So anyone listening to this, do not blame Poker News or Chad Holloway. I believe that uh, they are not guilty at all. And in fact, they they handled it well. People also started to wonder, maybe could these coins be fake? Could these be fake silver coins? Maybe that's why you can't find the precious metal dealer. Is it possible this is a worse scam than it appears to be? Well, it turns out they were not. From what I can tell and from what I've heard, people were able to sell these uh, coins and uh, they were not accused of being fake. It looks like these were real coins that were sold to people. Uh, The winners actually had to get help to haul out all the metal to their car because uh, it it was so heavy they couldn't bring it themselves. (laughs) Imagine you get paid out in so many uh, precious metals when you win a tournament you can't even take your own prize out to your car. You actually need physical help to bring it to your car. I'm not saying they needed help because they were afraid to be stolen. They needed physical help to lift it <laughs> for, for a 55K prize. Well, after PLOL spilled the beans, then uh, players started grumbling, and uh, they paused the tournament when everyone was panicking, like, what they're going to do? Well, um, 
a person named uh, Chris Hunichin, who's a big Huni, H-U-N-I, he uh, posted, I was told Brian Moon is a silent partner who is obviously a huge scammer at Scum of the Earth, Chris Unichin wrote. And this guy, Danny Bekovac, the founder of Midway Poker, is also a scammer. And interestingly enough, he added me on the whole thing. He put at Todd Wittellis, which is interesting because uh, I had not commented on this yet. What was I doing at this time? This was when uh, Chris Unichin uh, wrote this at uh, 1.50 p.m. Pacific Time on October 4th, uh, 2020. What was I doing on October 4th, uh, 2020 at 1.50 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time? I was sleeping. <laughs> I was sleeping because I was recovering for this damn show. I had just done this show the night before, very late, and uh, I was still sleeping after having stayed up very late with the show. So this occurred just after the last radio show, and I was getting all these messages from people, you know, check Poker Fraud Alert, check Twitter, there's a big scandal going on, and I'm just sleeping, and uh, I woke up a few hours into this. So by the time I got involved, uh, a lot had already come out about it. So I was not a big player in this story as far as exposing it. I'm just uh, relaying this all to you guys on the show here. Uh, it's funny that Chris Unichin put my name there because I had not even gotten involved. But he, he must have done that because he knows I like to report on s- scandals and scams like this, which which I do. So I don't blame him for putting my name there. So thank you for thinking of me, Chris Unichin. Anyway, PLOL posted a picture of the silver coins he received. You can see them in the thread on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum. A person who is on Twitter as PKRN Football, like poker and football, PKRN Football, wrote that uh, the owner of the tour, Dan, Dan Bekovac, is very shady. And uh, he said that uh, some things he did were uh, not playing he, the, in the Poker Bros group he ran, that Dan didn't pl- pay players after big wins on Poker Bros, overselling himself to big buy-in tournaments, vouching for bookies, and then claiming to have no responsibility after they didn't pay, things like that. Now, of course, these are accusations by this uh, guy on Twitter about uh, Dan Bekovac. But uh, as time passed, uh, more and more stories came out about this uh, Dan Bekovac guy to where it it looks like he's not uh, the best dude. Let's uh, put it that way. So uh, anyway, it did look like the the coins were real. But what did Dan Bekovac have to say about this? The, The whole thing about the metals dealer, by the way, turned out to not be as shady as it looked. Uh, the guy goes by two different names, and one of the names wasn't Googleable because it appears that wasn't his real name. He went by Andy Mettiller. That's M-E-T-T-I-L-L-E-R. This is the guy who sold the medals to them. But that is not his real name. I think his real name is the same thing without the R at the end. Andy Mattill, M-E-T-T-I-L-L-E. So uh, once you look him up as Andy Mattill, it does seem like he's a real person and uh, people knew him. So at least... At least it wasn't an anonymous metals dealer. But there's still the question about the markup. Why was this incredible markup on the metals? It's bad enough that people were playing for the precious metals when they didn't know they are playing for precious metals. They think they're playing for cash. And they're only told this after the tournament starts. It's very, very bad. But why were they shorted 30% value? And did this Andy Mattil or Matiller have anything to do with this? Well, finally, the Midway Poker Tour, a.k.a. Uh, Dan Bekovac, makes a statement. And uh, first he put out this really annoying to read statement where every single word was capitalized. I don't mean there were too many words capitalized. I mean, there was not a single word that began with lowercase letter in his statement. (laughs) 
He, he needs to go back to English class. Fortunately, uh, I think Chad Holloway retyped it because <laughs> he tweeted out a copy of this, which was uh, much better formatted to where it's easier to read. So here's the official statement from Dan Bekovac on this situation. I would like to start out by first apologizing to Jason Trezak, Jeremy Smith, Eric Anderson, and Chad Holloway, and anyone else I may have missed and try to set the record straight with everybody. I busted my ass trying to bring live poker back for the players. I spent upwards of 55 k of my own money getting this set up with the charity for kids' sake. That's the uh, charity involved. Now, let me stop right there. Whenever someone is accused of wrongdoing and they immediately lecture you on how much work they put into this and how they busted their ass or how they took such and such risk and what a great guy they are, when, when they try to make you feel bad because of how much hard work they put in or how much risk they took or blah, blah, whenever they start out with that, Immediately, you know the person's not honest. That's that's not how a normal person responds to accused wrongdoing. When you're accused of, of wrongdoing, you come back and say, I want to assure everything's okay. Let me tell you why this isn't what it appears to be. Or if you did do something wrong, you'll immediately apologize and then give a plan on how you're going to make it right. You you don't start off bragging about how much effort you put into this and you've been busting your ass. You, nobody wants to hear this from you. Nobody cares how much you've been busting your ass or what money you put out uh, to, to start this whole thing. This is not important. What's important is everybody got shorted by 30%. So let's, let's go on here. And they were misled about the way they're being paid. So he goes on to write this. We were informed on Saturday that we could not have a gold buyer on property to buy gold prizes. I suggested paying the 1600 maximum cash payout and giving a certificate to pick up the gold the next day as a coin dealer. If players were from out of town, to have it shipped to them securely the next day. This isn't the option that was chosen. I, I was, it was decided, he doesn't say who decided, it was decided that silver would be purchased by a supplier at $35 per ounce or $11 over value per ounce. This was not my decision. Players are still being paid out, just not as much as expected due to overpaying for precious metals. Okay, let me stop right here. Okay, I mean, I don't know if I believe this about how this wasn't his decision and this was forced on him and someone else uh, decided this for him, but whatever. This is not the player's problem. It does not matter if you guys overpaid for silver. It doesn't matter if you were blindsided by this or at the last minute you realized you couldn't have someone on site to buy it back and then you had to quickly buy a ton of silver really fast. Okay, then you take the loss. Then you take the loss. This is not the player's problem. You cannot short the players because you got a bad deal on silver. I spent a lot of money trying to bring this event to the players and will not receive one penny back. I lost a ton of money trying to put this event together and for everyone to have it blow up, especially in our faces. So here we are back with the I'm a victim thing, which is always a very bad look when people get screwed, that the guy screwing them is saying he's the victim. We had last-minute changes that were sprung on us that were completely out of our control. I truly wish it could have turned out better, but I did not and will not receive $1 in compensation for everything that was purchased, rent expenses, security, advertising, etc. So see, folks, feel bad for Den Bekovec because he lost money too. He may have lost more money than everybody, he's saying. So feel bad for him. He's not making money off of this. You may have gotten ripped off, and you may have been misled, but he's going to lose more than any of you. So therefore, he's the one who should be mad. (laughs) What an asshole. He goes on to write, So if you think this is what I intended, I left this morning to try to seek a better option that didn't pan out. Again, there was absolutely nothing I could have done differently, and I would like to personally apologize to the players that were affected by the payout differences. 
I've attached a screenshot of my suggestions to correct this issue last night, as well as the card of the Attorney General that would not allow the gold buyer on site. Okay, so this is probably, that's the end of a statement. This is probably something which is a mixture of truth and BS. There probably is some truth to this in that they probably wanted a gold buyer on site. The Attorney General wouldn't let them do it. So I believe that part. Um, I believe there's probably some last-minute stuff like this that uh, sprung on them. And it's even possible that somebody else came up with the idea, let's buy all the silver coins at the last minute. But uh, here's what I don't believe. First of all, I don't believe that he left to go find a better option. I mean, they'd already bought the silver, so what what was the better option? At at that point, what were they going to do? He left because he was afraid everyone was going to be pissed and yell at him. He, he did not want to be there when all the shit went down. That's why he left. And as far as uh, the whole situation with what the players should do, well, the tour owes him the mo- owes the players the money. That's it. If he made a bad deal to pay them in the medals, then he has to make up the difference. That's the bottom line. It is not the player's problem. You, you can't have a business screw you and then say, oh, well, we had stuff happen behind the scenes and we had to make a really bad last-minute purchase where we lost a lot of money. So sorry, you guys have to eat some of it. There's no such thing as that. You have to honor the prize pool as it's supposed to be. And that's both morally and I believe legally. I don't know Illinois law, but I would believe legally that he would be responsible here as well. I believe that those who got shorted, which is everybody – could have a successful civil case against him. He's probably uncollectible, but I bet, I bet they could have a civil case against him, especially because this was not promoted as a precious metals tour in the first place, and that uh, people wouldn't have played in the first place had they known this, even if they were paid the correct amount in medals. Because it's a pain in the ass. Most of these people don't want to collect precious metals, so what they're going to have to go do is then go sell it to somebody else and lose money on the commission, as PLOL was saying in the first place. So this is really bad all around. It was bad to not disclose the way they're paying people, and it was bad to short people because they got a bad deal on the silver they bought. Also, how do we know that that's the price they really paid? So they shorted everybody by 30% because they paid 30% too much to get the silver. Somehow they didn't eat it. Somehow the players had to eat it. Nor did they tell you everybody. They didn't say right away, hey, everybody, we're paying you only uh, 70% of what you cashed as far as the medals is concerned, because uh, we got a bad deal on it. No, they just paid it to him and said this is worth a $1,000, and then only when people figured it out for themselves uh, was this admitted to. That's another very shady thing. They were not disclosing right away that they're paying you too little in medals. But the bottom line is that uh, they paid them 30% less, claiming it's because they made a bad deal that they had to do at the last minute. Well, how do we know? How do we know they made a bad deal? Maybe they did not pay $35 an ounce for silver. Maybe they paid the right amount. Maybe they paid somewhere in between. Maybe they paid 28 an ounce, which is still not a good deal, but uh, not 35 and then just pocketed the rest. You, you never know. But even if he really paid 35 per ounce, then that's his own stupid decision. And if you don't agree with me, what if he paid uh, 3500 an ounce? Does that mean people get less than 1% of what they want? Like, it doesn't matter what deal he makes. It matters what you are supposed to get as the winner. So, as often occurs with scammers when they are publicly accused, when they do respond, often the first thing they do is they make the token payment with a promise to make more. I mean, I, I've had that before, too. I've had that where people owe me money. Usually where, like, someone borrows money from me and then they 
claim they can pay back a lot sooner than they can, and then I just don't get a payment, and then I say, where's my payment? And yeah, I think you ripped me off. And they go, oh, no, 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 here, here. I'm, I'm going to send you this much right now, and I'm going to send you this much every week. And then they send me the first payment. Then the second payment I get, but it's delayed, and then I never get a third payment. And it's very common. This is a very common thing that happens with people who are scammers or deadbeats or those who uh, do not keep their obligations financially, is they, they make the initial good faith payment and then disappear on you sometimes after the second payment, sometimes after the first. So this initial first payment thing happened, but unfortunately for PLL, not to him. So Dan posted this. Even after losing almost 58K, I'm still working to pay these guys out that were shorted. Sell your prizes, then show me the receipts. I will try my best to make everyone whole. Inbox me. Now, I don't understand why you have to sell your prizes. If, if he admits that they paid everybody 70% of the, of the silver that they were supposed to get, then why do you have to sell it? Why not just say, okay, I owe everybody 30% of the precious metals uh, portion of the prize that we didn't give you. So um, get in contact with me. I'll send you that money. It should be that simple. You shouldn't have to send receipts. But that aside, did he really do this? Well, it looks like he did for some. So he did this initial first payment to this some person named Sammy, S-A-M-I. And uh, he showed a screenshot of a text message, Sammy writing to him, dude, what the fuck is this shit? I got silver fucking coins you value at $35 and the same ones at $23 on the internet, bro. Short me $865, man. This is the most ghetto thing I've ever seen. I come and support your scumbag bullshit and get fucked. Should have known better. And 900 from today. So then he shows that he Apple paid Sammy $900. And then Sammy writes back, I fell asleep. Sorry, just read it. Thank you, cousin. Well, is this his cousin? I mean, that would explain why Sammy's the first to get paid. And then uh, Dan writes back, uh, fucking stupid ass shit that, and it cuts off. So uh, that's the, uh, oh, I see, the fucking stupid ass shit that that happened. And then Sammy writes back, yeah, I don't know all the details or whatever, but making it right with whoever is the right business mood. And sorry for snapping off. I know you're all stressed out and under pressure. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet that uh, Dan paid this Sammy, who may have been his cousin, back uh, $900 right away? So, He's showing that Sammy like just goes off on him, says, I come and support your scumbag bullshit and get fucked. This is the most ghetto thing I've ever seen. And instead of defending himself or fighting back with Sammy, just Dan just like snap sends him $900 in Apple Pay. And then Sammy wakes up. Oh, man, thanks for making it right. I'm so sorry for going off on you. What a happy ending. Well, that's the one person. That's the one person. What about everybody else? Sammy got made right, supposedly. But what about everybody else? By the way, there's a picture that people have been posting of Dan Bekovac, and just looking at the guy, he, he he doesn't look like someone who's trustworthy. He just has this look of someone you would never trust. He's got kind of like this faux hawk going on. He's got kind of like a scraggly beard. He's pointing at the camera like an asshole. Like The, the guy looks like a jerk. He looks like someone you couldn't trust. He looks like someone who would scam you. If, if, if he kind of has a look of a scammer, if there is such a thing. <laughs> It doesn't mean anything. There could be people who look like scammers that aren't, and there could be people who look super honest and aren't, of course. But it's funny that his look happens to match what he's accused of. It's not like when you see his picture, like, oh, wow, this looks like a nice guy. I'm surprised he did it. Like, he totally looks like someone who would do this. You'll, you'll see in the thread what he looks like. But going on here, Chad Holloway actually posted a picture 
on October 4th at uh, 3.45 p.m., he actually posted a picture of the payouts, and it's really interesting. You see all these papers for, like, each payout and big bags of uh, silver coins that are sitting on top of each paper, presumably for each place. And he wrote, I wasn't supposed to take this photo in the secured area, but this is what it looks like to be paid in precious metals. Really weird. You'll never see that again. So PLOL sent a Facebook message, and uh, he did not get paid last I heard. Now, I heard from PLOL, most of the lower finishers like him did get paid, and that uh, he was among the few who did not. Of the uh, people who who cashed, there were 31 people who cashed, and as you might guess, the ones at the bottom, the ones who were due the least amount of money, most of them got paid, and most of them at the top did not get paid. So they actually color-coded this. Uh, this was uh, Chad Holloway put this update on October 11th, and he color-coded them. Green means they got paid. Red means they haven't been paid. Orange means that he thinks they've gotten paid, but he hasn't gotten an answer from them, and blue means that he can't even contact them. He has no contact info for those people. So 31st place was Amit Kukreja, and he got he was supposed to get 2300 he's been made whole Dennis Brady and Chris Bone also of 2300 they're in that blue category where <clears throat> Chad has no way to reach them but he was told that they were paid Mike Siciliano uh 2300 also in 28th place uh, he's one in the yellow category who uh he believes got paid but hasn't gotten an answer from them yet 27th place, uh, Young Hoon Ko is also like Mike Siciliano, where uh, Chad hasn't heard back from them. Then uh, the next four people, all supposed to get $2,600, were made whole. Donnie Fan, Eric Salazar, Matt Lubowski, and uh, Praise Agwo, they all got the money that they were due, I guess $300. Then uh, PLOL, who was uh, 22nd place, who cashed for $2,600, he has not received any contact from Dan Bekovac and has not gotten paid. Kevin Berthelsen and Bryant Miller getting the same $2,600. They got paid. Kevin Maz, he did not get paid. Just like PLOL, he has not gotten any contact. Adam Thomas got paid, 3200 Jimmy Salabi is in the yellow category where uh, he hasn't said anything back to Chad, but uh, it was said that he was paid. Andy Rogowski, he was taken care of. Then there's this Sammy who probably got paid. He was the one who got that. Uh, he got 4120. He's the one he claimed he got shorted by 900. I assume he probably uh, did really get that 900. He was probably the first one paid, but uh, we don't know for sure because he didn't verify it to Chad. Then Jason Kapoor, 4120. Same thing as the Sammy. No response at all from uh, Dan Bekovac has not been paid. Antonio de la Cruz did get made right, same 4120. Then the 5290 uh, cash, which is 10th, 11th, and the 12th. Frank Lagoditch and Benjamin Craig have gotten nothing. Pat Steele supposedly was paid, but it hasn't been verified. Bob Pepe, 6680 in 9th place, has not been paid, other than the, uh, I'm talking about, when I say not been paid, I'm talking about the amount that they were shorted, not the entire 6680. So Bob Pepe wasn't made whole. Nicolot Ditrapani, eighty-one fifty, was made whole, but seventh, sixth, and fifth, Steve 
Federspiel for 96.80, Josiah Santos for 11,600, and Amanda Heidrich for 14,120. Nothing's been done for them. Rocco Pace somehow got made whole. His prize was 18,320. And surprise, surprise, the top three have gotten nothing so far. Renato Spahu, who won the 56K, Satoshi Tanaka, not to be confused with uh, Bitcoin master Satoshi Nakamura, and uh, Joseph Paris all walked away with 0.0. Besides the 1,600 and the 70% of precious metals that they should. So as far as what's been made right, they got 0.0. So... uh, this Renato Spahu is the one who got screwed the most. He's shorted about uh, 15K and no response here. So it's not a surprise that of the top 14, it looks like 10 of them were not made whole. Why Why would they do it this way? Well, if you think about it, what you're looking for if you're Dan Bekovac is to have a lot of people coming forward and say, yeah, he got me. Yeah, he, said, he made me, right? Yeah, yeah, he gave me my 30% back. Like he wants the people on the bottom – to come forward and say that they're being paid so it makes him look better and it makes him look like less of a scammer and makes him look like a great guy. He can make the people on the bottom hole for under $200 or under $300 each. The people who got $2,600, it's $300 that they're owed. So each of those people from 19th place to 31st place could be made whole for $300 or less each. So that's not a ton of money. Why wasn't PLL made whole? I think that uh, Dan is probably bitter at him for exposing this whole thing in the first place. Now, it probably would have been exposed no matter what, but uh, as it was going on, the one who really riled everyone up was PLOL, which he should have. He did the right thing, and I would have done the exact same thing in his shoes, but I, I have a feeling he is uh, being punished for this, and uh, he's gotten no response from Dan uh, Bekovac. It's not clear why Kevin Maz, who's the other uh, lower finisher who didn't get paid, why he has not been paid. Maybe it's because uh, Kevin Maz actually was a uh, WSOP main event final tableist and cashed $2.2 million. So maybe the uh, the way that uh, Dan is seeing it is that Maz doesn't need the money. So maybe when choosing who to pay and who not to pay, he's like, you know what, this Maz guy... He's got plenty. He's got millions F him. You know, he's not going to come out and say, hey, I was shorter for a few hundred, or if he does, no one's going to feel bad for him. That may have been the way Dan was thinking about it, which, of course, isn't fair. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You should be paid the right amount. But it's no coincidence the people on top are not getting it. It's clear that he's trying to scrape up the money as fast as he can to make people come forward and say they were made whole. But I don't know if he's really planning upon making everybody whole here, especially if he really did overpay by 30%. If he didn't really overpay by 30%, maybe he has the money, but I think the fact that uh, some time's passing here and people aren't getting made whole at the top, I think he probably does not have that money. So I I don't think this was a premeditated scam in that I I don't think that he meant to short everybody. I do think that they didn't mention the precious metals thing because they were afraid if they mentioned it, people wouldn't play. My guess is that Dan hoped to run the event pay everybody in precious metals of what they're really worth and have someone on site to buy them back at very close to full value. And while some people might have grumbled, it wouldn't have been a huge scandal. The fact that everybody got shorted and then nobody made it right and that they weren't honest about shorting them and they weren't honest about the fact that precious metals were going to be used to pay in the first place, that put this thing all together where it looked very bad. So uh, that's what I think happened. I don't think this was a, he was premeditating to steal 30% out of the pool. 
it's possible he was, but that, if, if I had to guess, I would say no. But that doesn't let him off for the whole thing. Now, who was this tournament director who quit in the middle? That was a tournament director named uh, Jeremy Smith. Jeremy Smith has a good reputation, and props to him for walking out on this when he saw what it was becoming. He said, I'm not going to be part of this. I thought I was the tournament director for a, a regular standard tournament, and when I see what's going on here, I see you misled players, I see that you are paying them out too little, this is nothing I want to be party to, I'm not going to make excuses for it, I'm gone. And he left. He left before day two. So good for him. Good for him for not continuing to be part of it. And people were saying that they liked Jeremy Smith, that they've always respected him as a tournament director, and this uh, speaks highly to his character, that he refused to go along with this. That he was blindsided too, and that he was not going to go along with uh, trying to calm everybody down. That he was just <laughs> he was just going to uh, abandon ship and say, you, you guy... And you may say, well, why didn't he stick around and try to make it right? Well, there's nothing Jeremy Smith could have done. It's not like Jeremy Smith ran off and said, okay, screw you players, I'm not helping. He couldn't help. He was just the tournament director. He was hired. He was hired help. Much like Poker News was hired help to report on it, Jeremy Smith was hired help to direct the tournament. And Jeremy Smith's like, you know what? I'm not even going to continue running this event because this whole thing's shady. You guys suck. I'm leaving. Uh, I'm not going to be party to this crime here. That's that's. Ba- I don't know what he said, but that's that's basically the message he gave by walking out on it. So good for him. Good for Jeremy Smith. So, what about the Poker Bros thing? Let's go back to the Poker Bros thing. Remember the Poker Bros sign up that was required? Well, Poker Bros realized that this does not make them look good. Poker Bros has enough problems. Do they really want this? That really has nothing to do with them dragging them down. This is just one person running a club on Poker Bros. This is not all the Poker Bros. So Dan pushed everybody to his Poker Bros club, and then uh, now Poker Bros is dragged into this. So here's the statement from Poker Bros. Poker Bros have been made aware of the payout controversy that impacted players at the Midway Poker Tour in Illinois this past weekend. As the details of what occurred at the event became known, it became clear that the event organizers also required players to download the Poker Bros app and register an account with the Midway Club as part of the registration process. Poker Bros would like it to be made clear that they did not have prior knowledge of this event, did not endorse it, and the use of the trademark name logo without prior orth- without prior authorization, and is strictly against the Poker Bros terms of service. As a result of this breach by the Midway Club, their club has been banned from the Poker Bros platform. Any players who are impacted by the closure of the Midway Club are encouraged to contact Poker Bros directly for support. Poker Bros customer service team can be contacted by care at pokerbros.net. Now, I don't know if they're going to take care of people that are on that club who are owed money, or I don't know what they're going to do here. They're saying anyone who's impacted. But basically, they shut down the whole Poker Bros room, and uh, I have my doubts as to whether Dan Bekovac is going to pay out the people who are owed through the Poker Bros room. Maybe Poker Bros will make it right. I don't know. But they are clearly running away from any association with the Midway Poker Tour and Dan Bekovac. And I don't believe they were just terminating it because it was a violation of their terms of service to require a registration. They distanced themselves because they see how damn shady this whole thing is and they don't want any part of it. They don't want any association with this guy. So they're basically, look, he did this on his own. He made you sign up for Poker Bros and, and his club as a requirement for registration on his own. We had no knowledge. We don't endorse this event. We had nothing to do with this event. 
F this guy. We're, we're cutting him off. We have nothing to do with him. We're separated from him. And uh, he did all this without our approval, which I believe. I believe all of that. If there's one problem. How is Poker Bros acting so sanctimonious here? Shouldn't they be cleaning their own house of scams first before worrying about Dan Bekovac and the Midway Poker Tour? I mean, seriously. I'm not saying they're wrong to disassociate from him, but why are they acting so outraged here when there are so many scams on their platform every day? And keep in mind, Poker Bros itself is not a scam. The owners of Poker Bros are not scamming people. It's that people run clubs on Poker Bros and then scam people through those clubs. There are many Poker Bros clubs run by scammers or incompetent people who are not intending to be scammers but run the club the wrong way and mismanage the money and can't pay anyone, and then they just run off. So Poker Bros has all kinds of problems. There's so many complaints about it, so many people bitching about scams occurring on Poker Bros. So for them to make the statement like uh, their pristine name was uh, abused here is a joke. I believe they have nothing to do with any of this. I want to repeat that. I understand why they disassociated from him, and that was the right move, but LOL at them acting like uh, this is something that outrages them. They should look more carefully into who runs clubs on their platform and not just give it to any person with a shady history who uh, wants to run a Poker Bros club, which I, I think you can pretty much, like almost anyone can sign up for one. I, I don't know the procedure, but I believe that pretty much anybody can start a Poker Bros club. There's really no vetting process that I know of, and if there is one, it's not very good. It's a funny Poker Bros saying, yeah, th- this is uh, this is something that we don't approve of. Here at Poker Bros, we are very, very much against uh, unethical behavior and scamming, as long as it doesn't occur on our platform. <laughs> A lot of bad things were written about Dan Bekovac, including someone who showed up on 2 Plus 2, and this is not verified, but they claim to be an ex of his. They claim that he has eight kids and that this person is currently pregnant uh, with, with, with his uh, ninth kid and that he abandoned them. I'm not going to read the whole thing to, because, to be honest, as much as I'd love to pile on the guy, I'm not sure this is all true. It's it's a, a pretty sensational thing, and unless this is verified, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to give it time on here. But uh, suffice to say there's a lot of stories about the guy, and uh, he has a bad reputation, and uh, I think I believe those stories. Maybe not this one from the supposed baby mama. But uh, a lot of the other less sensational stories, I believe, or mostly believe. And definitely the way he has handled this whole matter is very, very shady. And, and boy, does he have the, the stereotypical scammer response. Aside from the non-response, which many scammers do. Boy, does he have the stereotypical response of a scammer where they act outraged at you for calling them out. And where they're lecturing you about what, what a great person they are how much effort they put into it, how much time they put into it, how much of themselves they put into this, how much they did not gain from this. He re- he repeated so many times how much money he lost, how much time and money he lost here. So you should feel bad for him. He doesn't say you should feel bad for him directly, but that that's the implication. That's the strong implication here is, I lost money on this, I lost time on this, I was trying to bring you guys poker in the age of COVID, and I lost money, and now you're giving me a hard time, how dare you? 
I, I was just trying to bring poker. I was trying to bring you a poker tournament in 2020. That's all I was trying to do, and, and, and then some things didn't work out. Some things didn't work out, and, and, and now you're blaming me? You're, you're acting like, like I'm terrible? How dare you? I, I always hate the sanctimonious responses from people accused of wrongdoing. Just address what is being accused, and if you are admitting to it, tell people how you're going to make it right and stick to that plan, and that's it. You can explain what happened, but do not give us lectures about how little you made from it or how much you lost from it or how much time you put into it or how you're trying to bring poker back. Nobody cares, but that's always where they go because the whole thing is about uh, emotional manipulation. When he's making this right, uh, it's the only reason to possibly make this right is to save his reputation, what, what's left of it, it's not, not out of a moral obligation. And I know this because of the way the event was run. If you are running an event where state law prohibits you from awarding cash prizes over $1,600, which I believe to be true, I didn't look it up, but I believe he's telling the truth about that, then you must disclose it to everybody. You do not trick them into playing for precious metals. And not a single person said that they knew they were playing for precious metals. And if you're not going to pay them out the full amount in precious metals that they won, then you need to disclose this not only when they register, but if it happened after they register, then when they get paid out, you need to tell them right away, hey, we're only paying you 70%. You don't give them 70% of what they're supposed to be getting and tell them it's worth the full value and let them discover it for themselves. That is the sign of someone who is unethical. And he's admitting this happened. It's not even like they're saying such and such happened, and he's saying, no, 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 it happened this way. He's saying, yeah, this has happened. Yes, this really happened the way they're saying it did, but here's why. Here's why, and I suffered too, and uh, I took a loss too, and I did worse than everybody, so feel bad for me. And then he wants a, like an award for paying people out what he's supposed to pay them because he lost money on the whole thing. He wants you to give him credit for doing the right thing, for, for paying people out what they won. You don't get any medal for that. You don't get an award for that. When you run a poker tour and screw up and cost yourself money and lose money on the event, that is never an excuse to underpay people. You pay them in full, and then if you've lost money, lesson learned. Next time, be a better businessman. Next time, plan better. Next time, hire people to work for you or with you who know what they're doing. You being stupid or you being careless or you not knowing laws well enough which cause you to lose money or make bad deals, that's not the player's concern. And you don't get any props for not cheating people in order to make up for some of your losses. So I'll let you know if PLOL gets paid or if the people in the top get paid, but I have a feeling they won't. Or if they do, it'll be a long time. Uh, I have my doubts as to whether all uh, 31 people are, are going to eventually get made whole here. Because... If you look at it, we're talking about almost 30% of all the money that's supposed to be paid out. And he has to come up with that. It's more money than I think he has at the moment. And even if he rounds up that money, then I think he'd rather put it to use for other things. I think the only chance everybody gets paid is if he wants to do other projects in the near future and thinks that paying everyone will somewhat restore his name to where they'll trust him again. But he may feel that his reputation is so trashed that 
no one's going to trust him anymore, and he might as well just give up. That that may be the ultimate conclusion. I think I think he will only pay if he thinks that this will restore his rep and give him a shot at running things again. Speaking of running things, Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu are trying to get the terms hammered out for their November 1st heads-up grudge match. And it took a weird turn. I remember last week I said that they have a date of November 1st, which they do, and that they had hammered out uh, most of the terms, which they had, and it looked like it's really going to happen, and that they hadn't totally completed the process yet, but it looked very optimistic that uh, the November 1st date was going to stick and that this thing was really going to occur and that the major things they got out of the way and I was looking forward to it happening. Well, looks like that's not the case. (laughs) So they were very close to being in full agreement on the terms and then uh, all hell broke loose. So let's go back to October 2nd. Daniel Negreanu tweeted a couple notes for the WSOP.com heads-up match scheduled for November 1st, because they had agreed to play on WSOP.com Nevada. No HUDs, that's heads-up displays, so you can't use those during the match, which makes sense. No collecting hand histories to enter into a database. The software doesn't have either. I am open to either allowing or disallowing the use of any RTA, meaning real-time assistant, including charts during play. Now, that's very surprising that Daniel was open to allowing... uh, Real-time assistance. What's the point of this? What What is the point of allowing real-time assistance tools in this match between each other? Then it becomes more about uh, what who has the better tools, not who's the better player. We just discussed this whole thing with uh, that Fedora Cruz guy who was using real-time assistance to rocket through the stakes at GG Poker and just crush everybody. Because he had really good tools that advised him to make the right play when he wasn't that good of a player himself. So, like, why is Negreanu even thinking of allowing this? And even if you can say, well, they can both bring their tools, the, we don't want to see a battle of uh, Negreanu's tools versus Polk's tools. We want to see Negreanu versus Polk, who's, who's the better player, who's the better and luckier player in their heads-up match. We don't want to see uh, who has the better tools. So it's very strange that Negreanu would have even said that. And uh, charts, what he's talking about, are things like uh, where it's not – you're not getting uh, advice on what to do based upon uh, what's going on post-flop, but uh, that you can have these charts. And I don't mean like a physical chart in front of you. I mean like a software chart. Like a, like think of a giant spreadsheet or something that would take like three football fields to print that uh, tells you all the different ways that uh, you should play pre-flop based upon uh, your stack, your opponent's stack, and, and what they've done. That shouldn't be allowed either. That's not as bad as real-time assistance, but that's you still shouldn't have these charts in front of you. It's it's uh, it's crazy. So I don't know why Daniel was even open to this. Daniel didn't say, I demand to have this. Daniel didn't say he wants this. He said he's open to either allowing or disallowing both of those things, real-time assistance or charts. I would think the ground would say, I'm not open to any of this. That's what I would say. So... Uh, Upon Daniel saying this, there was no agreement. They hadn't said whether they're going to accept or not accept pre-flop charts or real-time assistance. Doug Polk claims that he immediately went into into study mode and that he started to prepare all of this. This is what Doug tweeted on October 7th. No HUDs or hand histories is fine. The site doesn't have either. 
Are you calling pre-flop ranges real-time assistance? I'd like to use my pre-flop ranges during the challenge. Obviously, post-flop should have no real-time situations being calculated to help people play. What? Doug, what, what are you talking about? Aren't you like the best heads-up, no-limit player in the world? Like, that's what I've heard. That's what everyone's saying. So so why do you need pre-flop charts? That's crazy. You're supposed to be the favorite here. Why, why should there be any charts? Why can't Doug Polk, the expert heads-up, no-limit player, play just with his own poker knowledge, with his own feel for the game? Why, why shouldn't he be playing that way? Why, why does he need charts? Why should either person use charts? I thought this match was supposed to be like a grudge match. Two guys who hate each other who are going to square off on the felt, and that's why everybody's interested in seeing it. Why, why are you guys using charts or real-time assistance? Like, why is this even being discussed? The, the, this should be an instant no. This is totally against the whole spirit of the match. So Doug is asking him on October 7th, uh, hey, you, you don't want uh, real-time assistance maybe, so if we were to say no real-time assistance, if I use pre-flop charts, which again are not physical charts, he means like on a computer, uh, would that be okay? It, I, I promise not to get any outside help from post-flop, but uh, you know, pre-flop, I'd really like my charts to tell me what to do. <laughs> I mean, is this insane? I, I've never seen Doug Polk act this irrationally. Like, whenever I watch Doug Polk video or see his tweets, even when I don't fully agree with him, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Doug Polk's a pretty rational guy. Yeah, his line of reasoning totally makes sense. Even when I disagree with him, which I usually agree with the guy, but sometimes I disagree with him, and at least when I disagree, I'll say, yeah, but I, at least I can see where he's coming from. Here, I have no idea where he's coming from. This, this is a crazy thing to be saying. So then Daniel, I guess, had a change of heart by this point, five days later on October 7th, and said, I do believe most every site prohibits the use of preflop charts during play, and I imagine that includes WSOP.com, but they can chime in if it's incorrect. Well, who cares? Like, who cares if WSOP.com allows it or not? It should just be, no, no, we're not having that. We're we're just going to play with our natural abilities. So uh, Daniel... And Doug kept going back and forth about this. And uh, as they did, Daniel realized he was being an idiot for even considering this, which is true. Like, he he came to his senses. And Daniel decided, I don't want any of this. So he said, you are a 6-to-1 favorite in the betting markets. Because people are betting on this. And at the time, I guess, you you had to you get 6-to-1 on Negranu if you bet on him, which is pretty big odds. So you're six to one favorite in the betting market, yet you feel the need to use a cheat sheet? I won't be using a cheat sheet. Why should you? You challenge me to a match. I agree to your game on your approved platform and your format. I agreed to the start date of November 1st, giving me just weeks to prepare after the World Series of Poker. I'm giving you a massive plus EV opportunity, but you need a cheat sheet too? I could just say let's play it all live. That way you couldn't use your cheat sheets. You act like you're getting screwed here when the table is set heavily in your favor across the board. You wouldn't even agree to 100K freeze-outs or any kind of format other than the one that benefits you the most. Okay, now, I will say that Daniel's being a little unfair here because Doug did offer to allow Daniel to pick games of his own to play part of the time. So we'll play heads-up no-limit part of the time, and we'll play uh, your mixed games that you're better at, Daniel, part of the time. And Daniel's like, uh, no, 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 we'll just stick to heads-up no-limit. And Doug's like, well, but I thought you're better at these games than me. 
And heads up, no limit. I'm a lot better, so wh- why don't we each play our strength half the time? No, 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 no. That's okay. I'll stay the underdog. That's because Daniel wanted to be the underdog. He didn't want any expectation that he wins. So this way, if he loses, he can just say, well, you know, this isn't my best game, and it's Doug Polk's best game, so of course I lost. And then if he wins, then it's like, oh, wow, look, Daniel even beat the best in the world. Wow, Daniel's great. So we talked about this before. So Daniel's thing about, uh, hey, you're the huge favorite here. Hey, this is your game, your format, blah, blah, blah. That's not totally fair. But other than that, Daniel makes a great point that why does Doug need this? Why is he demanding preflop charts? Daniel's like, let's just let's just play with our own heads. Let's not use any kind of assistance whatsoever. No charts, no real-time assistance, no HUDs, no nothing. We're going to play it as if it's live, except it's going to be online. No kind of assistance or charts or any guide of any kind. And Doug is balking at this. And Daniel's like scratching his head going, what the hell here? I thought I'm the underdog. Why, why is the favorite demanding to use these charts? And that's a very, very good point. Uh, Doug made the point that he spent a long time preparing because Daniel said originally on October 2nd that he's okay with it, so that Doug spent a lot of time and effort preparing for every possibility. So he made a bunch of charts. He made this. He made that. You know, So no matter what way Negreanu chooses, that uh, that he'll be ready, and that uh, now Daniel's acting like charts is, is off the table when he said that he's willing to discuss it, that now he's not even willing to discuss it, and that's unfair to him. Well, that's crap, because... Daniel never said, I agree to allow charts. He just said, I'm open to discussing allowing or disallowing. And then five days later, Daniel's like, you know what? I don't want it. So fine. It would be one thing if they had an agreement, charts are okay. And then sometime after Doug finished preparing with his charts, then Daniel's like, "Um, actually, uh, no charts. We're, We're taking that back. Now, there could still be an argument for that, that Daniel kind of came to his senses and realized that the charts thing is stupid and is against the whole spirit of this match. And... I would even think it's kind of reasonable at that point to abandon the charts, even if Doug wasted some time making them. But at least Doug could counter that they already had an agreement and that Daniel's changing it. But that's not what happened here, and Doug's not claiming that's what happened. They did not have an agreement about the charts. Either way. All Daniel says is, I'm open to discussing it, and then five days later, he was no longer open to discussing it. Well, fine. You know what? Daniel's right. They should not have these charts. And as you might imagine... Doug was getting killed on Twitter by the majority of people responding to this, which is very different than what you usually see when the two of them go at it. Doug is a much better person at social media than Daniel. Doug is very, very good at uh, saying or writing the right thing on social media. Doug is very good at trolling. Doug also has uh, help behind the scenes with another person who's uh, even better at social media and trolling, and that's uh, seriously serious. So uh, whenever they get in these battles, these public uh, Twitter battles with Doug versus Daniel, uh, Doug almost always comes out on top where far more people agree with Doug, and Daniel walks away from the whole thing looking worse. Daniel's reputation has declined a lot over the past five years, largely in part thanks to Doug, and also largely in part thanks to stupid things that Daniel has written or said himself. Daniel's kind of been his own worst enemy, and then he has an actual worst enemy in Doug Polk. So it's kind of both factors of what uh, brought Daniel's reputation down. But whenever the two of them went back and forth on Twitter, usually the result was Doug ended up looking right. Doug looked reasonable. Doug looked like uh, he was the one getting the better of Daniel. Doug looked like he was the one who made more sense. Not here. 
Not here. This is the first time I've seen in my memory that Doug is getting slammed in the responses. Yeah, there's a few Doug Polk fanboys and Negreanu haters who are bashing Negreanu here, but a lot of people ranging from just recreational nobodies all the way up through name poker pros who are attacking Doug about this because they just can't understand what is with the obsession of charts. And I think what's pissing everybody off is the fact that Doug has been long acknowledged to be the best at Heads Up No Limit. You've, you've asked anybody over the last few years, maybe even like last five years or so, who is the best Heads Up No Limit player in poker? And someone who's been paying attention will usually say Doug Polk. Maybe like a, a casual fan may say someone like Phil Ivey, but you ask someone who's been watching poker and they'll say, yeah, I think it's Doug Polk. We, we know he's really, really good at Heads Up No Limit. I can't think of anybody that I would think would be a favorite against Doug Polk in Heads Up No Limit. And credit to Doug for having that type of success and having that kind of respect in the poker community for his skill in Heads Up No Limit. Okay? Great. Great job, Doug. But when you have that uh, that reputation, when you have those accolades, when people think that of you, when you come forward and say, I'm not going to play someone who is perceived to be worse than me unless I have some sort of program assisting me, then that makes you look really bad. That makes you look like that you're a phony. That makes people start to question, well, maybe you weren't that great after all. Maybe you've, you've been great because of your charts and your, your assistant programs you've been using. And even if that's not true, even if Doug truly is the very best heads up and no limit player, it looks like somebody who is being petty and it looks like somebody who is so obsessed with his edge that he doesn't want to give up his security blanket even against a lesser player. Like, Imagine if I, I challenged uh, one of Benjamin's friends, a 10-year-old friend, to play me one-on-one in basketball. And uh, let's say the kid agrees. And obviously the kid would be a big underdog to me in basketball. And before we play, I go, oh, um, one other thing. Um, I'd like to take performance-enhancing drugs before we play. And the kid would say, what? You're like a foot and a half taller than me. Why, why would I allow you to take performance-enhancing drugs? Like, you have enough of an edge as it is. Why, why would you do that? And I'm like, no, no, I want to. I, I always do that when I play basketball. I'm, I, I want to do that against you too. Imagine if, if I were saying that, people would say, this guy's insane. This guy is playing someone much worse than him, and he's demanding an additional edge? Why can't he just play as himself? What the hell? Well, that's basically what's happening here. Doug Polk in the betting markers, was a 6-1 to one favorite and is saying, I need an outside edge to help me play you. And Doug's, and Daniel's like, no, I don't want the outside edge. And if, if anything, it makes sense for Daniel to have the charts. If anything, the worst of the two players would be the one who would benefit when certain decisions could be taken out of it. Because the more decisions that get taken out of it, the more it becomes a situation of luck. Let me give you a very simple example for those of you that may not understand. I know probably most of you do, but not everybody who listens to this show is that knowledgeable regarding poker. So let me quickly give you an example. If you are a fish and you play the very best player in the world heads up, but if you have an agreement with that player heads up that every hand you're all, you're both going to go all in blind preflop, then that player 
no longer has an edge over you. Even if you're the worst player in the world and they're the best player in the world, if you both agree to go all in pre-flop every single time and stick to that agreement, then the outcome of your match is going to be purely based upon luck. So the more that is uh, going to be similar or identical between the two players, then the more luck starts to become a factor. Where otherwise, if there wasn't that agreement, the worst player in the world would get absolutely crushed by the best player in the world because then it becomes much more skill-based than luck-based. There will still be some luck, but there will be such a big skill difference that it's very unlikely that the worst player would beat the best player. So here, where neither player is bad, obviously, we have two great players in Daniel Negreanu and Doug Polk, but where one is thought to be a lot better in that format than the other, that if you allow both of them to use pre-flop charts then pre-flop they're going to play very similar, and then it, it comes down to post-flop. And uh, for Daniel, that would be an advantage, because any pre-flop advantage that Doug would have is gone now, because they're both using charts. So for the underdog, it's actually better to take decisions out of the game. The only way it wouldn't be is if Daniel somehow thought he was better pre-flop than Doug was, and that Doug was better post-flop. But I don't think Daniel believes that. So it's very weird. I think that Doug is so used to playing with these preflop charts online that it, it feels weird to him to not have them. I think he's afraid it'll throw off his game, which is strange because I, I know he's played live. I mean, the guy won a bracelet live at the at the one drop. So it's not like Doug is only an online player. He's been more of an online player than a live player, but he's he's not only an online player. So why is Doug demanding these charts? It's very weird. And he's sticking to this demand, and he's not backing down, and it's really making Doug look bad. And I see people responding saying, you know what? I used to like you way better than Daniel. I didn't like Daniel, or you convinced me not to like Daniel. You, you, you showed me what a jerk Daniel is. But I'll, after reading this whole thing, I'm starting to think better of Daniel and worse of you. I, I watched people saying this, and these are not people who really had uh, any issue with Doug Polk beforehand. In fact, some of these people like Doug before this. He's, he's really losing a lot of fans doing this, and it's weird. Now, Doug has appeared to concede a few times, but then it seems like he goes back. So, for example, on October 9th, he wrote, uh, How about we make a deal? No charts allowed of any kind. And number two, we show all of our whole cards to the fans for the entire challenge. We both give a little, the fans win. Retweet if you want to see this. Well, yeah, he got uh, a lot of people retweeting it and favoriting it. And what he was trying to do was pressure Negranu to show the whole cards because Negranu has not wanted the whole card shown, which is bad for the fans. And I will say that Negranu's a little unreasonable here because he's saying, oh, Doug will study. Doug will take the, the whole cards he sees and, uh, He'll be able to adjust his play against me. But he, he can do the same thing to Doug. So that's that's really not uh, a good thing for Daniel to be saying that he won't do because it really ruins the watchability of this match. And the whole point of this match, even though it's for a lot of money, is for everyone to watch and get into it. So if you're going to do this for the public, to not show whole cards is pretty bad. Uh, so Doug was trying to propose something that probably he thought Daniel wouldn't accept. And he's like, okay, we won't do charts, but then you have to allow the uh, whole cards to be shown. And and Daniel didn't want that, so then they started going back and forth, and Daniel's like, okay, I'll show part of the whole cards, but not the whole time. Uh, the, the whole thing just kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and they they were never coming to any concrete agreement. Even when it looked close to being done, then something would happen again that would make it to where it wasn't done anymore. 
But uh, there's a, a second side controversy with this. Apparently, Matt Berkey is being attacked here for some reason. I don't understand. Now, maybe he, he probably was uh, taking Negreanu's side, is my guess. I, I wasn't really watching that closely. But uh, Doug Polk put out a needle against Matt Berkey today. It has come to my attention that Matt Berkey plays high stakes on WSOP.com. My schedule just opened up. <laughs> he's trying to say that uh, he's going to start paying attention to WSOP.com because Matt Berkey's playing high stakes there, like implying that Matt Berkey is a fish, which is a, a pretty bold statement about someone who is thought to be a skilled poker pro and, in fact, who runs a pretty well-known training site and training program called Solve for Why. Matt Berkey, by the way, is also being sued by Mike Possel, like I am, in the same lawsuit. So... Doug Polk, I'm not sure what brought this on, but he's uh, mocking Matt Berkey that he's going to start paying more attention to WSOP.com to find Matt Berkey because he's hearing that he plays a lot of high stakes on there. So some guy who's under the Poker Sean, that is his name on Twitter, the Poker Sean, responded back to Doug saying, doing a lot of shit talking for a guy whining about not being able to play with charts. So then Doug takes the bait and responds back, the Poker Sean? Are you even in top 10 in the power rankings? What's he talking about here? He, are you in the top 10 in the power, power ranking? What, what power ranking? I don't know what he's talking about, but he's saying that you can't comment on this if you're not one of the top players? Well, Kelly Minkin. Yes, that Kelly Minkin. She decided to comment here. And she responded back when Doug Polk was mocking the poker Sean in response to what Sean said to his mocking of Matt Berkey. Kelly Minkin wrote back to Doug Polk, I can only speculate how small your dick must be. Wow. Whoa, 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 whoa. From Kelly Minkin. I've never seen her write anything like that. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Kelly Minkin, the attorney who works with Mac Verstandig, the World Series of Poker uh, main event deep run finisher uh, two years in a row in 18 and 19. A lot further in 18 than 19, but uh, got a lot of people's attention. Someone who has gotten a lot of props for her tournament poker play in recent years. Someone who's also gotten some notice because she's female and pretty she uh is is now talking about doug polk's dick being small wow really she doesn't come out and attack people on twitter i've never seen this before the real kelly minkin when i say real i, I this is really her as far as i know but i mean the one in in person the one in real life she's very quiet and shy and if i had anything bad to say about kelly minkin i wouldn't say bad but anything critical to say about kelly minkin it's that I feel she overcompensates for the fact that she's kind of uh, shy and introverted by adopting this stupid persona on Twitter where she kind of acts like she's uh, uh, from the street. She doesn't say it, but she, she calls herself the illest on Twitter, and she she tried to do a rap at the beginning of the World Series of Poker when she announced Shuffle Up and Deal. Like It's, it's very cringeworthy. And, and she doesn't need to do this. That's what's so dumb. Like she has a lot going for her. She's she's pretty. She apparently had a like a tough double major 
in college and she, she's an attorney and uh, she's successful in poker. Like, like she doesn't need to do this whole like I'm a rapper. I'm, I'm the illest. I'm I don't know what the hell she's doing here. Like she's she's taking on a persona that isn't her and it's totally unnecessary. Like her real persona is totally fine and a lot of people respect and like it. So like why why pretend to be something you're not? She's kind of like the female version of Pretty Fly for a white guy. Except unlike the guy in that video and the, the subject of that song, she doesn't need to be. That's what's so weird about it. It's like a minor nitpick. Like I, she can do what she wants with her personality. I don't care. But I, that's, that's like the only thing I've noticed about her that I, I find kind of off-putting. But anyway, I've never seen her attack people. Like she's, she's not that type of person. She's not one of those girls that comes out on Twitter and just like bashes people and attacks people and makes fun of people. This is the first time I've seen her like get confrontational with someone out of nowhere. Now, maybe she's friends with Matt Berkey. I, I could only assume that. Maybe she's friends with that Poker Sean guy, but I'm guessing it's probably Berkey she's friends with. And wow, that is a, a pretty bold statement by Kelly Minkin. What the heck? That is really weird. Did not expect that from her. Well, of course, Doug responded by saying, so apparently if you make fun of people on Twitter, you were a loser in high school and have a tiny dick. Couldn't be farther from the truth. High school was great. So, of course, he's he's making a self-effacing joke that he wasn't unpopular in high school, but uh, he doesn't address his small dick. So he's trying to make a joke like he actually has a small dick and it's not directly admitting it. She, he said, uh, to be honest, her tweeting that and getting a Berkey retweet is already pathetic enough. It's kind of weird. <laughs> That's all I can say. Weird and unexpected. And a lot of people were responding like, what? What is going on here? What is happening? Someone did like, uh, the Jay Farber did the gif of Stephen Colbert spitting out his coffee. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I felt when I saw this. Like, what the heck? You've got, you've got, Kelly Minkin saying you have a small dick? And I, as far as I know, she hasn't actually seen his... In fact, she said she hasn't seen his dick. She said that uh, she can only imagine he has a small dick. What a weird comment. This story gets weirder and weirder. I'm focusing on the Minkin thing because it's just so out of character. It's not even so much like that a female said this. Like, uh, There's a lot of females in poker. If, if they wrote this, I would probably mention it here, but I wouldn't be shocked. There'd be a lot of... There's a lot of kind of like crass females on poker Twitter that would totally say something like this, but... Kelly Minkin's not one of them. She's like, usually not crass and doesn't attack people. It's getting very emotional back and forth here. But see, this was the type of stuff that was happening to Negreanu before. This is, this is exactly where Negreanu got himself into trouble in the past, where he would fight back and forth with prominent people in poker, many of whom were not known to have beefs with other people. Like, for example, when he was uh, recently going back and forth with Jamie Kerstetter, like ones like that, where it's just it just seems like a lot of people have complaints about Negranu, have beefs with Negranu, including ones who are usually not involved in a lot of drama, and that has dragged down Negranu's reputation when he does that. But now we have Doug Polk here, who is getting bashed by various people who are names in poker that usually are not critical of him or bashing him, and we have people joining in like. Uh, <laughs> like Kelly Minkin, who, who normally haven't said anything about Doug in the past from what I've seen. The weird thing is how Doug is sticking to this. I mean, it's one thing if Doug were to say, oh, I'd prefer to have charts, and Daniel's like, nope, nope, no charts, no charts, and Doug's like, okay, no problem. It's the fact that he's sticking to this and pushing for this so hard is, is bizarre. I just don't get it. This is the first time I've really seen Doug act irrationally, and also... 
what is he thinking as far as what this will mean if he wins and they do use charts? I would think that Doug would be happy enough that he just plays Negranu, beats him for a lot of money, and has the bragging rights that he beat Negranu. Yeah, it's his game, but he offered Negranu to play other games and Negranu refused. So he's pretty much all covered. So he'd win money from Negranu. He would have the bragging rights of having beaten Negranu, who is pretty much a poker enemy of his. Shouldn't that be enough? Like, uh, once you have charts into it, then people say, well, Doug, you only won because you're using your charts. If you didn't use your charts, you probably would have lost. He, he would have that as an asterisk on their match, even if it were agreed to on both sides. So, and same with if, if Daniel won with the charts being allowed. People say, well, okay, Daniel, if, if both of you didn't play with charts, even though it was Doug's idea, you would have gotten crushed. So why not just each play with what skill you have in your head? That's totally against the spirit of the match. I mean, I can't even imagine why this was considered. It's weird when smart people uh, get involved in a dumb argument over a dumb concept. I would have thought both of them were smart enough and sensible enough to say, of course we're not going to have charts or real-time assistance as part of this. They should try to get the online match to be mimicking a live match as much as they can. They're only not doing a live match because of COVID and probably because it's easier. Like, why should there be any kind of assistance involved? That's insane. So that's where it stands at the moment. I will let you know next week if there's more news on this and what they finally agreed to. And if Kelly Minkin tells anyone else they have a small dick. (laughs) Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Okay, let's move on. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. I got some texts here. Druff, this is Mumbles. I've got some bad insomnia. Can you sing a song that will help me get to sleep? Thanks in advance. I have to turn that one down. From the 916, Druff, thank you for talking about friendships and being loyal and standing up behind your friends. Yeah, well, that's how I feel. From the 702, the wind is also doing metal detector wands. The D and Golden Gate have a walkthrough metal detector, and you must show a valid ID to enter no matter what your age is. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to the Cosmos segment. If you want to text anything else, please text me at uh, 775-372-8355 during the show. Notice I've had no co-host. The closest thing I've had to it was a call from Matt the Rat. Doing this all on my own. It's not easy. It is not easy. Let's move on here to our next story. Dan Bilzerian and Jean-Robert Balland and Bill Perkins are currently in a battle, in a feud, over a high-stakes private game that now, I guess, uh, there's some accusations and a lot of bad blood between them. And I'm just going by what they're all saying. I will tell you as we begin this whole thing that I'm going by uh, things they're saying to each other. I do not know the truth about any of this because I have never been part of these games and I do not know any of these guys very well. Of everybody involved, the one I know the best is Jean-Robert Balland, and I still don't know him that well. He knows who I am. I know who he is. We've had some interaction in the past, more of it uh, a long time ago than any time recently. 
the most time I've spent with John Robert was at, uh, where was it? Uh, I think it was in St. Kitts in 2006. We hung out some, like just me and him. But, uh, since then, you know, I'll see him around and we'll say hello, but we've never been friends. And the other two, I barely know. Dan Bilzerian and, uh, Bill Perkins. Here's something that John Robert tweeted on October 4th. Losing $400,000 plus this week, only 80 in that game, and having my friend Dan Bilzerian turn on me, rough week. Funny thing is, I think those guys were only showing off to impress him. I'm super bummed right now and would still vouch for that game. Hashtag broke and bummed. Okay, so a lot to unpack here. Let me explain what's going on. So, uh... What's happening here is that, uh, first of all, there's this private game that John Robert is talking about, and he's saying that uh, Dan Bilzerian, who's been long friends with, Dan Bilzerian has turned on him and made accusations about that particular game, which we'll get to shortly. John Robert is saying that uh, it's been a bad week for him, the one ending October 4th, that he lost over 400000 and Dan Bilzerian turned on him, and that... He actually still thinks that game is totally fine, that there's no cheating. So right now that uh, everything's bad for him, he's, quote, broke and bummed. Jean Robert Belland, his name on Twitter is Broke Living JRB. As long as I've known him, his whole gimmick is I'm always broke. In fact, uh, when I first met him in person, he kept telling me that he's broke and living like a millionaire. I witnessed Jean Robert Belland actually work his magic. And I, I guess, in a way, what he was saying was true. Uh, I've told this story before, but for those of you that hadn't heard it, of the 2006 party poker cruise, Jean Rovere flew from L.A. to Fort Lauderdale on a flight that many poker players in the L.A. area were taking, including me. Uh, I actually lived in Vegas at the time, but I went to L.A. and flew from there with my girlfriend, Miri, at the time. So we were on that same flight with all the poker players. I didn't even know it was like going to be the poker flight, but it was. Like there were tons of poker players in that flight. So John Robert was one of them, except John Robert did not have any ticket to get on the cruise. He flew there believing he could talk his way onto the cruise. And the way he did that was while everybody was waiting, because the flight landed at 7 a.m. and you couldn't board the ship till 11. For those four hours in between, and everyone's kind of just sitting there, he was approaching various people he knew in poker and asking to be their paper their paper roommate that is basically to get him on the ship anyone who was staying by themselves to claim that he was the second guy in the room because you can get on for very little money as the second person and that uh he would uh, not spend any real time in their room that he they would just be on paper but that he would never actually go in the room so he convinced uh Fabrice Solier to let him be the paper roommate and Fabrice was not happy about this he just very reluctantly did and then he separately talked Devin Miller into allowing him to actually crash in his room. Devin already had a roommate, but he had like a bigger room. So like a John Robert is like, can I sleep on the couch? And he, he, he talked him into that. So he talked his way onto the ship with a paper roommate and a real roommate. Then once he was there, he talked people into putting him in the 10K limit hold'em event, which he did not cash, and talked him into talked them into putting him into various cash games that were running on board at high stakes. And on top of all that, 
he found like the only single female on the entire ship because it was a poker cruise and pretty much uh, all the females there were uh, there with boyfriends. Even the female poker players came with boyfriends. It was just like zero female uh, females who were single on the whole ship. He found some like 18-year-old former female bodybuilder who was with her dad and he romanced her on the ship and had sex with her. Like he, he did everything. This is the guy who flew there with nothing. I was very impressed. He also won a bunch of money against Devin Miller and Pac-Man. They actually played Pac-Man for high stakes. It was an insane cruise. Anyway, John Robert always says he's broke, whether he actually is broke, which does happen sometimes, or whether he has a ton of money. He always pretends he's broke. I think part of the reason he pretends he's broke is, number one, that's kind of a gimmick he has, and number two, that if he owes anyone any money that they don't pressure him to pay, or they allow him to pay at a much slower rate. And number three, it allows him to uh, to get staked and backed in things more easily without people saying, hey, well, why don't you put up your money? So uh, he's always been the broke guy who's always in action. And he, he always likes to say that. He always likes to flaunt how much money he's losing. You know the poker pros who lose and who always claim they're they're crushing it? He's the opposite. He's one of those guys who claims they're always losing even when they're not. Even when he's running up big money, he claims he's losing. I know a few others like that who always like to throw in your face how much they're losing, but they rarely say they win, and yet they're actually winning players. Now, I don't know if Jean Robert is a winner or loser. I know he's he's a very good schmoozer. He's very good at uh, talking people into doing what he wants. But as far as his poker play, I don't know if he actually wins or loses. I know he talked his way into these private games. He's, uh, he plays them at uh, the Aria and in those infamous private games there. He plays these uh, private games that actually take place off casino property, like the ones that are being discussed here. And, of course, the competition is easier at those high-stakes private games than it is in the public games, where the high-stakes players tend to be a collection of the best players in poker. So he is able to talk himself into those, and that makes it a lot easier to win money in poker. So, yeah, he may be a winner in these cash games. I wouldn't be surprised. And I, I don't even know if I believe he lost 400k that week, because that's that's his whole gimmick. But let's let's get back to what's going on here. And by the way, I get along with uh, Jean Robert. We've never had an issue. The only time I kind of got pissed at him is when I was playing blackjack, and uh, he was drunk, and he goes, "Oh man, dandruff! I got I got to sit next to dandruff. I, hey, dandruff! So, uh, you know, what's the count right now? <laughs> what a dumbass! He he wasn't even doing this to be uh, obnoxious. He was just drunk. And Eric Lindgren did a very similar thing to me, also when he was drunk, just like sat down next to me and said, "Oh, I, I got to bet with dandruff's betting." Of course, when John Robert did it, this is after he'd been on Survivor, and after John Robert left, some guy at the table who wasn't in poker or anything. He goes, you know what? That guy who sit down next, sat down next to you and started talking to you, he really reminds me of that John Robert guy in Survivor. <laughs> he didn't know it was actually John Robert from Survivor. So anyway, uh, I don't mind John Robert. I, I understand his quirks and his gimmicks. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't loan him money and I wouldn't believe all his stories. But you know, we've always gotten along okay. As I said, we've never been close friends, but we've always gotten along. And uh, one time, really weirdly, he came up to me at Bellagio while I'm playing 100-200 Limit Hold'em and says he wants to buy a piece of me in the game. And I'm like, what? I, I don't sell pieces in my cash games. Oh, I want to buy a piece of you. I'm like, I really don't want to. Well, he kept begging to buy a piece of me, 
and and just like handed me thousands of dollars there right up front that he's buying a piece of me of the game and and then he just walked off and i if if i wanted to rip him off i totally could have because uh by the time i quit none of the same people were there that were there when when he bought the piece of me so i could have totally bs'd and claimed i i lost or broke even but i was honest about it and uh then to pay him the share i owed him was a pain in the ass like i was trying to track him down to do it i had his phone number and i wasn't reaching him and then Finally, like he couldn't meet with me. Finally, he told me to go bring it to some guy that was a friend of his that was playing at Bellagio at the time. So I brought it to the person that was that. But uh, I think he got like two thousand bucks out of the whole thing. Anyway, uh, let's go on here. I know I got all the tangents about John Robert. So here's a screenshot of a text message that John Robert posted that uh, was supposedly him communicating with Dan Bilzerian. So Dan wrote to him, that's what, that's how stupid you are. You got two guys telling you the exact same thing. I didn't lose. I'm not trying to bitch about paying. I have no dog in this fight. So he's talking about the game. Dan Bilzerian is trying to say that the game they were playing in was, there was some cheating in there. And that Dan's saying, hey, I didn't lose in this game. So I'm not trying to complain about that. But uh, you have two guys telling you the same thing that it's happening and you're denying it. That, that's how stupid you are. So then Jean Robert wrote back to him, this dude from India said you demanded everyone send a CV to be able to play cards with you and that you selected all the worst players. Said you won 500K real quick. I'm not sure what the CV is, but uh, then Dan says back, only won like 287K, but it was only 5,100. You're such a fucking sack of shit for bringing me to that game. And Jean Robert says, no need to be disrespectful. I thought you'd enjoy and Dan Bilzerian says, you're a cheat. And John Robert says back, you could never believe that. Very not cool for you to say. And then Bilzerian writes, want to bet your roles versus mine I take a lie detector test? You fat idiot. <laughs> this is uh, a screenshot being posted by John Robert of what uh, Dan Bilzerian is saying to him. So it's interestingly enough, uh, John Robert kind of exposing that Dan Bilzerian is accusing him of bringing him to a, to a cheat game. Bill Perkins then joined into the attack on John Robert and uh, tweeted this. This is on October 4th also, 9.14 p.m. Pacific time. Perkins tweeted, you're the host of a poker game. You get paid time and rake, and you get you also play in the game. You also have 50% of two or more players in the sometimes 7-8-9 player game. As the host, you should make non-staked, non-staked players aware of the economics. And then he put up a voting question, yes, no. And then show results as if, like, if you don't want to vote, you just want to see the results of the poll. In this poll, 74.1% said yes, 10.5% said no, and 15.4% just wanted to see the results. Well, it's kind of a loaded question, so, like, ignore the poll. But he was talking about John Robert. He did not mention him, but he was definitely appearing to be talking about John Robert, especially on the same day this all came out. And he's saying that John Robert had 50% of two or more players in the game and that uh, he doesn't make people aware of that. And uh, Perkins is saying that's not fair, that uh, before inviting someone there, that you need to uh, make it clear who you have a piece of. So then uh, others responded, uh, such as uh, Mike Dentali and, once again, Big Huni, Chris Unichin. Uh, and they, they basically said this isn't a big deal. Uh Andreas uh, Ferrelli said that it actually was a big deal. 
and said, uh, imagine raking money, being a winner in the game, and staking the other winners in the game, and everyone being okay with it. Danielle Anderson said, uh, as you said yourself, very small circle in Vegas high-stakes crowd. You, you maybe didn't directly accuse a specific individual, but you may as well have, referring to Jean Robert. Hope your damaging words are based upon more than just the hunch of a friend. So she was on John Robert's side. Uh, then Bill Perkins said that uh, there were no clear signs of uh, cheating or collusion. He said, uh, just got off of a still ongoing four-way call with a game runner, Dan Bilzerian, MJ, and myself. After hearing 44 minutes of arguing, my opinion is still some fucked up shit happened, mainly not declaring staking more than one player in the game and accused up to half, but no clear evidence of cheating. Not sure who MJ is. Timex, Mike McDonald, said, I think I speak for the whole poker community when I say we're all on edge of our seats of how it played out last time. Earlier this year, Perkins and Blazarian called out Jungle Man. Remember that whole thing where uh, Perkins was saying this is going to be one of the biggest stories ever in poker, and then it was a big letdown that Perkins was overdoing it because it was uh, was important to him. He felt he had been cheated, and he was accusing that uh, Daniel Jungle Man Capes, this was an online game, but he was saying that Jungle Man was ghosting and using a fish's account to get action. So that that was an interesting accusation, and it says bad things about Jungle Man, if true, but it wasn't the biggest scandal ever. I mean, that was uh, – had Perkins just come forward with that accusation, then he would have looked a lot better than first pumping it up like, I'm about to reveal one of the biggest stories ever in poker. I can't do it yet, but it's coming, guys. It'll be one of the biggest scandals ever in poker. And then it turns out it's like, okay, a ghosting scandal, which, yeah – Interesting to hear about, but it's not the, one of the biggest scandals in poker. And Perkins later kind of apologized, saying, okay, you know, I, sorry, I was just emotional about it. Yeah, this wasn't the biggest scandal. Then uh, Jungle Man at the time said, I played very few hands against Bill Perkins, who sat in a game I understood was rampant with professionals who were ghosting. I thought since many of the site were going to use pros to play for them, uh, it was acceptable for me to be doing it too. Unfortunately, Bill got caught in the crossfire and very sorry. So basically, the, the time Jungle Man was saying, well, I, I did it because I thought everyone was doing it, and uh, if they weren't, I'm sorry, and I, I didn't mean to, to confuse Bill here. And it was kind of a crappy apology, and looks like Bill was right in that whole thing, and that uh, he was tricked into playing Jungle Man when he thought he was playing against a known fish, which, which is pretty bad. So... This is now the second time that Bill Perkins is coming out with an accusation of impropriety in high-stakes games, except in this case he's talking about uh, a, a live game and not about uh, an online game. So that was last week and uh, on October 4th. But uh, there's more action on this since then. It, on October 7th, Elio Lezra, who's had his own scandals, as we've discussed before, shortly when... When he started that Ask Me Anything on 2 Plus 2 and it backfired very badly and people were accusing him of uh, owing money and not paying and lying to people and a lot of other bad stuff, uh, Elia Lezra said, Hey, uh, Jean Robert, I heard Blitz, referring to Bilzerian, had his own investigator fully tear apart that home game and said it was 100% clean. Is Dan Bilzerian going to apologize? So Elia Lezra saying... Bilzerian tried to look into it and found nothing, so when's he going to say that this was unfair of him to say that John Robert was doing anything wrong? 
And then Bill Perkins uh, responded, nah, he ain't ever apologizing. New information came out that flip it to most likely cheated. Dan is freaking livid. So now he's saying, it went before from we didn't find any evidence of cheating, now he's saying that new things came out showing that uh, most likely cheated is the conclusion. And he did say that John Robert was not the cheater. And he said this is not to call John Robert a cheat to clarify. So it's, it kind of sounds like what Perkins is trying to say. He's always speaking kind of in code, but it kind of sounds like what he's trying to say is that John Robert was not cheating or necessarily uh, involved in the cheating or knowledgeable of the cheating, but that cheating occurred and that he was bringing people to the game to get cheated and, and maybe not realizing it, but he wasn't being open with uh, his relationship with staking people in the game, so they're still pissed at him. So then uh, Jean Robert tweeted back to Bill Perkins. He said, I really appreciate you clearing my name, Bill Perkins. For the record, I'm confident that neither you nor Dan Blazerian ever cheated. I know you both very well and feel confident that you're stand-up guys. Hashtag broke, fat, and dumb. He's referring to himself there. So then it went on where Blazerian still was not backing off, even though Jean Robert seemed to be uh, trying to say, okay, good, you cleared me, uh, Bill Perkins, and okay, I don't think you guys were cheating either, which nobody said, which is weird. It's like, uh, yeah. I wasn't cheating. Thank you for saying that. And you guys weren't cheating either, even though no one's saying you were. So then Bilzerian said back, the game isn't clean. And Jean Jean Robert knew two two weeks prior. So then Brandon Cantu popped up and said, Bill, the game was not cheated. Please tell us how it was done and who was involved, please, instead of these cryptic tweets. Which is a good point. Brandon Cantu raises a good point. He's tired of the cryptic stuff from Bill Perkins. Let's just, if someone was cheating there, come out with it. Say who was cheating. And then Perkins said back, uh, said Dan ain't apologizing. He played. Call him. So he's just trying to shift it over to Danville's area. Nobody wants to name these alleged cheaters. So I don't know where this is going to go. In general, if you're still confused, that is a little confusing, but if you're still confused, it looks like that uh, Bill Perkins and Dan Bilzerian believe they were invited to a game where cheating was occurring, and John Robert also had pieces of the players in the game where he also played himself, never disclosed that to them, and they also think some of these players in the game were cheating in some way. They don't say how, but they don't think John Robert himself was cheating or necessarily knew about it, but they're still pissed at him that... He didn't disclose that he was backing some people in the game that he also played in. But as far as the cheating, that it was just others in the game who were cheating. And then uh, Dan is is saying that it appears that Jean Robert knew there was cheating going on in the game two weeks before it was called out. So what a lot of drama. I mean, I have no idea who's right or wrong here. I could easily see the truth being anywhere along a very wide spectrum. It could be that uh, Perkins and Bilzerian are just paranoid and that the biggest legitimate gripe they have is that it wasn't disclosed of who Jean Robert was backing in the game. But I have to imagine this goes on a lot in the high-stakes world, where there are people are backing each other and trading action and stuff, and it's not always disclosed. I mean, that happens at public card rooms. So is it just that? Or was there cheating in the game? And if there was, did Jean Robert know? I mean, I, I, I have no idea. 
I have no idea here. Now, I will say that John Robert has never been accused of any kind of actual cheating before. He's been accused of owing people money and dodging it and uh, things like that. But uh, I've never heard that he's like cheated in poker play. In all the years he's played, I've never heard that accusation about him. So if I had to guess from my knowledge of Jean Robert, he probably did not know that there was any cheating in the game, if there was. It's also possible there was no cheating in the game, and that this is just paranoia. And that's very possible, too. I could not even begin to guess without having more details and evidence. Let's see if we get more information about this as time passes. This is still ongoing. Still ongoing. It started about uh, a week ago, and it's still happening today. Maybe they'll go quiet. Maybe we'll get more information. Maybe Bill Perkins will finally spill who the cheaters are. Maybe uh, Bilzerian will do it. Maybe they'll say nothing. Maybe someone will come out that they suspected the same thing. I don't know. High-stakes drama. Okay, so moving on here. Five states have gaming initiatives, gambling-related initiatives, on the upcoming November ballot. So a lot of times gambling law in the various states is dictated by ballot measures. Sometimes these are things that are just passed by the state legislature and there's no ballot measures, and other times there are matters that are being asked of the population of, do you want this or do you not want this? So there's actually five different measures in five different states that are related to gambling. These states are Nebraska, South Dakota, Louisiana, Maryland, and Colorado. And they're all different from one another. So South Dakota, Louisiana, and Maryland are voting on whether to legalize sports betting. So I guess they're not all different. I guess the three of them are similar. Colorado is voting on whether they will increase the maximum bet that uh, they have in place right now. And we've talked about this before. Colorado has a very stupid maximum bet law. And uh, I laughed when I first heard the maximum bet in the past before they changed it. At one point, no bet in Colorado could be placed for more than $5. <laughs> Why even have gambling if you can't bet more than $5? But that that was the maximum bet for a, a long time in Colorado. And then they raised it. And they raised it up to $100. Now, how does this affect poker? In poker, when they say a bet, they mean each individual street of poker. So Colorado poker, you cannot make the bet preflop more than $100. So when makes it 100, you're stuck at 100. You can't make, you can't say, I raised it 200. I raised it 300. Nope. Most you can do is 100. So if someone raises it to 100, you've got to just call if you want to stay in. Same with post flop uh, on each street. But each street, every time a new bet is placed, uh, every new, every street you could uh, place uh, another bet of $100. But obviously the pots can't get very big. Now $5 is a joke, but the most you can bet is $100 on anything in Colorado. They are attempting to change that law to where there is uh, not that limit anymore. And I approve of that. I think these, these betting limits are insane. And so that measure is on the ballot in Colorado. In Nebraska, 
they do not have any brick-and-mortar casinos. And the ballot measure there is whether they are going to have any casinos at all in Nebraska. So Nebraska is actually one of uh, relatively few states that uh, do not have any kind of brick-and-mortar casino. 40 of the 50 states in the U.S. have at least one brick-and-mortar casino. The 10 that don't are Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Utah, Tennessee, Kentucky, South Carolina, Virginia, and Vermont. Notice that there is no pattern regarding the politics of these states. We have some red states in there, like uh, Alaska, Georgia, Utah, Tennessee, Kentucky, South Carolina, and then we have blue states in there, like uh, Hawaii, uh, Virginia, and Vermont. So it really has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. Just some states have not wanted brick-and-mortar casinos. Virginia, they uh, are going to have brick-and-mortar casinos soon. They just passed legislation that it's going to happen, so they'll be off that list soon. So soon it'll be 41 states have brick-and-mortar casinos, but Nebraska is trying to become the 42nd. The two least likely to have brick-and-mortar casinos are Hawaii and Utah, who have no form of gambling of any kind in their states other than underground illegal gambling. For some reason, Hawaii and Utah are super anti-gambling. Utah makes sense because it's a Mormon state, and Mormons are very anti-gambling. Hawaii... I'm not sure why they are so anti-gambling, but I think it may have to do with uh, the fact that they don't want it uh, they don't want it messing up the tourist industry. This is just my guess, but uh, there's enough reason to come there without gambling. They don't need to attract more people to come to Hawaii with gambling. And in fact, I think they might be worried that if there is gambling there, it'll suck away money that people would have spent on other things while traveling to Hawaii. So they figure it's not like Nevada where no one's going to come to Nevada if they can't gamble. So Hawaii is super anti-gambling. Utah is super anti-gambling. And uh, the other states, I can see it arriving at some point. So Nebraska is trying to be one of them. And there is a uh, ballot measure. They got the uh, 400,000 combined signatures that were needed for it to be on the ballot. The bill would allow for casinos and sports betting to become legal in Nebraska. So we will see if that gets approved. It's up to the voters in November. I have not looked about the polling about this. I don't know if it's winning or losing. My guess off the top of my head is it's probably going to win. For the most part, people do want gambling in their state. Gambling has become more and more popular over time in the United States, and in general, people like to have the option to do it, even if they're not big gamblers. And and others even are okay with gambling being accessible in the state, even if they don't do it themselves. There are those who are anti-gambling, who think it's destructive, who think that uh, it ruins lives, or who think that it brings a bad element to wherever it is. But uh, I think that in a ballot measure, you're going to have more uh, pro-gambling votes than anti-gambling votes these days. Maybe not in the past, but in... uh, 2020, I believe we would. I think in the last several years we would. As far as uh, sports betting that they're voting for in the other uh, states, uh, South Dakota, Louisiana, and Maryland, 
I have to think that's probably going to get approved. Sports betting is getting more popular than it's ever been before. I think the rise of daily fantasy sports has increased interest in sports betting. They kind of go hand in hand, as you might guess. I think that the leagues starting to embrace sports betting is also helpful, that the leagues are no longer against it, and they have been mostly supportive of the efforts to legalize sports betting in places other than Nevada, which was the law for a long time before that was uh, overturned. That was a federal law before, but now uh, it was called uh, PASPA, but PASPA has been uh, removed. So now other states besides Nevada can have legalized sports betting, and more and more states are legalizing it. I have to imagine more people than not are going to vote for it in those three states. Again, I haven't checked on the polling data on this, but that is what I think will happen. If it passes in all three of these states, then in just uh, two and a half years since uh, PASPA was overturned in May of 2018, in exactly two and a half years, half of the nation, that is as far as the states go, will have legalized sports betting within state borders. 25 states would then have sports betting. Now, it is currently illegal in some of the large states, like uh, California being the largest one. I believe it is still illegal in uh, Texas and New York, which are also very large. So there's still a long way to go to get half the U.S. population being able to bet on sports. But as far as individual states, this would be the 23rd, 24th, and 25th states legalizing sports betting, which, in my opinion, should be legal everywhere. However, this may not be all that useful for people who are looking to bet sports because I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but I have seen some of the lines that are offered at some of these legalized sports books, and it's a joke. Some of them are offering insanely bad lines. So you'll see like a minus 135 on both sides, which is crazy. On a typical side game, that is where you're betting on a point spread, uh, it's minus 110 on both sides typically, meaning you'd bet $110 to win 100 And the way the casino makes the money is by that extra $10 on each side. So if you think about it, let's just take $100, let's take $110 bet on each side of a game at minus 110 Each player bets 110 to win 100 One of them wins, one of them loses. What happens? The sportsbook makes $10. That's how they make their commission. That's how they make their money. That's how, provided they have equal action on both sides, they're guaranteed to win. Unless the game's a tie, then they break even. So, uh, 10% juice is fine. That's standard. But can you imagine like, like 25, 35% juice? I'm seeing this in some legalized books, and I was worried about this, that the legalized books are dealing with uh, such a high take from the government that they are dealing with uh, so much regulatory overhead and so many fees and so many taxes that they cannot afford to offer 10% lines and still be profitable. So what will happen is that, yeah, you'll have some sports betting fish who just bet it anyway and get their ass beat because, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to beat a 10-cent line, a 25-cent line, 35-cent line on what should be uh, an, an even chance on each side of, of the bet winning, you will get crushed. There, there's nobody who, who can win even like medium term with that type of juice. So it will just crush everybody super fast. And the knowledgeable bettors will just move to the illegal books anyway. Like no, no one's going to lay 135 when they can get 110 
at an offshore book. So if if that's what we're getting, then forget it. I'm not saying that's everywhere. Like uh, in in the Nevada books that you can do uh, online, it's not like that. New Jersey's not like that. But I, I've seen like I think in D.C. it's like that. It's just awful. So uh, any book that's like that, any state where the books are forced to do that because that's the only way that they can be profitable, because they're overburdening them with fees and regulations, that is not going to work out. But other than that, I hope sports betting does increase its legality. I want it to be available everywhere. It's become a big part of American culture, whether you like it or not. And this money should stay in the U.S. It shouldn't be going offshore. And this also protects consumers because uh, if you get screwed by an offshore book, then there's nothing you can do. In the U.S., of course, there is something you can do. And if you think poker sites are bad with scam sites and, and people being ripped off. It's nothing compared to the sports world. You would not believe how many shady sports books there are out there that rip people off. I mean, the, the number of no-pay books that have existed over time dwarfs the number of poker sites that have screwed people. It dwarfs it. The sports betting world is so much worse with operators screwing people than poker has ever been. Even with all the big poker scandals like the UB and Absolute Poker or the Full Tilt thing, in, in terms of sheer number of sites that have screwed people... It, Sports is much worse. So I really, really hope that more and more states legalize sports betting and do it in an intelligent fashion where the lines are reasonable and are competitive with the offshore books. That's the only way to do it. As far as uh, Colorado goes, as I said, I, I hope that they do remove their maximum because that would make sense. The maximum bet is – I know what the purpose of it is. But it, it just becomes a big burden, and it and it holds back the entire gaming industry, and and people don't even want to come from out of the area to play at these casinos. If that's the case, nobody, someone who wants to seriously bet. I'm not even talking about like a, a big whale or a really high roller. If you know your maximum bet's a hundred bucks, you're just not going to want to even gamble unless you're a very low stakes gambler. So if you're going to have gambling, you need to allow the limits to be what people want to bet. And if you don't want that, if you're afraid of uh, people losing a ton of money because they're betting high stakes, then uh, then just don't allow gambling at all. This uh, $100 maximum is a joke, and I, I think no maximum should exist. I think this should be set by the casinos, what they want to risk. And the truth is, somebody who wants to gamble at high stakes, if you don't allow them to do it in Colorado, they'll go somewhere else and do it, or they'll do it online. They, they don't need the Colorado casinos to do this. So I hope that passes, even though it's not going to affect me. I've never gambled once in the state of Colorado. Okay, let's move on here. If you want to text me or call me, 775-372-8355 is the number. Australian poker pro Mario Zwanzleitner was found dead with his girlfriend in what is assumed to be a murder-suicide Pretty gruesome story here, and this is out of uh, Vienna, Austria. I had not heard of Mario Zwanzleitner before, but apparently he didn't have the best reputation, and now he's dead. And it's a pretty sad story, because it doesn't just involve him. Mario was 33 years old. He was known online as You Pay My F458, which I assume is referring to a car. 
and he was found dead in his home along with his girlfriend. Mario was a streamer on Twitch, and uh, this murder, and what was probably a murder-suicide, took place in the district of uh, Favoriten, which is in Vienna, in Austria, of course. The death of his girlfriend was very, very gruesome. She was hit with a hammer uh, to her head and her chest, and they found the hammer inside the home. So this wasn't even a simple, like, gunshot murder. This, she was beaten to death with a hammer, it looks like. Uh, Mario's death, it's not really clear how it occurred. But uh, the weird thing is that the door to the house was left open for several days. So they did think, okay, maybe someone broke in there and killed both of them. Maybe this wasn't a murder-suicide where Mario beat his uh, girlfriend to death with a hammer and then killed himself. Maybe someone came in and killed them both and then left and fled through an open door. Otherwise, why is Mario leaving the door open before killing himself? But uh, now they seem to be saying that uh, there's no other suspects. So why the door was open, I don't know. Uh, it's even possible that I'm just making this up now, but maybe his girlfriend tried to run away and uh, he caught her before she got out the door. Maybe she opened the door up. He grabbed her. He beat her to death with a hammer. And then right after doing that, he just uh, he killed himself and never bothered to close the door. And nobody went up to the open door for a few days. And then finally someone walked to the door and saw that. and It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> called, called the police. Uh, Mario was not a good guy. He definitely was not a good guy. In uh, Four years ago, he was actually accused of trying to rape an 86-year-old woman while she was sleeping. This was in an article in Austria on H-E-U-T-E. I don't know how you pronounce that. H-E-U-T-E dot A-T. There was an article that referred to him as Mario Z. It says uh, Mario Z, age 29, which of course matches with his current age of 33, uh, has to answer for attempted rape before the Vienna Regional Court. The DJ, and by the way, he did identify himself as the DJ in the past, so definitely the same guy, with a criminal record for drug offenses, is said to have broken into a retirement home in Vienna, Favoriten, in August 2015, where he allegedly tried to rape an 86-year-old woman in her sleep. He was sentenced, and this article is dated 9-6-2016, four years ago, and yeah, he's 33 now, he's 29 then. It says, Mario Z has to answer for the attempted rape before the Vienna Regional Court. The DJ with a criminal record for drug offenses is said to have broken into a retirement home in Vienna, Feverton on August 13, 2015, where he allegedly tried to rape an 86-year-old woman in her sleep. The verdict, 32 months in prison, 10,000 euros in damages, not final. I don't know what that part means. The pensioner... 86, left her window open in August 2015, took a sleeping pill, and went to bed. During the night, she experienced the shock of her life. Mario Z is said to have climbed into her room. Then the father of a young daughter, uh, then the father of a young daughter, referring to Mario, tried to rape the elderly lady in her bed. I thought my head was tearing off, said the old woman, describing the brutality of the attack during the interrogation. A trick of the old elderly woman finally dissuaded the attacker from her. By the way, this is translated. That's why it's a little awkward, the English. She offered the intruder money that she had kept in her bedside table drawer. The suspect took the bills and fled through the window. So he actually decided, you know what? I think I'd rather steal money than rape the 86-year-old woman. So 
in the process of like starting the rape, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How about you just take the money that I've got in my, in my, uh, drawer and don't rape me? Maybe she even like negotiated, maybe even said, like, I've got money. I'll tell you what it is if you stop this. And he's like, okay, fine. So she told him it was in the drawer and he took it and ran. A DNA sample taken from the inside of the victim's nightgown finally brought the police to the trail of the convicted uh, Viennese. Mario Z denied the act. His version of the story was he came to the woman's aid when she was harassed by an attacker named Bobby. So he even admitted he was there. Of course, his DNA was there. So what else was he going to say? According to the expert, he was on drugs and not sane. He is said to have taken cocaine, drank alcohol, and threw so-called and, and so-called happy pills. So that is a really bad story by itself from four years ago that the guy was uh, trying to rape an 86-year-old woman after breaking into her home and that he only didn't because she offered him money and he took it and ran out. Why he only got 32 months in prison for this is a mystery to me. That's, uh, the, the truth is that I see this a lot in European law and uh, apologies to the Europeans here who might be offended, but I see so many like horrible crimes where the sentence is just mind-bogglingly light. How do you give someone 32 months for climbing into the uh, home of an 86-year-old woman and starting to rape her until she bribes you to take the money and run? Like, How do you get 32 months for that when you already have convictions for drug offenses? That's not even your first offense. That, he should have been in prison. And had he been in prison, then this would not have happened. So... Now he was found dead, which is good. I mean, the world is going to do great without him for sure. But it's too bad that his girlfriend had to die in this uh, brutal and tragic fashion. So unfortunately, this uh, lovely individual was uh, part of the poker community. And there was a lot of bad things said about him on uh, non-English language forums over time. I guess he wasn't very well known to Americans, but in the European poker communities, especially among people who uh, watch Twitch and uh, post on forums, they knew him pretty well. In fact, uh, people liked to anger him because I guess he was very easy to rile up. I guess he had a short temper and uh, you could say things to him and, and just get him really angry and get him to tilt on Twitch and tilt in forums and people love to rile him up by saying things to piss him off and then he'd just go off and just say horrible, awful things to people and they'd laugh. But uh, the truth is when you see someone unstable like that, you should stay away from them because uh, often something like this I, – I'm not saying that's what made him murder his girlfriend, but if you act that way to someone who's crazy like this uh, and, and you try to really intentionally piss them off, they may come after you and kill you and then kill themselves because that's uh, – when you run into a crazy person, the best solution is to just keep your distance and just not talk to them. So, and these weren't people who were like defending themselves. I'm not talking about you have to like let the crazy person walk all over you. They, these were people who were p- purposely pissing him off because they enjoyed seeing him go nuts. And he said a lot of awful things on his own. These weren't people who were bullying him. I mean, he he would wish cancer on people. I heard from uh, post on two plus two, and he would just say a lot of bad things to people, but then he'd also be very easily riled up. So then they would say things back to him to get him even angrier. And and people had a good time with that. And there's been some criticism on two plus two of some of the people that they, they should have just uh, stopped watching his Twitch and left him alone because this is obviously a, a crazy person 
who is, is just going to be riled up into, into uh, possibly doing some bad things. Now, again, I, I don't think that's what caused this. A police spokesman in Vienna said the woman was killed by heavy blows to the head and upper body, and the crime scene was described as complex. I'm not sure what that means. A police spokesperson said the investigation is going on in all directions for the time being. It cannot be completely ruled out as other suspects, uh, but they said we do not yet know whether a third person was involved or whether it was murder and subsequent suicide. But then I've read somewhere else where they claim that they're not believing that anyone else was involved. So I've, I've seen it both ways. If I had to guess, given this guy's history, it probably was just him. The biggest tournament cash he ever had was not that high. It was only uh, 12,000 euros in 2010 at the uh, Montesino Festival in Austria. And he played around Europe. I don't know if he ever played in the U.S. He used to be... Uh, on full tilt under Predator, but where instead of Predator, it was the number seven instead of a T. It's like Preda seven or, but he didn't really do much on there. And on GG Poker, he did uh, win some money in June with some four and five figure caches there. So this was not a uh, really successful poker pro, but this is someone who played a lot of poker and streamed a lot on Twitch. That's how a lot of people knew him as, as like a Twitch streamer who was very easily angered and very uh, rude and nasty and would say awful things to people. I remember someone kind of like him who was from Italy who used to play uh, on the Inner Poker Network. A very similar type of guy, very crass, would say awful things. I hope your kids die of cancer. I hope your mother dies of cancer. Like you'd say this when you bad beat him. Just a really, really awful guy. And uh, he was also very easily trolled. Again, probably not the same person, but I remember that type of person. And some people were actually afraid of him. Some people were telling me that they, they hope they never meet him because they're kind of afraid of what he would do if he ever met them. So as soon as I read this story, I'm like, yeah, this reminds me a lot of that one guy on Interpoker many years ago. Again, probably not the same guy because the guy in Interpoker was from Italy and also... Mario would have been too young back then. This is like around 2005, and that would have made Mario like 18. I doubt he would have had the money to play back at age 18, especially because he's not even playing at particularly hard stakes in the past 10 years. He was better known as a Twitch streamer rather than a, a poker, like a prominent poker player. That's probably why you haven't heard of him. There was a picture on his Instagram account, which still exists, called You Pay My F458. You Pay My F458. And there's a picture of him standing there at the uh, European Poker Tour in front of the uh, banner on the wall. And he just wrote EPT and put a little heart there. So it doesn't sound like a loss to society that he's gone, but very sad about his girlfriend. And just remember, there's a lot of crazy people in poker. A lot of crazy, unbalanced people who find their way to poker. And watch out who you deal with, because you never know what they'll do. And you start getting signs that someone is like, super insane and super violent, probably better stay away from them. Probably better to just minimize contact with a person like that and not try to rile them up for fun. Because you may be sorry. 775-FRAUD-55 is the phone number. 775-372-8355. Perlot Friedman 
Remember, he's had uh, two divorces. The more recent one is a much younger woman named Aida. I don't think they've actually divorced yet, but they are separated, and both of them have basically acknowledged the relationship is over. Prahlad does have a kid with Aida. She is Brazilian and uh, much younger than Prahlad. I think she's like 24, 23, something like that. Prahlad is, I think, 43, 42 maybe. I think he's 42, whatever, way older than her. And uh, we've talked about all the different drama in their relationship that they actually had on Twitter, which was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> if you're having fights with your wife, you don't put it on Twitter. You don't make a spectacle of fights with your wife on Twitter. That's not a smart thing to do. I've been with the same girl for 11 years. As you might imagine, in 11 years, we have had some fights. But I've not had one of them on Twitter. She doesn't have a Twitter account. But even if, we, even if she did have a Twitter account... We would not have our fights on Twitter. As I imagine most of you who have had fights with your wife or husband, I have to imagine you would, would not want to have it on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere on social media. But but Prahlad had a lot of it on there. And eventually they separated. And uh, then she was pretty much like trying to rub into Prahlad's face that she's uh, dating somebody else and he's, the, the new guy is so good sexually and she, you know, she loves having sex with him and... Uh, uh, there's like a lot of needling of Prahlad in her tweets. Well, I've said all that before, but there's a new development with Prahlad's most recent ex-wife. She now has an OnlyFans page. Yes. You too can now see Prahlad's ex on OnlyFans. Now, you can see plenty of her without going on OnlyFans because she's posted a lot of scantily clad pictures on Twitter, which has always been weird because Prahlad has kind of like gone back and forth between, yeah, I got a hot wife. Yeah, look at my wife. Yeah, man, look at her ass. Yeah, man, look at this is so fucking hot. Yeah, yeah. And then, but then he also gets like really jealous when like dudes talk to her. So like he, he wants to have it both ways. He wants to have – he wants to flaunt – this is back when he was with her. He wanted to flaunt her on Twitter and have her ass hanging out and everything else like that. He wanted everyone to see that and admire him for being with her. But then, like, the second she talks to any dudes there, he'd flip out. So it was kind of weird. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to flaunt your wife on Twitter like that and have her in various states of mostly undressed, you, you can't be mad when dudes try to talk to her. Anyway, as I said, the relationship's over. Both of them have acknowledged that. But... Aida has started an OnlyFans page, OnlyFans.com slash Aida Leal. For $15 per month, you can subscribe. You can also get uh, 15% off and subscribe $38.25 for three months. <laughs> she has not made many posts I'll admit not being an OnlyFans expert. I will tell you I've been to OnlyFans very few times. I have never spent a penny on OnlyFans. I never would spend a penny on OnlyFans. If I were single, I would not spend a penny on OnlyFans. If I were single for a long time, I would not spend a penny on OnlyFans. I, I have never had the desire ever to pay women to show me nude photos. So, like, when I was single and I would meet women online... I wouldn't even ask them for nude photos. But, like, if they'd want to send them to me, I'd say, sure, send them. Like, and I, I would enjoy them. But I would never say, hey, here's money. Send me uh, nude photos. I would not subscribe to a service 
where I would get nude photos for money, even if such a thing existed back then. That's just like, even if I were single today, I just wouldn't do it. It has no appeal to me. Now, I know to some guys it does, and some guys love OnlyFans. That's how OnlyFans make this money. That's how the girls on OnlyFans make their money, especially during the pandemic when some guys just don't want to uh, do any of this in person because they're afraid of COVID, especially older guys. So I, I can understand where some guys want to pay for this and some of them like having the uh, more direct interaction on OnlyFans. But OnlyFans, in case you don't know, is a site where people can sign up. It's it's mostly women who take off their clothes there or do other sexual things there. But they, you basically can pay to have access to content that they post for members only. And sometimes they'll interact with you. Sometimes you'll just have an access to their stream of pictures that uh, you can only see on there if you subscribe. And uh, some women make a lot of money that way. So Aida Leal, that is OnlyFans.com slash A-I-D-A-L-E-A-L, now has a $15 per month or $38.25 for three months OnlyFans. From what I can see, though, she has only posted two pictures. One is entitled Right. And then the second one is called Sun's Out. And I can't see the pictures because I have not paid anything. It looks like there are, well, it looks like, I guess there's four pictures under Yeah Right and one picture under Sun's Out. But again, I can't see any of them. I can't even see like a blurred version. I can see nothing. I can just see that they exist. You have to subscribe to see any of this. Maybe she's posting nudes. Maybe they're partial nudes. I have to imagine Sun's Out is like probably her outside in some state of undress. I don't know what yeah right would be, but there's four different uh, pictures there. But yeah, I, I have to guess she's probably taking off her clothes for money and maybe we'll do more than take off her clothes. Maybe she'll take sexual pics. I don't know what she's going to show. If any of you subscribe to this, which I'm not asking you to do, <laughs> but if, if any of you do or have an interest in doing this and and you can tell me what's there, I would be curious to know. Just for the purposes of following this story. But she is on OnlyFans. I don't know if this speaks to what money she expects to get out of Perlod here. And I don't know who was taking care of the kid. They were not married very long. I don't know who has custody of the kid while they're separated. I don't know if it's 50-50. I don't know if she's doing it all. I don't know if he's doing it all. I don't know if it's uh, more one than the other. Let's say hypothetically Prahlad is the one with a kid 100% of the time. Then she wouldn't be able to get that much money out of him because they weren't married very long. I don't know if she even would be entitled to alimony given the short length of the marriage. She would be entitled to 50% of whatever Prahlad made during that time. But let's say Prahlad wasn't making money. Let's say his parents were supporting him. Well, then I don't know how much he'd get at all because it was a short marriage he didn't make any money. He claimed he was just borrowing the money from his parents. And if he has the kid the whole time, then he wouldn't be paying her any child support. If it's 50-50, as far as taking care of the kid, then he probably owes her some child support. But again, who knows what could be established about his income. The, the whole thing can be kind of complex depending upon what Prahlad's real income is versus what his parents are giving him, which again could be framed as a loan. So... I'm not an expert on California divorce law. I've never had a divorce, so I didn't have to learn that law. But she is doing an OnlyFans thing. She's never been shy about her body. She's posted all kinds of scantily clad pictures even when she was with Prahlad. 
So maybe she figures if I'm going to show this stuff, like, I don't care. I'll show my body nude. I'll show sexual pictures. I don't care. I'm fine with doing that and might as well make money from it. Maybe that's her attitude. But it also could be that she thinks she's not going to get much out of her lot and this is the way she's going to make money. So it's uh, it's interesting. How do I know about this OnlyFans page? Am I creepily stalking her somehow? No. She posted about it right on her public Twitter and was trying to promote it. So I wonder how Prahlad feels about her having an OnlyFans page now. That's not what I would want the mother of my child selling nudes of herself on OnlyFans. But that is the life that uh, Prahlad signed up for when he married a much younger woman who really didn't have that much in common with him and really seemed like she hadn't sowed her wild oats yet and wanted to. Perlod looked like he was much more interested in settling down than she was. And as far as having a kid with her, that was a big mistake. You should never have a kid with anyone unless you're really sure that they are ready at that stage of their life to have kids. And if at any point you think they might be feeling like they still want to go out and have fun and feel like they're young and feel like they're free, you should not have kids with them. You need to be in the stage of your life where you are willing to be past all of that. And I have a feeling Aida was not. Prahlad probably was, but she was not. I do feel Prahlad loves the kid a lot, and I imagine he would want at least 50% custody. I don't see him as one of the fathers who's just going to say, eh, I don't care, take the kid, I don't want anything to do with it. Like, I don't see him that way. For all the criticism I have of him, of which there's a lot, I don't see him as a deadbeat dad type or as an absent dad type. I think he probably does love the kid a lot. So I think more of the question is, does he have half custody or full custody or most custody? He probably has at least half. That's my guess. So that's the little prelude news I have for you. If I find out more, or if you see her OnlyFans, if you pony up the 15 bucks, let me know. But again, I'm not asking anyone to. I'm not saying, please do this for me. If I really wanted to know that bad, I'd pay the 15 bucks. But I don't want to know that bad. It's not even worth $15 for me to know. So really, only subscribe to it if you really want to subscribe. Not not for me, not to tell me anything. I can't stress that enough. Five Dimes has made a large financial settlement with the United States over the fact that they were running an illegal sports book. Remember on the show, we talked about how Five Dimes was leaving the U.S. market in September. And in fact, they sent out an abrupt notice to U.S. players on Five Dimes, which I received as well, that uh, you have until like uh, September 25th to get all your money off there. And you have till and like starting September 12th or something like that, they're going to not take bets anymore from U.S. customers. And then if you don't get your money off by September 25th, they're going to refer it to a third-party payment service to eventually pay you, but that it's going to be much faster if you just withdraw the money yourself. So they sent out that to all of their U.S. customers. And then... To select customers, they pushed them over to a new site called BetAnySports.com, BetAnySports.com, which, if you sign up, looks identical to Five Dimes. And when I say identical, I mean totally identical, other than the logo saying BetAnySports instead of Five Dimes. I mean, the entire interface looks the same, the site operates the same, the lines are the same, the bonus structure is the same. It's It really is like the same site. So they they just switched it over. 
This isn't too different than what uh, Bodog did when they became Bovada. Remember Bovada was Bodog before? And then all of a sudden Bodog is not serving U.S. customers, but Bovada is, and Bovada looks identical to Bodog. It's kind of like that. So they switched five dimes over to bet any sports. Interestingly enough, they only invited certain people over there. They didn't say you can't join if you weren't invited, but specific people, they incentivized them to move over to bet any sports. Some of them, they offered uh, an ability to transfer your balance from five dimes to bet any sports immediately. Some of them, they even let you transfer some of your prop, those prop bets over where they screwed some people. Where they, they canceled a lot of prop bets that were long term that really pissed people off, and it was very unethical the way they did it. But some people, who I assume they that they judged as the biggest sports betting fish on the site, they were more generous and would allow them to transfer their prop bets over to bet any sports. Others, they just invited them to transfer their balance over. Others, they just told them of its existence and said, you may want to try this one. And others, like myself, they said nothing about bet any sports, and they just, I guess, hoped you wouldn't find your way there. So I guess it depends upon how sharp they determined you were as a sports better. And by the way, that doesn't have to do with what you won or what you lost. It's It more has to do with whether your bets were along the lines of what uh, other sharp bettors would bet or if they were bets that looked more like amateur bets. Because uh, in a lot of sporting contests, there's what's known as a sharp side and the square side. And the sharp side, it sometimes loses, but the sharp side is where the smarter money tends to be. And there, there are certain patterns which show when someone is more of a sharp better or if they're more of a square better. Square betters, by the way, they love favorites. They love overs. They love uh, parlays and teasers and things like that. And uh, they also like good teams. So they'll uh, rarely bet on the uh, – well, that goes along with liking favorites. But they really like the, like the really good teams. Whoever the best teams in the league are, they like to bet on those teams. That's the sign of a square better. The sharp better is constantly looking for value and is betting – on whatever they think is the best value in the game. And there's a lot of patterns you can tell of who's the sharp and who's the square better. So I think that's how they determined who they are offering to move to bet any sports and who they just uh, aren't inviting over there. And if you find your way, you find your way. To their credit, they're not stopping anyone from signing up to bet any sports unless they're actually banned from five dimes, or maybe even not then. But only certain people were invited and others were... It, they made it easier to get over there than than certain others. Anyway, let's get back to the uh, the settlement, which I had not reported yet on this show. I actually meant to last week, but I forgot. But Five Dimes made a settlement with uh, the United States government. They made a settlement for $46.8 million. Wow. If you remember, the owner of Five Dimes, William Sean Creighton, who's who went by Tony on the site, was murdered. He was kidnapped and murdered. He was presumably murdered uh, at the time he was kidnapped or shortly thereafter. He was kidnapped in September 2018. 
he was not actually found dead. His body was not found until a year later, but it was assumed that uh, he was murdered sometime around September 2018. Anyway, five dimes went to his wife, Laura Varela. Five dimes was based out of, uh, out of Costa Rica, and the uh, they they were thinking once once he was gone, once uh, Tony slash William was gone, what direction they should go? Should they continue to be one of the largest U.S. facing sports books and just thumb their nose at the U.S., or should they uh, find some way to get the U.S. off their case? So they decided that uh, they're going to do the latter. So Five Dimes has agreed to pay a $15 million fine, and they've also agreed to forfeit uh, $30 million in assets and also to stop accepting waivers, wagers from U.S. customers. The case that was brought against them was through the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Tony's wife, Laura Varela, did not have day-to-day authority over Five Dimes operations, according to the settlement. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Michael Lowe, the assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, said the investigation was a complete success from our perspective. There was gambling going on, but we discovered it. We put a stop to it. Well, okay, you discovered one of the biggest sports books that was facing the U.S.? Okay, great job there. (laughs) I mean, who didn't discover Five Dimes? We discovered it. They're acting like they found some, like, underground uh, sports betting operation that hardly anyone knew about, except for, like, this uh, shadowy element that's betting on it. This is super well-known, Five Dimes. We found it, and we put a stop to it. Yeah, it existed for many years before you put a stop to it. Varela fully cooperated with the investigation, and she made it, she made, quote, significant changes to their operations, and that uh, it's going to be suitable for participating in lawful gaming operations across the world. So what's basically being done here is that not only is the U.S. government going to get off their back and stop trying to uh, investigate them and arrest the principals involved with it, but they also aren't going to object to them becoming a legalized uh, sports book in the future in the U.S. Now, I don't think that they're going to ever get licensed in the U.S. There's, there's too many strikes against them, I would think. But who knows? I mean, Poker Stars did. And they operated illegally for a long time, and they were subject of a similar investigation. So I, they have a chance, but I, I just don't think it's going to happen. We achieved the objective, which is she's compliant with U.S. federal law right now, said Maria M. Carrillo, the assistant U.S. attorney for Eastern District of Pennsylvania. What that means for her, she's not operating in violation of U.S. law. She's not actively taking bets from U.S. bettors. Whether she's positioned well for regulators, that's up to regulators to decide. Five times is certainly no longer in violation of federal law. So it's just what I said there. Like they just, uh, the federal government's saying, and yeah, we're not coming after them anymore, but, uh, are state regulators going to give them a license? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> Laura Varela said she is very, very happy and very, very excited for what the new chapter of Five Dimes can be. Five Dimes has existed for 20 years. It was launched in 2000. And it grew into one of the most popular online sports books that was U.S. facing. So obviously uh, it had a target on its back. 
In 2016, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania and working with the Department of Homeland Security revealed it was investigating Five Dimes for money laundering. An agent detailed how he believed Five Dimes instructed betters on the U.S. to use in the U.S. to use gift cards as a way to place and later cash out bets. But uh, William Sean Creighton was never formally charged, maybe because he died two years ago. By the time they were, they would otherwise charge him. I do know about the gift cards. I remember when they used to talk about that. I remember when I discussed with them about depositing there. They told me I can go get. Uh, Vanilla gift cards to make deposits there. I, I ultimately deposited through Bitcoin. The U.S. Attorney's Office said that uh, Five Dimes used third-party payment processors to accept illegal payments from U.S. customers. I know you're shocked. Pretty much like what every online gambling site based out of the U.S. does. The third parties processed credit card transactions for Five Dimes that concealed the nature of the charges and received funds from U.S. customers' credit cards that were then transferred to bank accounts of shell companies operated by Creighton. And that is when you buy into a sports book or a poker site and then on your credit card statement it shows that you bought some merchandise you didn't really buy so uh, it'll show you bought uh, equipment to uh, renovate your home or you bought clothing uh, five dimes didn't do this but I remember one site I think maybe it was Bodog used to you used to get charges on your credit card that you're buying women's clothing which is really weird you look like a cross dresser just because you played on Bodog so stuff like that Poker stars in full tilt did the same thing back in the day. Laura Varela contacted the Eastern District of Pennsylvania about a year and a half ago and said she wants to offer her cooperation. She helped uh, retrieve assets. I don't know what that means. But her cooperation did not include information about the identities of U.S.-based customers, which is interesting. I don't know if that's true. But I'll tell you, it doesn't really matter because in all of these cases, they've all had one thing in common. The U.S. government is not trying to go after the customers of these online gambling sites. And I, I've heard opinions whether it's technically legal or illegal to use them. I believe there's it's nothing illegal about it, which is why I've never covered that I gamble on these type of sites. I have no hand in running these type of sites, and I never have. And I never will. But uh, as far as using them as a customer, yes, I have. And I said so on national TV on 60 Minutes and CNBC. I'll say so right now that I use offshore sites to gamble as a customer. So the U.S. government has never shown any desire to go after any customers for that, nor have they... uh, nor have they wanted the U.S. customers to lose money when these sites are shut down. In fact, it's the opposite. The U.S. government insists that the sites pay the customers who are owed, including in this case with Five Dimes, where they uh, came up with a plan to pay everybody, as I already explained. And in fact, when people don't get paid, that gets the U.S. government more upset. So the goal is to shut these down, to arrest people who are involved in running it, and to collect a huge fine, which is the ultimate goal for these uh, government agencies. But along with that, they want all the customers made whole. They don't want customers screwed because of the legal action they're taking. And the government has been clear about that from every single bust they've done, way before Black Friday, even the net teller busts in 2007. Even that, they wanted everybody to get paid and everybody to get paid. So... You don't have to worry that the U.S. government is 
shutting down these sites and then is not going to allow you to get paid. They actually want people to get paid. Now, sometimes it'll be like a full tilt or UB situation where they bust them and it turns out they have no money to pay anyone because they've been uh, stealing the money. And then there's nothing the U.S. government can do if the money isn't there. But the government never seizes the money and says, tough luck, it's illegal, we're not paying you. The government actually wants you to be paid. And the reason they want that is because they want popular support for these busts. If tons of people are out money and the U.S. government keeps it simply because they're gambling as a customer on these sites, there would be a lot of outrage about this. A lot of people would say the government stole from them. I would say that if it happened to me. So the government doesn't want to do that. The government wants to get money from the criminal organizations. They don't want to get it from the customers of these criminal organizations. So you don't have to worry about that. And some people have said, well, maybe the government is trying to get lists of players and then hand it over to the IRS and the IRS can go after the winners. Well, they could do that, but we've seen no evidence that's what they are doing. I've never seen one instance of that happening. And believe it or not, the IRS pretty much operates on its own. And uh, other government law enforcement bodies, they, they do not really get involved with the IRS unless the IRS requests something or unless uh, law enforcement is looking to use the IRS to bust someone. But uh, usually if uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office is looking to bust an illegal gambling site, they're not looking to hand a gift to the IRS of, hey, IRS, look, here are all the records of who played on the site, who won and lost. Go after them. You would think they would, but they don't, and they've never shown an interest in doing that. It's almost like they're two independent entities who don't really want to help each other unless it's absolutely necessary. So... This has never happened either. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it has never been the practice in all the years I've seen this. So I do believe that the IRS has not been informed of uh, what you won or lost on five dimes. And I don't think that the government cares who won or lost on five dimes. This was all about extracting money out of the operators of five dimes, which they did. They got $46.8 million. And that is the goal of these U.S. attorney's offices that go after these online sites. They pick the big fish. When I say fish, I don't mean like poker fish or sports betting fish. I mean the the big fish of the site operators as far as who they can reel in and get the most money from. The whole thing's about money. It's not about justice. It's not about shutting down gambling. It's about putting a feather in their cap that we made X amount of dollars for our office that went to the U.S. government. And this is also the people who are in charge can flaunt this and brag about their accomplishments with how much money they had seized from criminal organizations, and it can boost their career. These are career-boosting decisions. It's all for show. It's all to... It's also the individuals involved in these law enforcement efforts can brag about it. That's really what this is about. It is not about protecting anybody. It's not about caring about online gambling itself. It's about what can we get from these operators. And often they do get a lot of money. Sometimes they're surprised they get nothing when it turns out that these huge operations they think they're busting, when it turns out that the worth of these operations is... Zero point zero. But that wasn't the case with Five Dimes. And in fact, it looks like when uh, Tony's wife was uh, left with ownership of, of Five Dimes, that uh, she went to the government and said, hey, I know you're investigating us. 
we're doing well. We we have money here. Um, what do we have to pay you to get out of this? And the government's like, uh, how about forty six point eight million? He's like, um, okay. Just make sure everybody knows I didn't like sell out all our customers. Okay, done. So with all that said, why is there bet any sports? If the agreement was five dimes is not going to run a sports book anymore, why is there betanysports.com, which is identical to five dimes? Well, I don't know who's actually running bet any sports, but uh, it's very possible that certain people, maybe ones based in Costa Rica that are not as worried about the DOJ in the United States, wanted to continue with the operation. And it's very possible that five dimes that the uh, U.S. portion of the business was sold off or that there's maybe not even sold off and maybe just that they uh, licensed out the software and all the operations or sold a certain portion of their operations to a third party or at least what appears to be a third party or what can pretend to be a third party. And then other individuals who are not Tony's ex-wife, actually Tony's uh, widow, will be running it. Does that mean they're as trustworthy as five dimes? Probably not. Does this mean that they're going to rip you off? I would think probably not. I would think that a site that uh, inherits a lot of uh, five dimes old U.S. business, because five dimes still exists, but uh, now all U.S. customers can't bet there anymore, which was their main market. So a lot of it moved over to bet any sports. And I would think since it was a very profitable operation, it will continue to be. And it'll probably be reliable, uh, especially if most of the same people are in charge. I trust it a little bit less than I trusted Five Dimes. But as far as sports books you can play on, I would say it's probably fairly safe that they will pay you if you win. So I don't understand why the U.S. government is so lax about this. I understand a lot of this is for show. I mean, I've just explained that to you, but... Why are they so lax that these sites can pay a fine, promise not to serve U.S. customers anymore, and then at the same time switch over to a different URL and say, okay, well, uh, we're different now. We're different people, so uh, play here. Like, Wouldn't the U.S. at least care about that somewhat? That really makes the whole thing look like such a sham. Like, of course the U.S. government knows about bad any sports. It's not like they're fooling anyone. It's not like the U.S. Attorney's Office in Pennsylvania isn't aware of the fact that they are now bet any sports, that now that exists to serve the same customers and looks the same and operates the same, and that even people got emails telling them to come over. But it's almost like, okay, we got our $47 million, we don't care. Have fun, go back and do that, and uh, uh, maybe in a few years if we think bet any sports gets too big, uh, we'll go after them the same way. It's all about money. It's all about money. Should you worry about bet any sports getting busted if they are pretty much five dimes, which promise that they're not going to do this anymore? No. It's unlikely there's going to be any kind of uh, action taken by the government. And any action that was possible, they probably considered before starting it. And obviously they thought that the chance of that was low because they started it like right away. There wasn't even like a delay. It's just like five dimes out, bet any sports in right away. All right, I'm going to take a break here. We've got uh, some more topics to do, but I'm going to take a break. 
and I will come back and uh, finish off the show. You heard earlier from attorney Eric Benzamokin, and I'm sorry, I'm going to start that again. You heard earlier from attorney Eric Benzamokin, which I don't know, it doesn't sound right to me. I may have to just call him Benzamokin, I don't care. You know what, screw it, I'm just going to call him Eric Benzamokin. He let me do it for two years. It's, uh, the statute of limitations is up. He can no longer uh, cry foul or raise charges against me for mispronouncing his name when he chose. He knew about it and chose not to say anything about it. I don't know what the statute of limitations for that in California is, but it's more than two years for sure, or less than two years for sure. But nevertheless, I definitely trust him as an attorney when there's a $330 million lawsuit where I am named and I choose him as my attorney. That by itself should speak volumes. Here is the ad I made for him where I mispronounced his name, but I make no apologies for it. I shall return shortly. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money. He's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. All right, we're back, and we're going to get a surprise addition to the show here. Surprise edition that I did not expect to get here, but we're going to get them nonetheless. What's happening, Drop? 
Trey Ruski, hello. I can't believe you're you're joining the show at three in the morning. Usually at the three in the morning, it's about an hour or two after the tea took effect and you're asleep. Here you weren't part of the show before, and now you're here at three. What's going on? Yeah, now I have a five o'clock India call, so I figured get to sleep early last night, get up extra early. Hopefully, you'd still be on, which you are, and then uh, go into my India call at five. But wow, woke up past five. Okay, so that's what happened. So Trader Risky has to call India in a very, very different time zone. How many hours different is India from here? Twelve. They're plus twelve and a half. Oh, that's the worst. That's you know that's the hardest. I actually asked Benjamin this question. He got it right. I said, what is the time difference where it's absolutely hardest to adjust to? And he said 12 hours. I said, that's very good. That's correct. So it's, it's, uh, I know you're not going there, but yeah, 12 and a half hour difference is almost the maximum difference you can have because once it's more than 12 hours, it starts going back the other way. Like, like for example, when I traveled to New Zealand in 1994 in December, uh, I was kind of fascinated to find, despite the fact that it was so far, it was only three hours earlier than Los Angeles, but the next day. So it was actually 21 hours, but it was like three. So it was actually pretty easy to call the U.S. and uh, and reach people that I knew without it being a huge time difference. But uh, 12 and a half is tough. So, okay. So I guess you're calling them at, uh, what, it's going to be 530 there? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad we have you here. We'll probably be done with the show by five. So let's uh, go on to the next topic here. The Cosmopolitan is now using metal detectors in order to stop uh, or at least slow down the crime that has been occurring all along the Strip ever since Vegas reopened in early June. We've talked about it before on this show, and it really is too bad what's happening in Vegas that since Vegas reopened, there's a lot of differences than what you remember in Vegas since you were last there. So in addition to all the masking requirements and the the distance requirements and a lot of other coronavirus-related things that are different now, which you'd probably expect, something you may not have expected unless you've heard about it is that there's a difference in the clientele that's coming there. And what has happened is because they have uh, lowered prices at hotels – because uh, they're just they they have to attract people back there, and a lot of people are still leery about going to casinos during uh, times of COVID, and people don't want to fly there, so they're, they're trying to entice people whatever way they can, and most of that is by lowering prices on rooms. Unfortunately, by lowering the prices, they've also brought in uh, an element, a, a lot of uh, a, like a gang element to Las Vegas that didn't come there as often before, simply because. Uh, this uh, gang element uh, could not afford the strip prices and therefore didn't choose Las Vegas as a destination. Now that it is affordable, uh, there are people coming into Las Vegas who are causing trouble who otherwise would not have been there if the prices weren't so low like they currently are. And this has been a constant headache to the Las Vegas Strip and to hotels operating there. And people coming there, they, they can't believe how differently people act than they did before the pandemic. And the reason is because it's different people. So there's uh, a lot of disruptions, a lot of fights, a lot of, uh, just, uh, we, we talked about it before on, on other shows, but there's a lot of uh, stuff going on on the strip sometimes that uh, both outside the properties and in the properties themselves that didn't used to happen. And it seems like every few days there's a stabbing or a shooting like right on the strip where before this is very rare. 
I'm not saying there was no crime on the Strip before. There was. And occasionally we would report on the show when there would be a shooting or stabbing on the Strip. But it was it was big news when this would happen. Now it's happening so often I'm not even reporting it because it's, it's really happening like every few days there and sometimes even inside casinos. And the casinos didn't exactly know what to do about this because they want customers to be able to come in, but they don't always know who's going to cause the trouble. And it's hard to pick like pick out who to throw out before they've done anything. And once they've done something, often it's pretty bad and it's too late. So they, they've been scratching their heads about what to do, especially because some of the high rollers have been saying, we don't feel safe here anymore. We're just not going to go back to Vegas until you guys get a handle on this and uh, make it safe to be in Vegas again and uh, and get rid of this uh, this bad element that's come there. And uh, And the problem is when a certain bad element gets used to coming to uh, – uh, to some place, then it starts to happen more and more. Uh, I, I know even like a, unrelated, but a little bit related, uh, Dodger Stadium for many years has been criticized for this, that there was a big gang element coming into Dodger Stadium and there were a lot of incidents at the parking lot. Uh, one of the uh, better known incidents was that one where that uh, Giants fan was, was beaten nearly to death and suffered uh, permanent uh, major in- injuries and injuries to his brain. But uh, there are a lot of incidents over time in Dodger Stadium because of a gang element there, especially because uh, then-owner Frank McCourt was cheap and didn't hire proper security. So the parking lots would sometimes become uh, chaos there after the game. So uh, this is happening now in Vegas, where there's just a a lot of gang members coming there and uh, a lot of other bad people. And uh, this is causing a lot of trouble. So the casinos have been scratching their heads. What do we do about this? We can't just, you know, we can either raise the prices back to what they were before and then we're going to have barely any occupancy and we're going to lose a ton of money or we can uh, keep everything the way as it was before, but then we're going to still have this, we're going to have this new crime problem or maybe we can come up with something to make this a little bit better. So some properties have come up with something and they're going to see if this works. They are now using metal detectors, not just at the Cosmopolitan, as I mentioned, but uh, at other hotels as well. The the Win is another one that is doing this, and apparently the uh, the D and the Golden Gate are doing it downtown. The Win and the Cosmo are using metal detector wands. That is where you walk in, and someone with a wand. You've probably seen them at the airport. They sometimes use those too, even though they also have a walkthrough metal detector where they wave a, a wand over different parts of your body and see if they can uh, detect metal. At the airport, they use the wand to figure out which part of your body has the metal once you've set the metal detector off. So this way they can figure out, oh, it's your belt. Okay, take your belt off and try again. Uh, here, they're going to be using the wand without a walk-through metal detector. So basically, you walk in, a security card waves the wand over your body, and you're only allowed to proceed if you do not have any metal on you. And of course, this is to detect if you've brought a knife or a gun into the wind or the Cosmo. And if you have a knife or a gun on you, they won't let you come in. And uh, the D and the Golden Gate have actually installed walk-through metal detectors, just like at the airport, where you walk in and uh, a metal detector will sound off if you walk through, and, and then you have to figure out what it is that you have on you that makes it go off. I don't know how sensitive it is. I don't know if it'll uh, go off like from your belt buckle, but they they have those at these hotels, and I have to imagine more are going to be installed. So I think they've taken the approach of we're just going to try to keep the weapons out of here. And so even if 
people come in, even if a criminal element makes it in here, there's only so much they can do before we eject them if they don't have weapons on them. So that's that's the kind of that that's the solution they are proposing and they're actually utilizing to uh, to solve this at some of these properties. And sadly, I think that's necessary. It's it's very unfortunate what's happening on the strip. And uh, this hasn't been very well covered by the media outside of Las Vegas media. And it's really something that people get an unpleasant surprise about when they come there. There's also been the scooter issue. This is really weird. That uh, some of this same bad element has been renting scooters and driving up and down the strip on them and just like run people over. Just bang into people, run them over, just don't care. And I'm not talking, we're not talking about like Doyle Brunson who can hardly walk anymore. We're talking about people who are able-bodied and just get the scooters for fun. Uh, there's been some pressure on the companies renting the scooters to raise their deposits. So this way, this will dissuade some of the bad element, again, from being able to afford the scooters. But uh, before these scooters weren't common, like how often did you see scooters? How often did you see people on scooters before in Vegas who weren't actually disabled or very old? You didn't see that very often. Usually you'd get that if you needed it. But somehow that's a trend now that able-bodied people get the scooters and just uh, drive through. And if you don't get out of their way, they, they run, run you over for fun. So that's uh, another thing that's going on that people have complained about. There was a shooting outside of Planet Hollywood that was actually caught on video. The reason the shooting was caught on video is because what preceded the video was uh, an altercation. And uh, so someone thought they were videoing just uh, two guys yelling at each other, and then it quickly escalated into a shooting. So I'm going to play this to you. This was on the Facebook page of a Las Vegas local named uh, Prentice Burleson Jr., who is a uh, he's a nightclub promoter, and he posted on October 11th, y'all be careful when y'all out here on these Vegas streets – Someone captured video 45 minutes ago. This is an open carry state, so you don't know who's carrying, who's illegal, and it's been wild on the strip now for a while. So this is uh, a video from Prentice Burleson Jr., and it's labeled, This dude shot this guy in front of me and my friends just now. Holy fuck at Planet Hollywood. You can't handle like a fucking man. Why you can't handle like a man? I'm not precise. Why can't you handle like a fucking man then? So what's happening here is there's a guy walking uh, in the foreground of this video. It looks like uh, looks like a black guy, and there's someone off camera yelling at him. Why can't you handle it like you're fuck- a fucking man? Uh, I'm half your fucking size. Now you can see in the distance what looks like a white guy, maybe Hispanic, but some he sounds white. So a, a, a much smaller guy is yelling at him. Why can't you handle it like a man? I'm half your size. And so at the, at this point, the the black guy in the foreground is just kind of he's got he's holding a backpack and he has his hand reached in the backpack, which is. <laughs> Someone's walking around with a hand reaching the backpack and you're arguing with them and currently on the strip. I would quickly walk away from that if I were you. But anyway, uh, this guy arguing with him didn't see the signs of what was to come. So he's taunting this guy. Why don't you handle it like a man half your size? And uh, at this point, the guy in the foreground with the hand in the backpack is kind of trying to walk away and not engage him. So I will continue playing the rest of this 22-second uh, video. And then so so two guys then approach this this guy with a hand in the backpack. One of them is the, the again they both look like they're white. One of them looks like a shorter guy and one's a taller guy. So the one who is taunting him is a, a looks like the shorter guy. The other guy is the taller guy. 
it was his friend, and they both approach him, and then this happens. That was yes, that was a gunshot. He pulls the gun out of his backpack and shoots the taller guy. I don't know if he dies, but shoots the taller guy who falls to the ground. And then the guy reporting the recording the video, understandably. Uh, is no longer focusing on what just happened there and the camera goes everywhere because you know, someone just got shot and at that moment you're like, okay, I better get out of the way so I don't get shot now. I don't know what the hell this is about. So I'm not going to play the rest of the, the rest of it. It's just the uh, reaction to this. But uh, it looks like, yeah, just the black guy in the video shot the white guy. Now, it is true the black guy was trying to walk away and was being taunted by the smaller of the two white guys, and then the two white guys approached him, and he just pulled out the gun and shot him. But no excuse for this. I mean, there was there wasn't uh, nothing had happened yet. They were just starting to approach him, and he just pulled out and shot. I mean, if he's that worried, you could pull the gun and say, "Back off from here." I mean, he didn't. He just pulled it out and shoots, which uh, is, is very bad. And and while you're walking around the strip with a gun in your backpack is uh, is not good either. You should not be doing that. So. Uh, I don't know anything about the suspect here. I don't know if he's been arrested. This was on October 11th, so it wasn't uh, that long ago. But still, I mean, there's there's a lot of people on the strip with guns, with knives. And, uh, I mean, even this shooter here is, is, believe it or not, more peaceful than a lot of the, the those that have been committing crimes. Or at least this guy tried to walk away. And then looks like he overreacted and just shot the people who were yelling at him and approaching him which was, as I said, a huge overreaction. But there's others who are who are really, like, directly trying to cause the problems and being the ones doing the shooting and, and the knifing. So it's a, it's a very bad situation. I've seen so many videos of fights and, and other things happening there. It's Now, I've heard from others that they've gone there and it's all been fine. They're like, okay, you know, I, I don't see it. I go there, it all, it all looks good, everybody's well-behaved. But then I've, I've heard from others that, yeah, it's pretty bad there. It's totally different than it used to be. I don't think I'd feel comfortable, like, at least walking around the Strip. Like, if if I was okay with a COVID risk and I were to just, like, drive directly to Bellagio, park there, walk in, go to the poker room, play, walk back out, go to my car and drive off, like, okay, I think I'd feel good enough to do that. I'd feel comfortable to do that. But uh, would I want to walk up and down the Strip now? No. Would I want to walk around the casino floor now? Probably not. Now, if I had like a really good free play offer, I wouldn't be terrified to walk into the casino. Again, ignoring the COVID risk. We're not talking about my, the COVID risk, which scares me more. But I'm talking about from this, this crime standpoint, uh, I, I would probably want to avoid a lot of it too. Trader Ruski, have you been to Vegas since uh, June? Um, I, you know, I had to drive through there to, to pick something up for somebody. But uh, other than that, I've not gone this socially. But so you haven't stopped in any casinos or anything like that? No, I've been thinking. I've been thinking about it, but uh, I might go pretty soon. Okay, well, I guess, I guess I'll get I a, a first-hand report from you what you see there. I've, I've I've really heard mixed things from people I've directly talked to, who listen to the show, and some. It's been like in all ways. I've gotten the wow, it's awful. It's nothing like it used to be. It's it's uh, it's transformed. It's terrible. I've gotten the oh, it's no big deal. It's uh, it's being exaggerated, and I've gotten the middle of. Uh, 
yeah, I've had some scooters run over me a few times, and, and I definitely see some trouble, but no one's actually hassled me. But yes, it's different, but it's not as bad as they're saying. So I've, got, I've gotten like everything. So I'm, I'm curious what it is really like there. There's definitely a change. I just, I'm, I'm curious about like how bad it is for the average person who goes. There's definitely more incidents now. There's no question there's way more incidents of, of shootings and stabbings than there were before, just from seeing the sheer number of them reported in the news compared to before. But as far as the, like the average person going there, what they encounter, I'm, I'm curious. And uh, I, I'm glad that some of these casinos are taking some steps, though, to prevent weapons from being taken in there because that, that's at least something. That's at least uh, stopping the worst things from happening, that people with weapons in there using them to – severely hurt or kill others in the casino. And they also are preventing people from sneaking in with these weapons by making single entrances and exits. So for now, where before you could walk in or out any door that's open, uh, now they are designating specific entrances, sometimes only one entrance, and specific doors for exit, and they have guards right there checking that nobody goes, as uh, Prince used to say, in, in through the outdoor. So that's also new there, where before if a door was open, you could go, you could go in or out of it. Not anymore at these, <clears throat> at these hotels, which are controlling entry. And they're doing this just so they don't have to have as many points to have to use the metal detectors on people. But what a big mess. And some feel maybe the problem will correct itself once COVID passes and once they get back, once they're able to raise the prices back to normal and they get back to the normal demographic there. But that's assuming a lot. That's assuming that we get a quick end to COVID. That's assuming that uh, this will make Vegas rebound right away, which it may not. There may be still people who are kind of nervous about the whole thing. It, it could even be this affecting it, that if there's enough stories about the crime there, that people may be reluctant to book trips to Vegas now that before we're going to uh, even you know, ones that were going to do it as soon as COVID was over. Now, maybe once COVID's over, people are like, ah, you know what? I, I don't think I want to go there until I hear the crime situation's better. And then they still won't get people. And then it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically, that they uh, – it, it's a cycle to where they, they can't get it to where they get enough people coming in to pay money, a lot of money to stay there because uh, they're afraid of the element there. And the only way to get rid of the element is to raise prices – but they can't raise prices until people are willing to come. So it's like a chicken and egg thing, actually. It's also possible that they'll once they think COVID is passed and people aren't afraid of that anymore, that they will just raise prices and just deal with losing money for some time, hope that will flush out a lot of the element who uh, is coming presently, and then hope that once the word gets around that it's safer again, that, pe- that the regular customers will start coming back. So it, it is a big problem there that uh, – isn't getting as much attention as it should. I know a lot of locals are very disgusted with this. A lot of locals want some kind of action to be taken, even ones that are not even law and order types, but just just people who are locals who feel like this is dragging down Las Vegas. It's bad enough to have the pandemic. Then you have this on top of it. It's really going to screw the city, and a lot of people there are are worried what this is going to do to Vegas tourism and how it may hinder its recovery in the future and even in the present. So hopefully some of these measures will stop it. I also think they should just quickly try to staff uh, more police officers and get them all over the strip, kind of Times Square style, and just aggressively arrest people who are who are 
causing the problems, and uh, then that might dissuade people who are coming to Vegas to commit these crimes to, to not do so. Okay, speaking of COVID, I want to move to a, a COVID topic. I want to give you an update on the uh, the President Trump situation and uh, a factor from it that you may not think about. So presumably by now, you'll know that uh, nine days since our last show that President Trump recovered and seems to have recovered pretty well from his bout with COVID-19. Yeah, nine days ago, I was wondering if he was going to be dead or seriously ill by the time we did the next show. Instead, he's right back there in the White House and uh, seems to be mostly fine. He may not be 100% better, but doing a lot better than people assumed he was going to be, especially when at the beginning he was having some real symptoms. He was having breathing problems. He was having a lower oxygen saturation level. All these signs that uh, it's progressing and uh, has a chance to kill you, especially given his age and the fact that he's overweight. So he recovered pretty quickly from it. He reversed. He, he It seemed like he came back from the worst point within days and then left to go back to the White House. And I, I'm not going to get into all the politics of whether he should have left and that little demonstration he did where he waved at everybody when they drove away. That, that's that's all political stuff, and I'm not, uh, not going to make this a political se- uh, segment. Uh, th- the reason I'm bringing this up is because I wondered, and many other Americans wondered, how did he get better so much better, so, so quickly? And so he released a series of videos, which we played last time, when he was uh, when he had the coronavirus and he was in the hospital. And all of them he was standing, except for one, where he was sitting and his speaking was kind of labored. And you could tell that one where he was sitting, he was really forcing himself to make that video and attempt to seem healthier than he was, but he wasn't in that great a shape. Now, he wasn't in as bad of a shape as I've seen others who are much younger than him who've had it, who couldn't sit up and record a video no matter what. But you could tell that if he could have stood, he would have, and he couldn't. And if he could have spoken without appearing fatigued, he would have, and he couldn't. So that was interesting. But then within like a day and a half of that, he was again standing up, recording videos standing up, and seemed mostly fine, which is different than the trajectory I've seen of those who have shown what I'd call mid-level symptoms of COVID. I know a number of people in their 40s, and of course, Trump is 30 years older than that, but I've known a number of people in their mid-40s who got a version of COVID where they were basically knocked off their feet for two weeks, where going to the bathroom was an incredible challenge. Just getting up to pee was super hard. I mean, think about when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're kind of debating whether it's worth getting up to go pee because you're so tired. Multiply that by like 100, and that's how these people felt. Like they they really wondered if it was even possible to get up and get over to pee, and when they did... It took every bit of effort they had, and then they crashed back into bed and couldn't stand up again. Uh, one of my childhood friend's sisters, uh, she was unable to come down the stairs, not up the stairs, down the stairs for two weeks, and she's a little younger than me. So that's what a lot of people have gotten who were in their 40s that showed symptoms. And uh, it took about two weeks to resolve, or at least to get to the point to where they were not debilitated. Some of these people also suffered permanent lug damage from this whole thing, which is too bad. 
this is what I fear the most of the coronavirus that is going to happen to me. I'm not so much fearing that I'm going to die from it, that there is a small chance of that, but I would be fearing that uh, it's not all that unlikely that I would have it like that as well and that I would end up with a permanent lung damage when it was all done. So how did Trump avoid all that? He had symptoms. He even had some breathing problems, which is a step beyond the feeling debilitated. So he had the breathing problems. He had the low oxygen. He had the fatigue. He had the fever. Even if they weren't honest about how early he had the symptoms, maybe he actually had COVID earlier than they're acknowledging. And by the time we found out about it, he was further along than we thought. Why didn't he have the two weeks where he was just knocked out? Why did he seem to get better so quickly? And they talked about using experimental treatments on him, which raised some eyebrows like, wow, Trump's got to be really bad off if they're using unapproved treatments. Are they using experimental treatments on him now? Wow, I wonder if he's on death's door. And it turned out, well, he wasn't, and he definitely isn't now. So why were they using experimental treatments? Well, President Trump, whether you like him or not, or whether you agree with this or not, has been very big on believing in certain drugs, like, you know, hydroxychloroquine. He kept saying that uh, he believed in that. And I really believe that if he gotten COVID at the time, that's what he would have used. Like, he, se- he seems to just latch on to certain drugs that he thinks are a good idea and then wants to take them even if they're not approved yet. So I have a feeling that's what happened this time, except it wasn't hydroxychloroquine because we're further along in the whole thing and there's there's better options out there. But the question that came to my mind, and I'll ask you, Trader Ruski, uh, I know you're no fan of Trump, but uh, I'll, I'll ask you just from a standpoint of, of COVID. Um, did they give him something that is a pretty effective treatment that just is not available to the rest of us yet because we're not the president? Do you think that maybe... What he took is something that we'll all be taking if we get COVID, and it'll be a big game changer. They're just not ready to release it yet because it hasn't gone through all the uh, all the trials and all the the tests. But that uh, he started to worsen and said, "Crap, I'm 74 years old and overweight, and I'm worsening, and I'm having trouble breathing. Give it to me. Give me the best thing you have." And they're like, "Okay, here it is." And and then he got uh, rapidly better. Is it possible that this is something that uh, is a breakthrough? that we just don't have access to yet and they are not being open with us about uh, that this is coming. Like, we, we know what he took, at least what they said he took, but uh, th- this is a treatment that's not uh, widely available yet. So the question is, uh, what do you think, Trader Ruski, what, what do you think happened there with him? Do you think that uh, you think he took some kind of uh, miracle drug that we can't get yet or you think he just got lucky or maybe wasn't as bad as, as some people were saying? What, what do you think happened there with how he got better so fast? It's probably a combination, really, of them all. Because I think that they gave him these experimental drugs that were loaded up with antibodies. You know, that's why I think they don't know if it's just masking it or not. Um, so, you know, so I think, look, I mean, from what I hear about this, you know, they, they might have enough for 50,000 to, to give it to 50,000 people. Um, I'm assuming they need a lot more antibodies to continue to make it. And I don't know how much of a challenge that would be. Um, but hey, look, I'd, I'd say we, we probably need to wait another week till he's completely out of the woods. Cause I think it's almost like an adrenaline shot, you know? And that's what it kind of seemed like in this whole way of being and kind of the decisions he was making. I don't know. But well, yeah, a you're strange. He's coming out. You do bring up a good point that he has been acting in an erratic fashion, even by Trump standards, on Twitter 
uh, ever since COVID. There's like a there's a weird version of Trump we're seeing now that is like uh, just just really like like he'll he'll it's almost like he's Twitter tilting. Like he'll tweet like like twenty things in a row of like one uh, quick one sentence statements. Like twenty things in a row, he'll just like hammer out on Twitter. He didn't used to do that. He he would tweet a lot of. Uh, crazy things and stupid things but but we didn't see like the the 20 tweets in a row thing that he was doing r- right when he came back from the hospital and he's been doing a number of this of these type of things since he got off of it he does seem like his mind isn't uh working the same way as it was prior to covid and it might be some sort of side effect of of uh, the drugs he used so one of the things he used was something called uh, regeneron which is what you were referring to with the the antibody and uh, and then some people have been saying that he was on steroids, which steroids, it, it's been long thought with COVID that steroids can be used to uh, to fight COVID and that uh, it, it more to, to help fight the body's reaction to COVID, overreaction to COVID, and that that might be one of the proper things to do as part of a treatment regimen. Perhaps the steroids are what's making him behave in this way. That that where the change of behavior maybe has to do with steroids, but uh, w- whatever it is, um, it, it is a little bit. Uh, well, I don't know. It's it's something that's worth thinking about. If uh, perhaps because he was the president, he got something that the rest of us can't, and that uh, you know, maybe it is something that's just temporarily making him look better when he really isn't, and may- maybe it is something that uh, is a treatment. That if you jump on the COVID uh, early, that you can stop it from progressing to a high level, which is what I've said the whole time is what we really need, much more than a vaccine. I'm not saying we don't need a vaccine, but I'm saying much more valuable than a vaccine is a treatment which is effective and works for everyone or almost everyone. And if you jump on it early, stops it from ever getting to too high of a level that's damaging to you. We have that, then the whole thing's pretty much over. Even if it's not completely over, the massive danger of it is over and we can go back to normal. But, and we would still have death. Even if that were the case, we'd have death of people who don't jump on it fast enough or who don't, who are afraid to try the drug or what, we would still have death, but it would be controllable at that point. At that point, those who are willing to follow the recommendations would be okay. And, I would follow the recommendation. If I, if I knew there'd be something, a, a medicine that I could get access to, and of course, 50,000 doses is nothing. 50,000 doses sounds like a lot, but with a population of 330 million, that's nothing. So we would need way, way, way more doses available than what is available right now of that, if that were uh, some kind of uh, miracle treatment. Now, to get approved the, through the FDA, uh, it, you know, it can take a long time. In order to have access to unapproved drugs, the following has to be true. The patient must have a serious or life-threatening disease or condition for which there's no other FDA-approved treatment option. And that would count for COVID, that it is a serious or life-threatening disease and there is no other approved treatment option that's considered effective. The potential benefit of using the product must outweigh the potential risks. The patient is unable to enroll in a clinical trial and providing the product would not threaten its clinical development, which means they can't, uh, they can't, if they're in the process of developing it and they've got to give you doses that they're using for, for development and testing, they, you, you can't take the, the doses meant for that. So, uh, that, that's what's called expanded access. And, uh, now the president they may make, make exceptions for. And, 
I, they can authorize uh, what's called emergency requests, and that possibly what happened here. Uh, it was reported the FDA had to grant specific permission for Trump himself to receive the Regeneron treatment. And uh, it said that on, on October 5th that uh, his doctors were confident enough of the drug's benefit to administer it. It seems to have worked. It's possible that he was going to get better anyway. He just wasn't going to have a case that progressed to being something really bad. And that's that's something you can't overlook. It's possible that Trump was going to get better quickly with or without this treatment. It's possible he was going to get better and this just hastened it somewhat. Maybe, maybe he was going to get better in, in 10 days and he got better in a few days because thanks to this. Now that's, good, that's a good thing, but that, that, that would not be – for those that – we're not destined to get better. That that wouldn't help much. So there's a a lot that has to be uh, considered here, and we can't say okay, we've, a treatment's been found. But but it is interesting, and it it may have taken the president getting COVID to kind of alert us to. Now it would take a long time if this is the case for them to develop enough to where it could be in widespread use in the U.S. And if it's something which you have to use early in order for it to be effective, then I have to imagine it would only go to the people who uh, are most likely to progress to death or close to death, meaning old people or people with uh, major pre-existing conditions that have been known to lead to COVID death at an earlier age. Uh, People like myself even though I'm at a much higher risk for both uh, severe symptoms and death than a, a 30-year-old or 35-year-old, uh, I'm much less risk than those who are much older than me or have uh, severe health problems. So I, I would be one who would not qualify for such a treatment until it is widely available. So it's not going to come super fast. But honestly, I'm, I'm just looking for any source of hope at this point about a treatment. And I think that the whole concept of a treatment is being overlooked by many as far as the general public of what we're waiting for. Many people are are waiting either for it to just die down and go away or that we're going to mask our way out of this or that uh vaccine's going to solve the whole thing and and these you know it, it may just go away and a vaccine may solve the whole thing eventually but I'm saying that the one that I'm really looking at the one I really think would be the immediate game changer would be a widely available treatment that is effective. And that would that would also solve the problem that a lot of people are not going to want to take the vaccine. Whereas if you actually get COVID, it, it, you're much more likely to want to take a treatment for it than a vaccine when you do not have it yet. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this uh, Regeneron and whether that is the future of treating COVID or whether this is something where Trump just happened to take it and got better when he was going to get better anyway. Or if it's like what Trader Risky said might be the case that it's just masking that he's still at risk and it's just giving him extra energy to appear healthy when he really isn't. So we will have to see. Also on the COVID front, speaking of vaccines, Johnson and Johnson has paused a vaccine trial due to what the, is they called an unexplained illness of a participant. That's not good news. This is the third phase trial And the third phase is to determine that the vaccine is safe. And that's actually a much more important determination for a vaccine than it is for a treatment. 
a treatment, there's much more tolerance of side effects and dangers because you already have the disease at that point. So that be- it becomes a trade-off. Like uh, you've got a disease already, so the risk of side effects is it- probably less than the disease itself, so it's worth taking the drug. So that's why there's a lot more tolerance to that. For vaccines, you're injecting something into someone who's healthy, and there's a lot less tolerance of what it will do to you if it makes you sick in some way if uh, you don't have anything yet. Even if it's going to prevent something down the line that's going to make you very sick, you don't have that thing yet. Maybe you won't ever get that thing. So it's uh, to take a vaccine that gets you sick, It's uh, people do not want to do that, and those type of vaccines are not approved. So that's why this third phase trial, which is about the safety of the vaccine, is very important. That's the one they're trying to bypass there in Russia and just jump right past it and just give it to people and see what happens. So Johnson & Johnson was on this third phase, phase trial, and one of the participants got what they called an unexplained illness, which is bad because unexplained means they, they cannot figure out why this person got sick, and they're afraid that the vaccine is what got them sick. There's always a fear that when you bring a vaccine on that it will cause some other health problem and sometimes a delayed health problem that isn't known yet until uh, later on. And then people start dying or getting severely ill or having some uh, other severe reaction that was brought on by the vaccine. And sometimes the vaccine is worse than the illness itself. This also undermines trust in vaccines in general. So with COVID, it's, it's this weird, uh, there's kind of a weird trade-off going on because everybody really wants this to go away and they really want us to get past this. But at the same time, Vaccines usually take years to develop, and a rushed vaccine that comes out the same year we learn about COVID, or even a year after we learn about COVID, that is so much faster by several times than any vaccine's ever been released. People suspect, hey, was this rushed out, and are we going to find out later that we're injecting people with something that's going to kill them or make them very sick? So there's a lot of people who take the approach of, as bad as COVID is, I'm actually going to wait with a vaccine for several months and see if anything bad happens to anyone who took it. And if it does, I'm not going to take it. I'll let others be the guinea pig, not me. So that's the fear is that as more and more time is passing, that fewer and fewer people are willing to take the vaccine because there's more and more rhetoric going around that uh, the vaccines are being rushed. So this is definitely not going to help especially if it does turn out that someone got sick on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was brought on by the vaccine. Now, sometimes the person is just getting sick unrelated to that. So it's possible that this unexplained illness is really just an illness they would have gotten with or without the vaccine and that the vaccine did not cause it, but they're, they're trying to figure it out. They said it's not always immediately apparent whether the participant who got the adverse event received a study treatment or placebo because there are people receiving the placebo. And of course, if the placebo caused it, then there's no problem with the vaccine. But uh, they've, they've got to figure this out, which one they were getting. I, I can't see why that's so hard, but they're saying it wasn't, it's not always immediately apparent. So uh, also, this was not the first one to do it. There's another COVID-19 vaccine that was being developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University, and they put that on hold on September 8th because of a suspected adverse reaction in a patient in the UK. 
and it is believed that the patient had transverse myelitis, a spinal cord problem, and the studies res- resumed about a week after it was paused, and they restarted, but uh, in the U.S. it remains on hold. It's, it's still not known whether that is something that was brought on by the uh, vaccine or if it was uh, something the person already had or had or got some other way. So it can be scary. And I have to admit, I, I've thought about the vaccine. What would I do? I'm not anti-vaccine in any way. And believe me, I would love to be vaccinated from COVID. But uh, if there is a vaccine that's said to be 50% effective on COVID and it was kind of rushed and it's not known all that well, they say it's safe, but like, how much can they know in a short time? I'm not sure if I would take it. I would love to take one which I knew was uh, effective and was not likely to harm me, but I would be a little nervous about injecting something that there's not enough known about it yet, in my opinion, that uh, it's not going to harm me. I think uh, people who are much more likely to die from COVID are probably more likely to try the vaccine, but the younger the people are, the less likely they are to want to get the vaccine. Like, How much motivation is someone who's 25 going to have to not get the, to get the vaccine? if they know that they're not likely to get bad symptoms from COVID. So I'm not even sure what I would do when this becomes available to my age group. It will depend on some factors. Like if it's said to be 98% effective, I'd be much more likely to take it and risk the adverse effects that aren't known than if it's said to be 50% effective. I don't think it'll be 98% effective. I think that's very unlikely, but that'll be, that, that will definitely play into it. Trader Risky, what is your attitude as far as vaccines with this COVID? Well, I mean, I think we should all get vaccinated in general as far as vaccines go. I, I've never gotten a flu shot. Have you? I have not. I have not gotten one either. And the reason I haven't gotten one is probably the same reason you haven't, is I've never felt like I'm in a risk group that the flu is going to kill me or uh, severely harm me. Yep. Yeah, and just a shot at getting it. And I figure I can just stay safer. But, um, Look, I think now, I don't know if you watch any of this thing, this guy Richard Bright came out with, who was at the CDC and now is a whistleblower. I just couldn't trust anything coming out of Trump's organization. And I just feel like they're pressuring the scientists. I could not trust that. For me, it's not even about not trusting Trump's uh, Trump or anyone who works uh, for Trump. It's... it's uh, this is something that they're developing much faster than they ever have before. And that uh, like a lot faster, several times faster. And I just worry that there's not enough time to see medium term adverse reactions, no matter how good the intentions are or how honest they are about its safety and about uh, everything else, even with the best intentions, is there enough time that we have here from the development to the testing to the release. And uh, again, if, if I were 80 years old, I'd probably get it anyway, because uh, if you get COVID at 80, you're, that's a, a decent chance you're going to die from it. But uh, at my age, and I've been very careful with it, as you guys know, I do know that the chance of me dying from it is pretty low. So I I might fear the, the vaccine more than... Uh, COVID, especially since I don't have COVID and I've been very careful. And there's the other problem. 
If it's 50% effective, I can't just say, okay, cool, now I can just go out and do everything normally. I can't because it's only 50% effective. I'm not going to go do that. I'll, I'd have to behave the same way. So I would have no confidence that the vaccine has done anything for me because with 50%, you can't have that confidence. And so I would still be stuck with the exact same routine that I'm in now of avoiding COVID. I would only get out of this routine if I took a vaccine that was super effective to where it would be very unlikely for it to fail me. But uh, I have a feeling it's going to be kind of like the flu vaccine, which is a 50% type of uh, protection, which is not going to cut it here. Where, Like with the flu, the big difference to me, the flu is something that if I do get it, I'll, it's likely I'll just be sick for a while. It won't be anywhere near as debilitating as COVID is or as long-lasting as COVID, and I won't have permanent damage from it. I'll just I'll just walk away from it as if I never had it when it's all done. COVID, I mean, there's a, I could have the permanent lung damage or permanent heart damage. Who knows what it's going to do to me? So uh, th- that's why I fear COVID so much, and the flu I didn't fear at all to where I didn't get a flu shot. I just figured, okay, I'm just not in the group that is in danger of dying from the flu. And so I, I was never worried about the flu. I went right into card rooms, uh, played all the time, and didn't worry about the flu, and never got a flu shot. And I, my attitude with the flu shot is when I, when I get older, I'll get it, and I get it for Benjamin because he's young and he's in danger too. But adults are middle age and don't have a problem that uh, is likely to cause them death when they get the flu, which I don't. Uh, there's, there wasn't really much of a reason for me to get a shot, and I, and I haven't. And I, I'm not going to get a flu shot this year either. But COVID, it's, it's kind of uh, hard to determine because I really don't want to get that, but I also don't want a vaccine that is rushed and didn't have enough time to figure out the long-term, or, or sorry, the medium-term uh, adverse effects, which is why they take so long to develop, because they, they really want to be careful about these medium and long-term adverse effects. So uh, I got a message here on Skype, which I've got to go retrieve, from Mr. Tickle. Mr. Tickle said to me, Russian vaccine is currently in third stage trial. 12,000 people have received it. They're also testing in Venezuela and UAE to get a wider range of people. UAE has many, many races. See, that's a problem in Russia is that they, uh, there's mostly white people. So they, they're hoping to test this on other races so they can see uh, how effective it is on people who are not all white. Reported side effects have been a temperature for a day and slight pain at the point of injection. As of yet, it's hard to know how safe it is. It takes a lot longer to know but it appears to create antibodies. See, like, I can believe all that. It's just it's just the medium-term and the long-term damage that I wouldn't be confident is not going to happen. And then there's also how effective is it? It may create antibodies, but how effective is it? How long is it effective? These things, it's it's hard to tell without the passage of time. That's, that's what would worry me. All this stuff together. So that's the story with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It has been paused, and it may be for nothing. It may be that it turns out that the person who got sick was just someone who got sick, nothing to do with the vaccine. But that's why they've paused it, and we'll see if it restarts. And we will see when a vaccine comes out in the U.S. and if it is something that most people take. It's starting to look less likely it's going to come out during the Trump administration before the election. Remember, the Trump administration is going to go to uh, January 20th no matter what. So that has nothing to do with the election, and there's still a few months till then. But I don't see a vaccine coming out between now and the election, which is only a few weeks away. And if it comes out after the election, let's say Trump loses, and then it comes out in December, 
uh, I don't know if people will have a little more trust then because it's, it wouldn't be coming out then in an attempt to keep Trump as president because he will have already lost. But then again, people may say, screw it, we just don't trust Trump at all. We're going to wait till Biden comes in and his people come in and, and examine this. So I could see that happening too. So I, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to go and what kind of trust there will be in a vaccine. I've even heard like 36% right now are saying they're going to take it if it comes out. That's that's not a good number. All right, finally, final topic here for the night. Thunder Valley Casino, which is in the greater Sacramento area. It is uh, northeast of Sacramento. They are said to be handing out a one-year ban to people who are refusing to wear masks on property. Thunder Valley is not just a card room. It's actually a, a, a an Indian casino. It's in Lincoln, California, as I said, northeast of Sacramento. And they're not just banning people for a year for not wearing a mask. What's the policy, and this is according to someone who posted on VegasCasinoTalk.com. I have not verified this, but this has been reported to me, so I'm reporting it back to you guys. Just don't be 100% certain of it. It was reported that uh, if you don't wear a mask that covers both your nose and mouth, then security or casino staff will approach you and ask you to wear a mask. If you attempt to argue or refuse to wear the mask, they will immediately escort you out of the casino and give you a one-year minimum ban. Could be even more than a year, but that they will ban you at least a year if you're not wearing a mask and then refuse or argue about wearing the mask when you're approached about it. So I guess if they say, hey, you don't have a mask on, and you say, oops, sorry about that, and you put one on or you ask them to give you one and put one on, then uh, they'll be okay with you. If if you say, wait a minute, why do I have to do this? No, masks aren't helping. No, I don't I don't believe in masks. Then they're like, okay, you're gone. You're banned. So that's the first casino I've heard of that is banning people for a year under such a policy or for anything like a year. There have been people escorted out for refusing to wear masks, but this is a, a policy at Thunder Valley from what I've been told. Someone else posted, or actually the same guy posted, that uh, Thunder Valley has also turned up the heat on banning Slot advantage players, sometimes called hustlers. Hustlers are actually a little different from advantage players. They're both advantage players, but uh, hustlers are a little different because what hustlers attempt to do is uh, they actually wait and camp out at machines which can go into a positive expectation state, which is usually what slot advantage play is about, is you wait for a certain machine to get in a certain state and jump on it. And uh, where regular advantage players kind of just walk the floor and look for open machines and, and uh, sit at the ones that are in the right state, the hustlers will actually like camp out there by these machines and wait and jump on them. And some of the really obnoxious hustlers will come up and try to talk the people playing the machines who don't realize it's in a positive state out of being there, such as saying, hey, I know you're at this one, but uh, I just saw the one over here hit a little earlier today, and I, and I also heard it hit yesterday. It's a really hot machine. And then the gambler's like, oh, okay, yeah, thanks for telling me. And then they sit down at the uh, machine in the advantageous state. And, in fact, this can work because sometimes these machines get in an advantageous state after running for a while without hitting anything, which is sometimes how it gets there when these uh, meters get run up. 
often the gamblers understand that they're playing in a better state than they were before because the meters are higher, but sometimes they can talk people out of it. So uh, casinos have been getting more and more aggressive with getting rid of these hustlers because they sometimes harass the patrons there by doing things like this. And they also don't like when people camp out and like sit there and stare at the machines because it makes the players feel funny. Like The, the regular players don't even understand what these hustlers are doing, so they just see some weirdo sitting in the corner staring at you, and they don't realize they're waiting for waiting for you to leave the machine so they can jump on it in the advantageous state. They think they're being uh, maybe stalked or, or someone's looking to, to jump them later, so it makes customers feel uncomfortable. So Thunder Valley has decided they're getting tired of this, and they, they're just going to get rid of these slot hustlers. So they've already, according to this uh, poster, already banned a few of these hustlers in the past few weeks, and that... Uh, Especially, they were they've been looking for hustlers camped near the Zodiac Lions machines and banning them. This person also said that they've acted strangely at Thunder Valley regarding the Ocean Magic Grand machines. Ocean Magic is a very well known machine which can be advantage played because. Uh, it's been discussed for a long time on the internet. It's relatively simple to be able to tell whether it's an advantage, an advantageous stage or not. And uh, there's a grand version of the machine, which is a little bit different, but it's still the same concept. So this person is reporting that uh, at Thunder Valley, they had uh, they they had uh, moved some of the Ocean Magic Grands. And uh, and then they moved them back. And that, uh, he said, at the reopening, the bank of 10 Ocean Magic Grands was reduced to six machines with an empty space between each machine uh, with four machines relocated to the bingo hall. But then with little to no action in the bingo hall on these machines, they relocated them back to the main floor. They Each week they reactivated more and more machines. It's uh, really risky to be in Thunder Valley with so many players sitting right next to each other. They're busy every day. People tell me the parking garage is full on most days. So this person's claiming that uh, there's a COVID danger and there's just too many people that are in the place. So Thunder Valley has been looking for hustlers, banning them, looking for people who don't wear masks, banning them. Maybe the fact that they are so crowded, that's why they're trying to get rid of people who won't wear masks because they don't want that bad look. They don't want people being scared there. Of course, at Indian properties, they can do what they want, and there's really no way to appeal anything. So once they say you're gone, you're gone. Indian casinos have also been pretty intolerant of advantage players in general. They tend to be the most aggressive with getting rid of advantage players and have even been known to detain them for a while for BS reasons or without even a good reason at all. And there's not much you can do. So that is allegedly going on at Thunder Valley, according to someone posting on Poker Fraud Alert sister site, VegasCasinoTalk.com, which I also own. So that's uh, that's everything I have for you right now. Uh, Trader Ruski, uh, are you going to be around, you know, on uh, October 18th, which will be a Sunday, Sunday night? I will be, I will be around. The 19th, I don't have anything too early, so I should be good. Okay, that's good. That's going to be our next show. That'll be our next episode. Let me see if we got any late night texts. 
on 775-372-8355. Um, in relation to the shooting that occurred outside of uh, Planet Hollywood, this person at 702 is claiming that was a drug deal gone bad. At Las Vegas News Channel 8 reports he will live. That's the guy shot. Said he wanted his drugs after paying. Shooter still on the loose. Hmm. So it sounds like that the guy yelling paid for drugs and it got stiffed. And then was, uh, that's why. So the guy who was, I guess the, he's trying to say the shooter was also a drug dealer who stiffed someone. And then tried to walk away. And these guys were yelling at him and approached him and then he shot them. Yeah, it's not a good not a good idea either to deal with drug dealers in Vegas. And in fact, a lot of times the violence that occurs at the Rio during the World Series that happens in the parking lot, a lot of times that has to do with drug deals gone bad. You'll hear these stories. Oh, my God, something happened in the parking lot. Someone got mugged. Someone got kidnapped. Someone got grabbed and thrown into a van and beaten up and then thrown out. And it sounds very scary because you think, well, I park in that parking lot. What if this happens to me? And then you find out that they were intentionally doing, you know, hanging out in the parking lot in a dark area because they were making a drug deal, and then it went bad in some way, or it was a setup in some way, and someone's beaten up and robbed and mugged, and you know, not that this should be happening or that they shouldn't be pursuing the criminals to do it, but it's not the same danger to the public as just like a random attack on players walking through the parking lot. So I guess this makes me uh, feel a little less uh, sorry for the victim. But still, you know, you shouldn't get shot because you tried to make a drug deal and then we're mad you didn't get your drugs. It's just a, it's just a, not a good idea to be doing there. But it was still a, a shooting in front of Planet Hollywood. And the shooter is still on the loose, even though there was a kind of clear picture of him in that video. Well... As I said, we will be back on October 18th on Sunday night around the same time. I'm going to try to do a pace of uh, six days between shows so we can eventually move back to Friday without being too uh, soon between shows where I don't have enough to talk about. So, Trader Ruski, I appreciate uh, you coming on here t- tonight at the end of the show. And uh, we'll be back in six days. Hang on a second. I'm gonna... Here you go, Trader Risky. I bet you can hear me now. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now, Trader Risky? Ah, damn it. This isn't a good way to end the show. Trader Ruski can't hear me. Okay. We'll just pretend he can hear me. Thank you for joining here at Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Whether you're listening in the archives or listening live, I always appreciate your attendance of this program. We hadn't been on in uh, nine days, so we did have more to cover than usual. I actually got through it pretty fast, considering the show ended up being less than six hours, which for me is pretty fast. We actually haven't had any eight-hour show in recent times. It's always been like five or six in the last few weeks. But we had several eight-hour shows before that. 
I don't plan for them to be eight hours or even six hours. I just, I just say what I want to say and whatever time it takes, it takes. The fewer number of days between shows, the less of a chance it's going to be a long show. But sometimes we get a few big topics in one week and we can end up ranting forever. Well, that is all. Look for the next show Sunday the 18th around 9 p.m., 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time, something like that. Thank you to all those who donated to the free roll. I appreciate that. As far as the possible lawsuit, you'll get more information as we can release it. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Trader Risky, for coming on at the end, and shalom. Shalom.